You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. It's 3 a.m. on Tuesday, June 2nd, 2020. Welcome to the broadcast. I'm David Feldman, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. We're doing this show today in front of a live virtual studio audience. Thank you. Thank you. We're doing this show live to tape here in Manhattan with a virtual studio audience. And they're attending via Zoom or by phone, and they will be joining the conversation by asking my guests questions. And I hope they speak up when I open the floor to hear what's on their mind. We're going to be talking about police in America and what's going on. If you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience, go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit the office hours menu to sign up. Actually, we've changed the menu. I think it's attend to taping. I think it says attend to taping now. Hit the attend to taping menu to sign up. You'll get a link. And if you have Zoom, just click on the link and you're in. You don't need any passwords. The invitation will also provide some dial-in numbers if you want to attend via phone. Here's the lineup for today's show, if all goes well, and it usually doesn't. First up, Aaron Berg, whose latest special is 25 Sets. Then Mark Breslin, founder and president of Yuck Yucks. It's the largest comedy chain in North America. Comedy historian, that's what I'm calling him because he is Jackie the Joke Man Martling, then joins us. I'll take your calls to have a a virtual town hall about policing in America. And then we'll talk to congressional candidate and comedian Lauren Ashcroft. Do you know Lauren Ashcroft? Aaron Berg? Well, I'm going to ask Aaron Berg if he knows Lauren. She's running for Jerry Nadler's seat, which must be very large and not too attractive, but uh, she's running f- for uh, Jerry Congressman Jerry Nadler's seat, and we'll talk to her. Then Helene Olin from the Washington Post joins us. Howie Klein from Down with Tyranny. He's going to then introduce us to a progressive candidate for governor of New Hampshire, Andrew Valinsky. Dr. Harriet Fraud, Marxist psychotherapist and host of Capitalism Hits Home, joins us. Then Ann Newman, whose latest article for The Guardian is entitled Transfer Trauma, America's Seniors Suffer as Our Care System Pushes Them Between Sites. So just when you thought the world couldn't get any more depressing, we're going to talk about the plight of senior citizens here in America. Professor Harvey J.K. will join us to talk about protests, police riots, and black men living and dying in America. At the end of the show, we will be joined by my hero, the man who took down the Gambino family, Burt Ross. Then our town hall on COVID-19. Remember COVID-19? I know, the not-too-distant past. We're going to talk about COVID-19 with the irritable immunologist, and Henry Hakamaki, and we'll wrap it up with more of your calls to talk about what's happening here on the streets of America. We will be back with comedian, 
and the star of the new movie 25 Sets, Aaron Berg. Everybody's heard of comic Aaron Berg. Berg, Berg, Berg. Berg is the word. Well, Berg, Berg, Berg. Aaron Berg is the word. Berg, Berg, Berg. Comic Aaron Berg. Well, Berg, Berg, Berg. Aaron Berg is the word. Haven't you heard about the Berg? Everybody's talking about Aaron Berg. Well, Berg, Berg, Berg. Berg is the word. Well, ooh. Oh, where did the music go? Hello? Uh, excuse me. I ordered music on this section. Would you? Oi, mow, mow. Oi, mow, mow, mow. Oi, mow. Comedy genius and the star of the new movie, 25 Sets, which you can stream on Amazon and iTunes. Please welcome an old friend of the show. He's a genius. You love him. You can't get enough of him. Aaron Bird. How are you? Hang on. You're stepping on our virtual studio audience's cheers for you. They love you. How, uh, how am I? Yes. The best you've ever looked. I'm, uh, uh, you know, I'm dealing with. Uh, I started watching TV over the weekend, and I shouldn't have done it. I like to read about these things and think rationally instead of yeah. seeing it uh, unravel in front of me. But Again, you, and you throw on Golden Girls, and you're too low shorter, aren't you? you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> You're smacking around the old B. Arthur, if you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying? You're masturbating on your floral chest <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. If you get innuendo. You I don't, I don't, I don't explain. I don't understand what you're okay, saying. Okay, so what it would be is you would see Golden Girls and you'd be like, oh boy, I miss having a place in Boca Raton. No! <laughs> and as you eject, you would yell, homeowners association! And then you'd probably grab a shuffleboard thing and uh -huh. run out and start yelling, you French Canadians, get off my court. Now, didn't you write an episode of the Golden Girls where George Zimmerman was patrolling the neighborhood? Yeah, it was. But let's not go there. I, I specifically said to you, let's not talk you about it. You could have let me dance around it. I, I would have called it once, twice, three times charges dropped. And that okay. would have been, uh, yeah, and it would have been, uh, totally unrace related. What a wonderful time to be alive. It's what a, a great time. Yeah. I got COVID. I had it this weekend it, in and out of my body in an hour. That's how well tuned my immune system. I felt the fever come on. I go, I'm achy. And then my wife goes, what? And I go, shut up. And then I go, oh, it's the COVID. That's for sure. I go, I read that you get really moody and you will yell at your wife. Uh, I read this, you know, the big, long horror list, the sore throat, all that stuff, all secondary to yelling. And then two hours later, I felt fine. Today, I have a sore throat again. And now it's bad. So I, I clearly have it. But the good news is America doesn't have it anymore. It is gone. Yeah. Uh, get out there. Sit close to people and get those uh, 60 C comedy clubs back up to capacity because that really yeah, helps. Really helps. <laughs> Shane nice Gillis. Shane Gillis is going to be performing somewhere. I think in Missouri, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, would you? Shane was it? I had a show yesterday. The the first uh, sorry two days ago on Sunday, Stand Up New York put on a show outdoors with people, socially distanced, back of a flatbed truck. About eight comics got up, 
my wife goes on, uh, gets heckled from a fifth floor window. Some woman yells, I swear, goes, not good. <laughs> then six minutes later, the cops come and shut down the show because some old yenta on the Upper West Side called it in. How much did you pay the old yenta to heckle your wife? <laughs> oh, boy, if I could meet her, I would donate. And uh, we donated all the funds to a charity in Minnesota, which I got flack for because my usual base said, why would you donate these uh, the Freedom Fund, which was to help uh, bail reform, or as you call it, the stuff you masturbate to. And uh, we did that. And I got a lot of flack for that because people go, that's not your, you, what are you, what are you covering up, Aaron? Why would you donate to a charity? That's how people get with me. And I, uh, I was actually last night, I went and I was able to uh, plant bricks all throughout the city in front of store windows. So I do that. <laughs> on top of this gig. Uh, I'm a professional agitator now. And I didn't know that this was a thing, but it is a wonderful thing to do. If you've got spare time uh-huh. and you're a comic, they told me, they're like, oh, your improv is really going to come in handy. I only took two levels at Second City, mm-hmm. but I, you can't tell. I mean, you just show up. <laughs> And people will go, no justice, no peace. And you go, yes, and bricks. And then you drop the bricks. And you walk off. And boy, are the people thankful to see you. Especially, uh-huh. you know, the white people with a lot of tattoos on their necks. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been going great. I got a whole bunch of Rolex watches last night. Uh, Burberry. Never even knew it was a place. That it was a berry. But I uh, got a whole bunch of stuff in there. Went by a men's warehouse. Did not, you could not force me to steal that stuff. You browse at the men's warehouse, but loot at Bloomingdale's. That's my general rule. That's correct. Went to Macy's. It was boarded up, but what a great time. And I'm going to shock your live audience a little bit. I saw David Feldman at the riot yesterday. I don't want to talk about that. Maybe you don't. No, no, let, 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 no, 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 I don't, that's my personal life. We don't talk about what I do in, in my personal life, Aaron, so let's move on. So, whatever you want to do, uh, tell me I about the show. I remember you yelling. I don't. Really? I'm just going to say one thing. I knew it was you because you were the only guy holding people up on a chair. Yelling Simonoff and Mother. <laughs> Why would you not trust me to make this funny within your safe guidelines? No, 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 you no. Know I would. No, no. Hey, hang on. I want you to do the bit. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to create tension. I'm trying to pretend I don't want There's you. There's a do. lot of tension here. I remember right, right. last night people going, "Oh, how come that guy has dreadlocks on the side of his ears?" And I remember you running up and down the street. And then grab in a girl's breast because you thought you could. And they go, what's that guy doing? And he goes, to fill in. <laughs> to fill in these titties. I remember you yelling that. And then you took a shot. Here's the filling. To fill in these titties. Well, are you saying there's audio? Because I know that the drones are. Yeah. I was watching Amy Goodman this morning. I have it if I can. Yeah, let me just. Before. This is what's pissing me off. Before you play this audio, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, an American citizen, and I am entitled to my privacy. But what is going on? The governor of Minnesota is cooperating with the White House, their intelligence 
gathering operations. And they are literally following the protesters with drones and they're gathering, quote unquote, intel on people who are peacefully marching. And now, Aaron, you say that you have actual audio of me harmlessly protesting yesterday. That's correct. Yep. Let me see if I can, should I turn my video off and bring this up? Yes, please. Go ahead. Okay. I'm really pissed off about this. Play it. Go ahead. Play the audio. The past, yesterday. Oh, boy. I'm so excited. This Minneapolis Twin Cities. Oh, that girl's got a buttocks that makes me want to meet her twin. Oh, I'm so happy I was flown in from another state to be an agitator. Oh, here we go. Let me go downtown, okay? Hello. How are you? Is everything safe here? Well, it's about to not be because Feldo just got here. Boom, shakalaka. Okay, could you just drop me? Here. This would be wonderful. Walking, 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 walking. Oh, there look like some mad, mad protester people. Excuse me, have you people seen any justice or any peace? No. All right, well, let me just throw this trash can against this window. Why is the trash can so heavy? Oh, God, my fucking hernia. Oh, I just fucking popped a lumbar L5 disc for the love of Jesus, Satan, Christ, fucking hell, Hashem, in Tel Aviv. Oh, Fucking goddamn, my circumcision scar popped open. Could somebody give me a hand with this trash can? Because I'm trying to throw it in the window of this place, which is a Russ and Daughters fish shop. Boy, oh boy. Come on, Russ and Daughters. You think I'm not going to get in the end that you'll know for locks? Oh, there's the L6 disc for the love of God. Could someone please help me? Anyone of any color or descent. I don't know anything about anything. Please. Oh, that's a, that's a heat rash. Oh, boy, that's a heat rash right there that I've got, certainly. Okay, now, let me read my directions. If at first you cannot uh, bust the window, then you must go, okay, I've got my hammer. Now, I'm going to go in front of this auto zone with my umbrella. Okay, and here we go. Smashy, 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 smashy. Excuse me, sir. I'm trying to use a hammer. Do you know which motion I would utilize? I'm Jewish, and as such, I've never uh, touched any sort of tool, and I don't know what to do with this hammer. I see the two uh, clawy parts on the back. Would that be to scratch my back in case it is itching? And this other little part looks like a ball peen thing, and I'm uncertain as what to do with that uh, currently, and I was wondering. I feel like I am here to... I, I don't know. I am not a police officer. I am a silly villain. <laughs> civilian. See the way I put the two words together. I'm very clever. You should see my Emmys. I sold them to get a plane ticket. Oh, boy, don't fly Delta. They don't even feed you. And it's like you have to wear a mask, but then they hand out water. How am I supposed to drink the water? Pour it through my mask? Stewardess. It's more like, go fuck yourself. Okay, so anyways. All right, I don't know if that's below. Okay, so the riots are starting now. I'm just going to light a, a little fire here. I got my match. Oh, it's windy for the love of Hashem. Oh, God, the wind is blowing. It's blowing. It's blowing. Fuck 
fucking goddamn fucking goddamn goddamn. Excuse me, sir. May I utilize your Molotov cocktail just for a moment here, if I could just get this, because I'm trying to light this trash bin on fire. It's the same one I tried to throw and could not throw off, you see, because I don't. I, it's ironic. The upper body strength is not there, but when I would go to summer camp, boy, could I swim. And I would be schwitzen, and they would throw me in and go swim. And I also, oh, there was a time when they would get us these little laser sailboats, and my parents would pay, and we would go on these laser sailboats, and everybody said, a good Jewish boy needs to know the outdoors. You know what? If you had a magnifying glass, perhaps I could start a fire with a magnifying glass. I recall doing that back in my scientific now, now I'm just killing ants. I'm so dissuaded by this. I just want to say that I hope that this all ends and we get back to justice very soon. I need to fly back to New York City because right now they've released something saying 95% of us are from out of state. That'll probably be overturned within a day or two. Oh boy, don't believe anything that you read. I need to go immediately now. Thank you, God. There's a drone following me. Oh, there's a drone following me. Oh, I hope this doesn't end up on my show. Be the beauty. <laughs> the present. I got it. Okay. Wow. That, that is such a violation of my privacy. And well, David, you... We live in a police I, state. That We live in a police state. They are monitoring my every move. That, that's humiliating. You know... I don't know if I I'm going to play lost. I thought I lost my sense of smell this morning, and then I woke up, and it turned out my wife had just cleaned her ass before I ate it. <laughs> You're a genius. You're a genius. Are you doing your show? Are you able to do your show? I do my show in the mornings, but I'm, I'm really blocked up from not doing stand-up. I'm going to be in Atlantic City on Saturday. I'm going to do a drive-in show in Atlantic City uh, to cars. I'm not even kidding. I'm I love you, man. I, I think so that's much so much pent-up stuff. Yeah, and I think that's... I, I don't know why, but that's the kind of gig that I would love to do. It's a nightmare like that, because that brings out the, the real comics do that. Really? I said that. I defended it last week to another yeah. comic. He goes, why would you do that? I go, because the shitty ones are how you get to that next level. And hey. he plays Madison Square Garden, this guy. He opens for Bill Burr. And I go, you got to do the shitty ones still. You know that. you got nothing goes, yeah. to lose. They're so nothing great. It's all about the camaraderie of driving out with your friends, knowing that it's a kamikaze mission. You got no, you're going to die. And, and it's, it, it creates the brotherhood or sisterhood or whatateverhood. Right? Yeah. I yeah. Traveling pants. I have my own microphone now. I won't let any of those fucking rubby dubs put their <laughs> spitting ass fucking sound things near my mouth. I'm telling you. Do you really bring your own microphone? Oh, got my own mic there. Sure. Comics four years ago were filthy. The, the, the well-off ones, you'd go up and you'd be like, what are you fucking rubbing this in a stranger's asshole before you did that? <laughs> no, it's just, a, you know, I'm a pescatarian and I fucking eat armpits before I get on stage. <laughs> fucking disgusting. Most comics are disgusting. Yeah, yeah. Well, now, so describe many. the drive-in. So there's going to be a drive-in movie. 60 car, no no movie. It's me. I'm going to go up and do 25 minutes. I'm going to drive two and a half hours to AC and do 25 minutes. And I've got a lot of good new jokes. And So it's going to be outdoors. Hang on for one second. Hang on for yeah. one second. 
It's at a drive-in movie theater. For lack of a better term. Now those by it's a dry, it's a drive-in theater. People are going to show up in their cars. They're going to be sitting in their cars. Yeah. And you're going to be standing where? On the back of a pickup truck. <sighs> Yelling, they will not replace us. Following that, uh, there'll be some music played, you know, 70s stuff, Tina Turner, shit like that, get people, you know, transition the mood a bit after after we give out our MAGA tattoos. And mm-hmm. then uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll start, who's ready for some comedy? And we'll, do the, we'll steal the old yuck yucks. Hey, oh, let's go. Hey, oh, let's get people all worked up. Yeah. And then I go out and I talk about eating ass for 25 minutes. <laughs> and how do you know if you're doing well? Well, the girl will usually make a noise and go, oh, okay, move to the pussy. <laughs> oh, God. No, I'm talking oh, about... Oh, you mean at the show? At yeah. the show. At uh, the show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can see people laughing in the front rows. Uh, and at this gig, apparently they honk. So if it's something hilarious, they start honking. So you'll get 60 cars honking all at the same time. That's... The, and if you... You know what? You should bring some geese. Just to, you know, oh, yeah. some canned Sweet laughter. It. Like a laugh track. Yeah. <laughs> and then, if I don't do well, I'll open up a wet market and sell the geese immediately after the show instead of merch. <laughs> uh, that's great. So you're driving to your gig. This is my night. I told my wife, I go, I'm going to go alone. I need a night by myself. The last two shows I went to, I took there was a family thing. And I don't want to turn into Rich Voss and Bonnie McFarlane. I still need some uh, freedom. I would like to go for a two and a half hour drive, you know, load up the old uh, Mercedes and uh, meet with other white nationalists on the way. You drive and, a Mercedes? Uh, Hello, do I? Yeah. I, I can't uh, drive a Mercedes. I I can't forgive the Germans for World War II. They they lost. They lost the I, war, and I find that unforgivable. I, 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 think. <laughs> I heard that Hitler actually was giving a lot of Jews jobs when they were building Mercedes back then. I don't know if it's true, but I feel like it was part of Yeah, he was a job creator. You're absolutely right. He hated the Mercedes company so much. There's pictures of him in a Mercedes waving at people saying, Don't buy these. Don't buy these. Eisen mein CLA two fifty. He yells. <laughs> My Mercedes is not very big. It's a small little Mercedes, but boy, is it fun to drive. Wow. So I drive. I I, want, I need a night away. It's David. It's been three months quarantine, and you remember the old meme that came out when quarantine started. It goes option A: you quarantine with your wife and child. Option B: I'll take B. B. I'll take B. I'll take B. <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> It never gets old. Boy, I wish I could just steal that and put it in. I know. It's brilliant. Well, what happens after the quarantine ends? Because it does feel like it's ending. Humans, you cannot lock humans up. They're out. Uh, In Manhattan last night, I took my walk, my constitutional, and I saw young people. They weren't wearing masks, and they were not social distancing. We are social animals. It's over. COVID's over. It's been replaced by something else. Uh, I was last week at this deep state pedophile thing. And <laughs> I remember, you know, finishing with three or four of the of age participants. And uh, 
I looked over to Bill Clinton and I go, <laughs> Bill, wh- what are we going to do next? And we both kissed our fingers and touched the mural of Epstein's penis. And <laughs> at that point in time, as the pizza arrived and we opened the gate, uh, which is where the name comes from, we, we both said, what is next? And he goes, there's only one thing left to do. We free Bill Cosby. And I said, how do we do that? And he goes, we get the reruns back on. We uh, drop any and all charges against Louis C.K.'s liars. He yelled liars when he said that. (laughs) I did not understand why Clinton was doing that. And then he just gave me one of those thumbs up. And I remember in his old-style Clinton-esque speak, he was blowing his sacks in between blowing his kids and he looked up at me and he goes, boy, my wife can fuck me hard. And I said, that's too much information. He goes, great name for a band. And that's how the conversation ended. Too right. much information. Yeah. Hey, we have a question from uh, Joshua. It's an interesting question. You touched on it. You recently posted support for the protesters on Instagram. And the that's comments right. section lit up with disbelief. How does... Aaron feel about his more right-wing leaning fans? Uh, is this an honest question? It's an honest question, know? yeah. What was the question? How do I feel about my right How do you feel fans? about your right-leaning fans? You do have some fans uh, yeah. who are uh, right-wing. Yesterday was a day where I have uh, a lot of black friends. I work in stand-up comedy. And I have, and I'm also a minority owner of the Atlanta Hawks. And I have, <laughs> so you're you're a minority who has yes black friends. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, yesterday was a day where where I get it, and, and I've been on both sides of the fence, and I've seen all the numbers thrown at me where people will go, "Well, here's how many white people are killed, and here's how many black." And so I've been able to take all the evidence from both sides. A man that didn't deserve to be murdered got murdered uh, by a police officer. I have tons of cop friends. Three of them are sitting right in front of my house right now watching me doing this recording and taping it. Um, I have a lot of cop friends. I have a lot of black friends. Yesterday was the day when Stand Up New York said, we're going to donate these proceeds to this cause. I go, today is the day that I'm not I'm not taking sides. I think that something good should be done for community. I didn't look that much into the charity. I found out it's uh, it, it's for bail reform. It's to basically free protesters that have been arrested. With the money we raised, we uh, I think we almost freed one thirty six of one protester. <laughs> it is a stand up comedy show. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm very uh, for the most part. I don't like bail reform in New York. I don't like this. I don't like crime going up in New York. But I did what I did, and I'm not going to be defined. I'm not defined by any political spectrum. So I, I make my choices based on what helps me sleep at night. And I was up all night. So that's how you have it. And are you getting threats? I mean, you. There are people who. Uh are taking the wrong side in this. Why do they I take the wrong side? I don't get threats. David, I understand you, you, there's an old traditional conservative standpoint where it's like peaceful protest is fine. Anything above and beyond that, lock them up. Right. Uh, you also know change doesn't come peacefully. 
you remember how else did you get divorced seven times? It wasn't peaceful. Yeah, there was a and I had no change. Afterwards, there was no change left. There was no change left. Okay. Um, it, it's not always peaceful. I get it. But th- there's a point if, and I said this to my wife. She goes, do you know, we don't know. We're not marginalized people. I said, speak for yourself. Look at my circumcised penis. You don't know what it's like. We were the first ones. <laughs> she goes, <clears throat> she goes, you know, it's, we don't. I go, okay, let me ask you this. If they came to our house Who's and they? attempted Looters, rioters, anyone that is on the evil side of a protest. Right. You would put a sign around your wife's neck that said, yeah. I can't <laughs> take my wife, dot, 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 please. No, they, I can't uh, do the joke. I won't do it. Go ahead. The the old joke was, I, my old joke was, if someone ever kidnapped my wife, I would call and I go, I swear to God, if you lay one fucking finger on her, I will pay you an unmarked bill. So, uh, <laughs> don't, don't go there. Don't, just let's move on. <laughs> the, yeah, Walk away from the, it. The Just point get... was, I said, if somebody came to our house, how would you feel? And obviously, I would defend my house. I'm armed. We have. But uh, they're not going to loot your house. Well, here's my address: one seventy one <laughs> West Fifty Fourth Street, apartment. <laughs> Ooh, uh... the, the, yeah, they, I... They're not going to loot. There's nothing you have. Maybe there's a couple of bits that mm-hmm. they might want, but they're going to loot the stores. Right? They're not looting people's homes. Do you know the people that were most upset that I, I helped donate to that charity were so-called woke people that already hated me and said, he's doing this out of guilt. So right. instead of being happy that we tried to make change, they were still just trying to, quote-unquote, cancel me or be upset right. with me. Are you wrestling with anything right now in terms of your politics, your comedy, Men, I meet at rest stops, but we wear masks. Um, it's mostly in Jersey, so there are kind of, you know, clearer laws about yeah. infidelity, social distancing, that type of thing. Am I wrestling with anything? I'm aware of the impact uh, that my comedy has, and it is harder to hold a hard line because I'm not doing stand-up comedy every night. As soon as I get back to doing stand-up comedy every night... This is what I, I have realized. Satire and racism are two different things. And the dog whistle mentality is not necessarily that. You can do jokes about race, about transphobia, about homophobia, and they do not necessarily fall into that ism chain. Jokes about anything are still okay. But because there is no real comedy happening in the world right now, we may lose that if it doesn't get back. And that's why I'm constantly trying to get back on stage is to remind people of that. I've done one show since this started, and comedy still holds up because I can see people doubling over with laughter. More so, so it's now. It's not going to go away. But the longer, and, and if you don't think that uh, trying to hold comedy back is trying to hold comedy, is trying to hold freedom of speech back, you're absolutely wrong. Comedy is a major part of freedom of speech. That's why so many comics fought to say fuck and fought to say because if that goes, you're not going to be able to say anything anymore. The next thing you know, you're on an island with George Soros. <laughs> Mark Breslin, the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, your friend, is up next. Aaron Berg's new movie is 25 Sets. Stream it. Stream it. On Netflix or Amazon in hot water. Amazon. No, no Netflix. We don't deal with them. Uh, Netflix uh, 
had something to do with buying the Epstein Island. We do not mess with buying the what? Amazon Prime. The Epstein Island. They were part owners. Oh, Netflix and yeah, and they started COVID to get their numbers up. Netflix did. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. I read this on a site called StopNetflix.org. Oh, okay. I'll have to I have to expand my reading list. Aaron right. Berg, follow him on Twitter, Aaron Berg Comedy. The name of his podcast mm-hmm. is In Hot Water. And plug the drive-in movie show in Atlantic City. How can people buy tickets? You can buy them online. Uh, type in Aaron Berg, comma, Atlantic City, comma, drive-in comedy show, comma, June 6th, comma. And then you'll find it. Uh, it's AC. AC's got jokes or something. AC know. got jokes. Be and if you don't it's have a car, up. can you still come if you don't have a car? No. Uh, if you don't have a car, please go to the riots at the Tangers Outlets, <laughs> which are right down Fifth uh, Valley's. There's going to be a ton of there's a ton of great shops down there. Treat yourselves. You deserve it. You're a genius. Stay on the Thank line, you. Aaron Berg. Everybody's heard of comic Aaron Berg. 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 On this section, would you oi mau mau, oi mau mau mau, oi mau mau, oi mau mau mau, oi mau mau, oi mau mau mau, oi mau mau, oi mau mau, oi mau mau. Let us now go to Toronto, where Mark Breslin is standing by. He is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America, perhaps the world, and he has the Order of Canada. Very few people have the Order of Canada. Welcome, Mark Breslin. Thank you. Um, I just want to say that I heard uh, Aaron's parody of Serpent Bird, but I'd heard a different one, which goes Serbs, 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 well, the Serbs are the worst. Um, <laughs> it, was a band, it was by a band called the Croats, um, but I don't know if you... Um, Serbs, 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 Serbs are the, Serbs the worst. Are the worst. Well, the Serbs, 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 well, the Serbs are the worst, well, the Serbs, Serbs, Serbs. Of the word, and it's by a band called the Croats. Um, the Croaks. The Croats. See, the Serbs and the Croats were involved. Oh, the Croats. The, the Croatians. I, yeah, I call them Croats. Um, Jesus. Because the two of them were involved in a kind of, uh, you know, death shall be part uh, yes. a war with each yes. other. Yeah. So anyway, I know it that way. Now, we'll get to that in a second. Do you think that that's Aaron Berg singing on that song? Yes. Aaron, is that you singing? I know that voice. I know that voice anywhere. Really, Mark Breslin. Mark Breslin, who jump started stand up comedy into the twenty first century. Mark Breslin, who discovered the genius that is Aaron Berg. Aaron Berg is one of your favorite all time comics. Correct. And you say that's the voice of Aaron Berg. Is that what you say? It sounded, it sounded to me like a doctored version of him. Yes. Aaron, am I right? No. Absolutely okay. correct. <laughs> oh, it is right. Okay. Well, I wanted to ask you, Jim LaHood made that for us. He makes our jingles. And I I was wondering, is that you? Because it does sound like you. It's not you, though. It's Jim LaHood, isn't it? It's Jim LaHood. No, it's, it's Jim LaHood. It's Jim LaHood. It's pretty amazing. It is Jim. It is yeah. Jim LaHood. Yeah. Well, okay. Both mistaken. I did have sex with that woman. Um, <laughs> All right. 
All right. I will say this in in parting because I have uh, ample time to think. Mark Breslin is a genius who brings up the best in people all the time. You're very fortunate to have him here at hour 14 of your podcast. Today. Um, <laughs> and uh, really, without a, he was probably my single greatest mentor in comedy, and I would not be able to do what I do uh, without him. And I'm always excited to see him again. So I, I look forward to uh, your blackface prime minister reopening your borders so that I may come back and sing Moonlight on one of your stages, and uh, Mammy as well. Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron Berg. I I hope to see you soon. I love you. God bless you, and BLT, best sandwich ever. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What happened? Did I lose? Hang on. Did I lose you? Are you there, Mark? Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Okay. What's what's the deal with him? How brilliant what is he? What's the deal? He's really brilliant. Um, but, you know, it's, um, he does a lot of stream of consciousness stuff. It makes it hard for, you know, television people. And uh, it makes it hard for television people to say, okay, what, what are we going to do with him? Right. Uh, are we going to put him in a sitcom? Um, even are we going to give him a special? It's hard to even think about that one. Every show is different. Right. Um, you know, he's, it's interesting because he started out doing very, very precise pieces. And they were like pieces, almost like theatrical pieces with titles to them, uh, like seven, seven hookers I've known or, or things mm-hmm. like that. And it was a completely different kind of show. And it, he did that show not only in Toronto where he developed it at Yakex, but he did an off-Broadway run. In fact, I think he did two off-Broadway runs and they went quite well. But, you know, he kind of uh, spending all the time in New York, um, in those clubs. I think he transitioned into doing something which was more in the moment. Yes. And that's what, he, that's what he's doing. But it's very hard, I guess, for a producer to think, oh, I'll book somebody who's in the moment. And that's very frightening to them. Supposedly, even when Robin Williams did um, um, Mork and Mindy, it scared them because he would never stick to the script. He would go mm-hmm. off script all the time. I mean, he was to the point where I understand toward the end, they wouldn't even write anything for him to say. It would just say, Robin improvises. Right, right. Explain to me. That's a hard thing for, uh, that's one reason why why improv has never done really well on television. Right. Explain to me why audiences like a comic who's in the moment, why they prefer a comic who's in the moment as opposed to, and this isn't a generalization, uh, they also, you know, love Mitch Hedberg or Norm McDonald. I mean, anybody who has well-crafted jokes, Rodney Dangerfield, that people will go and watch and enjoy a comic who has well-sculpted, like Bob Schimmel, great jokes. But yeah. is it fair to say if they had their druthers, and very few have their druthers anymore, sorry, I was channeling Steve Allen, uh, if they no, had... I left my druthers in my other pants. <laughs> you know exactly how you feel. Um, if they had their druthers, I, they would prefer a live comedian who is in the moment working in the crowd, even if he's playing in front of 15,000 people at Madison Square Garden. It's one of the few art forms that breaks the fourth wall. And that's very, very powerful. Because then you feel that the comic and you are involved in the project together. Yeah. That's really strong stuff. 
Um, that's really By the way, you know what the other stuff. art form that you know, what, you know what the other art form yeah. is that breaks the fourth war? Uh, glory three. hole, glory hole, okay. Okay. artisan. Glory hole breaks the fourth wall. That's very funny. Okay, sorry, I just. Yeah, that's very funny. Thank you. Yeah. Well, anyway, let's talk about the Serbs and the Croats. Now, as I understand it, the Croats were very uh, fond of the Jews. They fought Hitler during World. No, that's wrong. I believe so. No, no, that's wrong. no, no. no. <laughs> the no, Croats. No, no. no, let me explain. Nobody was fond of the Jews. <laughs> that's the end of the. Oh, story. that's why it's so easy. To be a Jew. Maybe New Zealand. Maybe New Zealand. <laughs> I, um, I never... think the New Zealanders really like Jews um, because they've never met any. <laughs> so it's really easy for them. Well, the, the, you don't have New Zealand we, we really work. Like our, we really like our Jews. <laughs> and how many are there? Four. And we met them the other day for coffee. <laughs> they were lovely people. As I understand it, Australia is where they sent the criminals, but they figured they might as well send the Jews to New Zealand so the criminals have somebody to defend them. That's how I learned history. I think the Croats cooperated with Hitler and the Serbs did not during World War II. I think the Serbs, they're Slavic and they sided with Russia. And I think there's... I think you're right. I I think you're right. I think. I think. But I think you're right, but I don't... I don't think there were a lot of Serbs who were wearing Mogan Davids around their necks for solidarity. Uh, you know, I I think if there was any kind of, uh, you know, solidarity whatsoever, it was subtle, very yeah. subtle. And America went to war with the Serbs to protect Kosovo right after the impeachment uh, of Bill Clinton. I believe we bombed. I believe that's right. I believe I we bombed right. the Serbs. We bomb a lot of foreign countries And we think, hmm, that's interesting. Well, you know, shock and awe, American tax dollars, hard at work. And, you know, we somebody needs to be the police of the world. And now we're being the police of America. We are doing to uh, ourselves what we have been doing to other countries for the past several decades. But this is not comfortable. This is not completely new. Um, you know, my wife was watching um, uh, all the riots on TV, and she couldn't believe it. And I said, well, I was watching, you know, the riots in Chicago in 1968, and it wasn't all that much different. It was a police riot. Yes. Explain and, what uh, a police riot is, please. Well, a police riot was the, you know, there was this. Uh, if we go back to 1968, there was a Democratic convention. Um, all the peaceniks showed up, and all the anarchists showed up, and all, everybody who was... Um, a hippie showed up, and a zippy showed up, and a yippie showed up, and uh, there were massive demonstrations. Mayor Daley, who was the mayor, would not give them any real um, legitimate place to congregate, so everything they did was illegal, and they used that as an excuse to um, uh, round up people and beat them up, and uh, the police went wild, and it was declared a police riot by whatever governing body of... It was, I think uh, it was the NAP... I think it was either the Kerner or the NAP Commission. I think it was the NAP Commission. I think it was the NAP Commission, not the Kerner Commission. Um, and they, they put the blame so squarely and solely on the police. Yeah. And what made this different and what they could, what uh, people like Bailey didn't realize is that everything was being televised. And if you remember what the, the, the slogan was that they kept chanting was, the whole world's watching, the whole world's watching. The yeah. whole world watching, which wasn't really true because they only got a seventy-two percent uh, uh, on the. Uh, <laughs> they were opposite. Uh, I dream of Genie. On the Nielsen, 
That's right. They were well, yeah. They were opposite. I dream of genie and a lot of other good, good shows. Yeah. But much of the much of the world was watching. Much yeah. of the world was watching. Much of the world was watching. And they were beating up white kids. They were beating. They were beating up white white kids, black kids, every kid. They were beating up journalists. Um, yeah. And I remember Abraham Ribicoff, uh, who was the senator of Connecticut, the Democratic senator yeah. from Connecticut, got up and said, um, uh, "If if Eugene McCarthy was it McCarthy it was yeah, if Eugene McCarthy were president of the United States, we wouldn't have Gestapo tactics on the streets of Chicago." And what did Mayor Daly? And what did Mayor Daly say? Exactly. And then they flashed over to Mayor Daly, and Mayor Daly was giving him the finger. And said publicly on TV. Well, I don't know. He was he was saying "fuck you, Jew boy." Yes. No. Seriously, they, they you couldn't lip- hear it. You couldn't hear it, but you could you could lip read. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a great memory. Yeah. And it was a very it was a very um, kind of iconic time for me because it really uh, I was 16 years old and it really focused my politics in a lot of ways. So the 60s, people say, I've never seen it this bad. I've never seen it so bad. And my mother was saying, I've never seen it so bad. And I said, I once married a, I don't know. Uh, I'm not going to go there. I got married Uh, married for two years. (laughs) But I'm saying to my mother, who lived through the Great Depression, and by that I mean my insert joke here. She lived through World War II, the Great Depression. She says she's never seen it so bad. I said, I've seen it this bad. You know, this is this is nothing. I mean, look at look at 68. I was I remember, a kid. Look, I remember going down. I was in Los Angeles just after the Rodney King riots. It was pretty bad. It yeah. was pretty bad. So this isn't all that new. Uh, but I, I'm not trying to minimize what's going on. Um, certainly everybody's got a Got a pretty good reason to be, you know, stinking angry about right. this whole thing. But um, I'm now, trying to minimize it. I'm just saying it's not it's not unheard of. Right. This is history repeating itself, and let's not make the same mistakes we made after '68. Yeah. But we do make the same. Other countries don't make the same mistakes. America does. No, they're very creative. They keep making new ones. Which is exactly what we should be doing. Right? No, we rally behind the flag and law and order and tend to get militaristic on our own people. That seems to be the answer because we're spending a trillion dollars a year on weapons. That's our big industry, weapons. And so our response to everything is force, brute, male, toxic force. And and that's not quite as true in Canada, as you probably can guess. No. Um, but it's not like we've never had riots here. And it's not like we've never had um, police uh, doing... Uh, during the last G7 summit in Toronto, um, it was generally conceded that there was a police riot. Mm-hmm. That they would not allow um, legitimate protests, deliberately set up the protesters to be violent, provoke them... And then, of course, beat them. Yeah. Um, and it was generally considered to be a, uh, the police were at fault. So it's not like it, this is unknown in Canada. It's just that it isn't as known. Yeah. You know, Trump, I, I don't know if you know this, is an idiot. And he... You know, I heard that. Yeah. And he, he, he shows it by what he instructs 
governors to do. He held a, a conference, a phone conference with the United States governors. And his response is, you're showing weakness. You got to draw a line in the sand. You're being weak. You've got to say, this stops now. This stops now. And that is the dumbest response to what's going on. You don't draw a line in the sand. You offer up a curfew for both the police and the protesters. You tell the police and the protesters to go home. The, 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 the presence of the police creates the violence. It, it's, it's, it triggers, it's triggering. And the French, they've had their problems. I know that, but they're pretty good at controlling protests so that you, you tire everybody out. You, you celebrate freedom of speech. You let people protest. You let them march. You don't hold the line. You don't stop the marching. You keep an eye on it, but you, you kind of marshal the energy down the boulevards. That's what the French, generally speaking, are great at. But in Los Angeles, they didn't do that in 68. Well, they learned. I hope so. They, um, but they didn't do that in 68. And they certainly didn't do that after the Algerian War. But, which was 56, I believe, 57, maybe 61. What do you mean, that, what do you mean when they went home with their tail between their legs? Yeah, there were, there were, there were huge riots, and, and the police were, were, were part of the, the riot. Right. Because it's toxic male energy. But... When you look at what was going on in Los Angeles over the weekend on Third Street in front of the Grove, you don't draw a line. You don't say it stops here because the minute you say it stops here, the other side says, no, it doesn't. It starts here. Let them. Have you ever won an argument with somebody by saying this is it? But David, David, this is why for a very long time. I have advocated only hiring women as police officers. Yes. yes. Because if they start to beat you, it just resembles a Jewish marriage. <laughs> what is that about? Seriously. What? The joke or the... Uh, your mother was in the Yiddish theater. Was she an actress in the Yiddish theater? Yes. And what play? So what plays did she do? Well, they did mostly um, translations of Shakespeare, and Chekhov uh, was very big. What was Merchant of uh, Venice like? I don't think they did Merchant of Venice. <laughs> uh, I think that one was not on the, on, I think they, on the subscription list. I think it was, does not a Jewish husband bleed when you prick him? Bleed I think. when you prick him. <laughs> does not a Jewish prick uh, bleed when you... Circumcise him. Um, circumcise him, yes. Um yeah, my mother. Yeah, my mother was uh, was an actress on the Yiddish stage. You know, nineteen twenty, roughly that era. So she was a serious, legitimate actress. So you, yeah, but they also did. They also did um, a lot of sketch comedy. And somebody had done a show uh, here in Toronto, which kind of was the like the best of that era's sketch comedy, um, Yiddish sketch comedy. I went, I didn't understand a lot of it, but I, an enormous amount of stuff was about food. I know, an enormous amount of stuff was about food, and I realized 
We must have been really hungry. <laughs> we must have been really hungry. Maybe uh -huh. food wasn't all that easy to get, um, and everybody was poor in those days. Jews weren't rich Jews. The concept of a rich Jew uh, in North America in 1920 was probably a very small one. And so a lot of it is uh, where people lamenting the lack of food or being thrilled when they found food and good right. food. So many of the sketches were about food. Interesting. So weird. Yeah. So weird. A lot of cultures are like that. I remember going to a, a, a very wealthy bar mitzvah in Hollywood about tr 12 years ago, and the food was about to come, and all the and it was an international crowd of Jews, and I the, the everybody's at my table going, oh the food, oh you got this, oh, you got that, I got this, oh look at that, but and I said as a joke, I said you know you Jewish women, you talk a lot about food, but you're not willing to do anything about it, because the the stereotype is that Jewish women are notoriously bad cooks. My mother listens to this. My mother is a horrible, horrible cook. If she says to you, would you like to come over to dinner? People would say, what did I do? What did I do to you that you would say that to me? She's a horrible cook. It's, it's an assault on your senses. But uh, a woman told me from South Africa that it's not true that the Sephardim are great cooks and that she's from South Africa. She said... Jewish women in South Africa were terrific cooks until the end of apartheid. And then she was telling me the truth. She wasn't being funny. And then they then they discovered Chinese delivery. And suddenly, uh -huh. they, I'm being serious. And then Jewish women forgot how to cook because they could get Chinese food delivered. I'm, I'm not making that up. So was your mother like an actress? Did she behave like an actress? No, no, this is so far. Well, she always could, she could always tell a story. Um, she was very theatrical in her presentation, but she wasn't an actress. Uh, she hadn't worked as an actress, uh, you know, in 50 years when I was a kid. So it goes, remember, uh, she goes back way. I, I had late parents, so, um, she, I was born when she was 44. So, and she stopped performing when she was maybe 15. So, um, I, I didn't really know her as an actress. She didn't talk much about those times. I think those times were not all altogether pleasant for her um, in a lot of ways. Uh, my grandfather, who ran the Yiddish theater, um, wow. dropped dead of a heart attack. He dropped dead of a heart attack really early on. He was like forty-six or something, and I think she associated his job with his heart attack. It's so odd so when when a Jew really means it when he says you're killing me no he he was very early on very yeah. early. he was very young when he died um my mother as a cook uh, my mother wasn't a very good cook but part of that is my father's fault because you know every comedian needs a good audience and since my father liked everything um dry and bland um what else could my mother do but create dry and bland food mm -hmm. however she did a couple of things really well chicken soup Okay, well, that's a cliche. She did pickles. She made dill pickles. Mm. And every season, when I was a kid, we would stuff um, dill, uh, pickles into a mason, into a ton of mason jars, um, and put in all the spices, leave them on the windowsill to uh, whatever they do. Uh, they become ferment. Well, that's how you get the dill in. Yeah. Yeah, ferment. Yeah, they ferment. 
Yeah, they ferment, and then there would be this big sort of party uh, every year where she would take them off ceremoniously from the sills, uh, and it must have been 30, 40 jars, and people would come over and they'd get their jar of pickles from, from Matilda, and that was a great thing. Right. And the third thing she made that was great was applesauce. She made fabulous applesauce. Wow, wow. If oh, you... oh, oh, I'm sorry, and lutkas, and great lutkas. Right, well, for the apple Potato sauce. pancakes. Yeah. Uh, but yes, that's right. So that's what she did well. Anything else? No, not really. Now, you're in Toronto, and we're seeing solidarity marches around the world. Are we seeing anti-police marches in Toronto in solidarity of what's going on it was here? A big, it, was a huge, it was a huge one yesterday. What's today, Monday? Yes, yesterday. It was a huge one yesterday all the way down Queen's Park which is where the provincial government is, and down the big wide street called University, um, which would be, I guess, the equivalent of Fifth Avenue, except there aren't stores, there's hospitals. But it's a very wide boulevard street. And I don't know how many people were there, but there had to have been thousands. And peaceful, I would assume. Yes, peaceful. But it was not peaceful in Montreal, I understand. Because they're angry at the police, or they're just... I, I, I don't know. I, I can't comment. I really don't know. I don't know why, but Montreal, uh, Quebec is always a more volatile place emotionally anyway. You know the French. Yeah. They're, they're, they get upset about everything and then have a big fight over it. Um, Torontonians are not quite like that. But the um, no, the march was very peaceful, um, and uh, I, I, we went to the suburbs to make sure that we avoided it. Okay. Josh Seibelman, who is one of my gurus, he's one, like, I call him the managing editor of this show, had an idea because yeah. he we were looking at the the Zoom show and we're discovering that people from all over the world are listening and coming to these Zoom shows or by phone and we have listeners in Finland, Thailand, Great Britain, Germany, France. I mean it's just amazing. We're, and so he said, "Why don't you invite your foreign listeners to fix America?" And to do a show where I invite listeners or guests who are from countries other than America to say, you know, say to them, fix it. In the little time we have left, I have known you since the beginning of my stand-up career. You have always loved America. You've always visited America. I have sensed from you in the past couple of years a distaste for for america is that true and then could you there was always no david there was always an ambivalence there's an ambivalence about just about everything that i think about i i tend to see things in ambivalent terms i'm no cheerleader for anything or anybody um so you know i i i prefer to look at it in the way that yates the poet yates looked at life and civilizations he believed uh, existed within what he called the Yatesian gyre, and that the seeds of the destruction of the civilization were present in its creation. Okay. Okay. I think that also works. I think that also works on a micro level, too, with people, that the things that make them strong are the very things that will might bring them down. Yeah, the things if that make you strong end up killing you in the end. I think Neil, Neil Young, a Canadian... Wrote that as yes, well. Yes, he may have. He may have. He probably sang that just before he married Daryl Hannah. Yes. Um, yes. You want to do a Jackson Brown joke? 
about Daryl Hannah, or should we let that pass? go ahead? Do it, do it. No, do it. I can't. Uh, Jackson Brown, not nice to Daryl Hannah, and we'll leave it at that. No, no. Maybe the police had to be called, and we'll leave it at I that. Think, I think, I think they did. Yeah, yeah, they were. Yeah, but Jackson Brown, not me too, for some reason. Uh, no, no. But fix America in the limited time we have left. Tell us what we need to do. It is not fixable, period. It's not fixable. Um, I think that the, the, the problems are so great that they can only be contained and they cannot be really fixed. It's too late to fix. It's too big to fix. All that can happen is that you can take some of the, the worst aspects of it and kind of mute them a bit. I don't think there's anything else that can be done. You know, I, I mean, it's weird because I could point to having been around on the on the planet for you know sixty eight years. Um, I could point to the amazing uh, developments in social justice in your country over the past sixty years, and there really have been many. But at the same time, there's people who just won't get it, don't get it, don't want to get it, and refuse to get it. Mm-hmm. And there's no way you can impose. Um, you can impose laws all you want, and that's great, but you can't impose um, people thinking in a particular way. They will think the way they want to think, and very often they will deliberately, in a Dostoevskyan kind of way, think the way you don't want them to think just to express their own limited freedom. Yeah, yeah. I I think you're wrong. I think okay. you okay. have a son... And I don't think that's something we tell our children. You don't tell your kids something can't be fixed. Oh, I do all the time. <laughs> really? I'm, I'm raising I'm raising a realist. Okay. To be continued. To be continued. Jackie the Joke Man is coming up. Do you want to stick around and listen to Jackie? I can't. I have to go brainwash my son. <laughs> Mark Breslin is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America, perhaps the world. And he joined us today from Toronto. Can you stay on the line one second, sir? Yes. Thank yes. you. We believe in democracy, not oligarchy. <laughs> Today, we say to the private health insurance companies, whether you like it or not, the United States will join every other major country on earth and guarantee health care to all people as a right. is a human right, not a privilege. And together, we will pass a Medicare for all single-payer program. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump.
from New York, from beautiful Bayville on the glorious coast of Long Island's North Shore, let's welcome our old friend Jackie the Joke Man Martling. For endless jokes, say, Alexa, play Jackie Martling. Follow Jackie on Twitter at Jackie Martling. New jokes every day at 420 p.m. International Marijuana Time. You want personalized videos? Go to cameo.com forward slash Jackie Martling. Instant fun called Jackie's Dirty Joke Line. Use your finger 516-922-WINE. Hey, want to brighten your Zoom conference up with some jokes? Want some big fun? Email Jackie. He'll show up. Jokeland at AOL.com. Hello, Jackie. Mommy, mommy, why can't we have grandma for dinner? <laughs> because we still got half a hand pig in the freezer. <laughs> <laughs> How can you tell when a debutante's giving you a hand job? How can you tell when a debutante is giving you a hand job? How? She crooks her pinky. <laughs> <laughs> What's the worst thing about doing a comedy show for an all midget audience? <laughs> what? If you get a standing ovation, you don't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Hey, did you hear about the constipated owl who got a sore throat? <laughs> no. He couldn't hoot worth a shit or shit worth a hoot. <laughs> <laughs> Hee-haw. A guy walks in late and he says to the bartender, I got thrown out of the house. The bartender says, what happened? Tonight was our 10th anniversary, so I took the wife out to dinner, and you know, we had a bunch of drinks. We were at home, she got naked. She said, you can do whatever you want. So I tied her up and went over and fucked her sister. <laughs> oh, no, no, Jackie, no, 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 no. <laughs> what's the world's weirdest protest sign? What is the weird, what's the world's weirdest protest sign? What? End construction. <laughs> oh, okay. What did Donald Trump Jr. get on his SATs? What? Drool. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the most popular guy at the nudist colony? Who? That's a guy who can carry two cups of coffee and a dozen donuts at the same time. <laughs> popular girl. Who? The girl who can eat the last donut. <laughs> oh, who lost a herd of elephants? Who? Big Bo Peep. <laughs> <laughs> Big Bo Peep. <laughs> now, yeah, let me ask you, did you know that the average vagina mm -hmm. is eight inches deep? And the average penis is five and a half inches long? No. Yep, and that means in New York City alone is 13 miles of unused pussy. <laughs> Jesus, no, 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 Jackie. <laughs> hey, why did the Jewish bar owner freak out when the monkey pissed on his cash register? Why? It ran into money. <laughs> <laughs> So a guy's on a beach in Fort Lauderdale, and he says to another guy, you know, I'm not having any luck with the girls around here. The other guy says, well, it's simple. 
The babes in Fort Lauderdale, you know how they are. You got to impress them. You know what you do? Put a potato in your bathing suit. That'll impress them. Next day, a guy runs into his new friend. He says, I did it, man. I put a potato in my bathing suit. It didn't help at all. The guy looks down and says, you asshole. You're supposed to put it in the front. <laughs> What's the worst thing about fucking a cow? There's a... There's a bad thing about fuck. I don't know what. Well, you have to stop and walk around when you want to kiss her. Shut <laughs> <laughs> An old guy. An old guy goes to the drugstore. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. What? That's a great joke. Of course it is. That's a great joke. Why do you have to stop me when it's a great joke? That's that, when you keep I, the I, going. Because the, I'm seeing stars spitting. I'm laughing. Just let me. That's good. Okay. That's good. All right, so go you ahead. know that potato joke is so good. That was in my joke book in 1982. Uh -huh. Last night, Bill Maher says, Hey, Jay, Jay, to Jay Leno, tell us one of your bad jokes. So Leno told that joke. I remember Doug it's Ferrari. The biggest laugh was the biggest laugh in his whole interview. Yeah, I you know, they, they call these bad jokes. They're not bad jokes. They're the greatest fucking thing in the world. The world lives for these. Yeah, D Doug Ferrari won the the 1984 comedy competition telling that joke. I remember that joke. It's a classic. It's a terrific joke. Yeah, yeah. it's so old that in the joke was uh, Manfrotti. Do you know John Manfrotti? Uh huh. And the, and the comic strip, you know, mm -hmm. the comics of the comic strip. You know, I put everybody in my old books. Yeah. All right. So an old guy. An old guy goes in a drugstore and he says to the girl behind the counter, C -c could you please sell me a few of them Viagras <laughs> cut up into quarters? Uh, I don't want to piss on my slippers. <laughs> <laughs> words a day. Women speak 30,000 words a day. <laughs> There's your proof that women talk so much more than men. She says, well, we only use more words than men because we always have to repeat everything we say. He says, what? <laughs> <laughs> What's the definition of a depressed Wall Street trader? What is the definition of a depressed Wall Street trader? What? That's a guy that talks about hard times with a $1,000 hooker. <laughs> <laughs> so a shipwrecked cruise, a big shipwreck, and the crew's been in a lifeboat for 10 days. Nothing left to eat. They're all starving. Finally, the captain says, men, I'm going to kill myself. And you, you men can eat my body. Just as he's lifting his revolver, one of the men says, Captain, Captain, stop, stop. The captain says, why? He says, please don't shoot yourself in the head. Brains are my favorite dish. <laughs> <laughs> so two priests are at a seminar, and the first priest says to the other priest, did you ever get caught butt-fucking an altar boy in the cloakroom? Uh -huh. The yeah. second priest says, no. It's a great place to hide, ain't it? <laughs> oh, come on, Jackie. These are nice people, Jackie. Why can't orphans play baseball? Why can't orphans play baseball? 
They don't know where home is. <laughs> <laughs> That's sad. That's sad. You made me laugh at a mean joke. That's What's sad. What's the difference between zits and shits? Z what? There's never a piece of corn in a zit. Oh, Jeff. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Halloween! Halloween! And a lady answers the door, and it's a little girl. And she holds up, she holds out her open bag and says, trick or treat. The lady tosses an apple into the little girl's bag, and the kid just stares up at her. The lady says, what do you say? The little girl says, you just broke my fucking cookies. <laughs> <laughs> What's the difference between shooting arrows at lovers... Mm-hmm. And Kaylee McEnany. What? Shooting arrows at lovers is a Cupid stunt. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a Cupid <laughs> stunt. Mm. Stukowski is on a date with a girl at the drive-in, and she says, you want to get in the back seat? <laughs> he says, oh, no. I'm staying up here with you. <laughs> <laughs> What's better than being a historic pioneer of women's rights? I'm afraid. What? Being a man. <laughs> <laughs> Don't. No, no. Now that one's going to get us in trouble. Yes. So a drunk, a drunk stumbles down the, 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 the uh, riverbank. He stumbles down the riverbank and... He runs into a southern baptism. He's all drunk. He walks into the river. Next thing you know, he's standing next to the preacher. The preacher says, son, are you ready to find Jesus? And the drunk says, sure. So the preacher dunks him under the water, pulls him back up and says, have you found Jesus? And the drunk says, no. The preacher dunks him under again for a little longer and pulls him back up and says, now, my brother, have you found Jesus? She said, no. So the preacher holds him under for a long time, brings him up, shakes him off, and says, well, have you found Jesus yet? The drunk says, no. Are you sure this is where he fell in? <laughs> <laughs> Jackie the joke man, for endless jokes, say, Alexa, Play Jackie Martling. Follow Jackie on Twitter at Jackie Martling. Jokes every day at 4.20 p.m. International Marijuana Time. We all need Jackie the Joke Man right now. So go to follow him on Twitter at Jackie Martling. Jokes every day at 4.20 p.m. International Marijuana Time. For personalized videos, go to cameo.com forward slash Jackie Martling, instant fun, call Jackie's dirty joke line. Use your finger, 516-922-WINE. Hey, want some jokes to brighten up your next Zoom conference like this one? For big fun, email Jackie, jokeland at AOL.com. Thank you, Jackie. We need it. Her husband says, you know, if you could learn how to cook, we could get rid of the maid. His wife says, yeah, well, if you don't know how to fuck, we could get rid of the flagpole. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so the guy says to the bartender, yeah, my wife's getting a little queer to sleep with. The bartender says, oh, she's kinky in bed? He says, I got no idea. I don't fuck her anymore. Ask the midget, that little cocksucker. <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. One more. One more. So a guy thinks his wife is cheating on him. 
Mm-hmm. So he hires the world's best Chinese private eye, Hung Lo. Hung Lo. Hung Lo. After six weeks, he hasn't seen or heard from him. No Hung Lo. Nothing. <laughs> Finally, one day, Hung Lo rolls into his office in a wheelchair. <laughs> both of Hung Lo's legs are broken, both arms are broken, he's in a body cast, and he's in a neck, neck brace. He says, Hung Lo, w- what happened to you? Hung Lo says, oh, 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 oh. Weeks and weeks, I am following your wife, Farrow, 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 your wife, Farrow. Finally, one day, I follow wife to hotel. She meet boyfriend and Robbie. And Robbie, I stay outside hotel. They go up in elevator, I go up in tree. They go in room, I go out on rim. They sit on couch. I sit on rim. He take off her shirt. She take off his shirt. I take off my shirt. <laughs> <laughs> she take off his pants. He take off her pants. Oh, he take off my pants. <laughs> he play with she. She play with he. I play with me. I fell under the fucking tree. <laughs> 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 All right, Jackie. That's great. We needed that. Thank you. We'll talk to you All next right, week. Baby, I'll talk to you next week. Thank you, buddy. Stand line for one second, okay? Yeah. Have you called in your backup becomes now? See if we can get some more brain power in this. We thing. got one here. Roger. Fly to him, Go ahead and call. Uh, he's never mind. He's frizzy enough a little bit. Okay. Okay. Now let's everybody keep cool. We got the uh, limb still attached. The limb spacecraft's good. So if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay. Let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries, or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, You Sad, Pathetic Hump. Coming up, congressional candidate and comedian Lauren Ashcraft. She's running for Jerry Nadler's congressional seat here in Manhattan. You all remember Jerry Nadler. He's chairman of the House Judiciary Committee and was instrumental in the impeachment of Donald Trump. Lauren Ashcroft will be joining us. And Professor Harvey J.K. will join me in the questioning. Then Helene Olin from the Washington Post, Howie Klein, will take your questions about politics or Lou Reed. And he's going to introduce us to Andrew Valinsky, who's a progressive candidate running for governor in New Hampshire. And then we have Marxist psychotherapist and host of Capitalism Hits Home, Dr. Harriet fraud what's on your mind let's take some questions from our studio audience if you have something on your mind please raise your hand and i'll take your questions in the order they are received whatever is on your mind hopefully it's about police in america 
And while my virtual studio audience is raising their hands, let me tell our home audience that there is a virtual studio audience. They are sitting in with me today via Zoom or phone, and it's a great way to record a podcast, to look down and see people from all over the world listening and watching us do this live. If you would like to attend a live recording of this podcast, we tape every Monday and Thursday evening here in Manhattan. Please go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the attend a taping menu, and sign up. You'll receive an invitation, click on it, and if you have Zoom, you're in, and then I'll pre-register you for all future tapings. The invitation will also include a dial-in number if you want to attend by phone, and you can even attend via Skype, I think. I can't tell you that for certain. And uh, you'll get an all-day pass, which means you can come and go throughout the recording session, which goes about six to seven hours. It's a great way to support this show. And uh, I see some raised hands, so let's see what's on your mind. John, who I believe is talking to us from Los Angeles. Hey, John. Hello, hello, yes, I am. Barely in my Okay, so we have a problem with your sound. Okay, so let me mute you. We'll try you in a second. Let's go to Toronto, where Steve is standing by. Hello, Steve. Yeah, hi, Dave. How are you doing? Good, good. I don't think I really have anything to say. I'm, I'm more interested in hearing what folks from around the USA would have to say. But as long as I'm here, I just want to say, everyone, stay cool and... Uh, be safe and all that, and and uh, I have a lot of uh, sympathy for everyone in USA right now. Yeah, yeah. And do you, have you had a bad run-in with the cops in Toronto? And when you visit the United States, do you see a difference? When well, I, for a second, I thought you were going to ask me about bad run-ins with the cops in uh, Toronto, uh, but no, never in the USA. I've only been to the states like three, four times in my life, so no. But uh, the cops were violent here in uh, Canada during the G20 uh, summit. Um, it was uh, it was just shitty. They turned our city into a, a jail. Yeah. Uh, um, I my girlfriend went on the entire march, and it was peaceful 100 percent of the time. And she got home, she said, "Oh, peaceful, great. It was really great." And uh, and then we switched on the TV, and we saw uh, footage over and over again, repeating of. Um, people smashing windows and stuff. It was like the same second, seven seconds of footage. And her and I were sitting there thinking, well, where's the footage of the peaceful protesters who marched for five or six hours today? Like, like you could be using that too. But, you know, global news and, and other uh, parts of Canadian media seem to sort of jump on it. I think the peaceful, I think the, the guys in Charlottesville, thank you, Steve, for, for no problem. doing this. I think the guys in Charlottesville, the, the white nationalists with the tiki torches, that was smart because it's fire and the media loves shiny fire. So they'll photograph you. I think maybe, uh, the, the left should steal a page from their playbook and march with tiki torches because it's fire and you know, CNN loves fire. Let's try to see if John fixed his sound. John, did you fix yeah, your sound? Is it working now? Yes. Good work. Okay. I, I knew somebody who's a member of IATSE <laughs> could fix his yes. sound. How are you today? Uh, I'm okay. Uh, well, yeah. And I do audio for a living, so <laughs> yeah. I hope I can do it. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Did we lose you? Well, I'm getting hmm okay. delay on this. Okay. Hmm. This is. I live uh, just on the border of uh, the Fairfax district in Melrose, where a lot of shit went down in L.A. We're we're having oh, what's a, going on with this? Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's fix your sound because we're going to be doing this yeah, all day. That's right. Let's, all right. Okay. Well, we'll fix it. Jeremy, let's go to JJ. What's on your mind, JJ? I had two things to say. One about this sound thing. Sorry, I got a mask on. Oh, um, okay. It sounds like I've heard this on some of your callers where they're listening on the speakers. Right. So they're getting this feedback and echoing, you yes. know, until they get all confused. So right. if you're going to call in, put in some headphones or something. Yeah, good, good. Thank you for telling me that I should tell people to, to yeah, wear your headset when you're going to call. What is on your mind, sir, JJ? Okay, so I don't know if I can talk about this because it was before you were recording, yeah. uh, but it was talking to Jackie. Yeah. Okay. Um, can I? It's sure. nothing bad. I just don't want to, like, okay. I just thought it was sweet how Jackie was think, saying, like, well, maybe this isn't the right day to be talking about this. It was a sweet feeling, but like you said, I think, you know, people need to laugh. Like if you're just looking at the news and thinking about the police and people fight each other and like, you know, it's just a bunch of bullshit. You're real crazy. So right. basically I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad to hear the jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you, JJ. I'm sure I'll hear from you later in the show. And I also see Benji who attended the launching of the, the rocket. If uh, Benji wants to speak up, but yeah, I mean, there are times that you can't make jokes. It's not appropriate to laugh. I happen to think that if the entire country is experiencing something, then we all deserve some kind of opportunity to, to laugh. I, I said to Jackie, cause he did before we started the segment, he expressed concern. Is it, is it okay to laugh? And I, think that if it's universal, yeah, if, if you know, uh, we're all, some people more than others. I mean, if you're an African-American, obviously you're suffering more than most Americans right now. But uh, this is a frightened country, and uh, it's okay to laugh, I think. Plus, we put it at the, the bottom of the show. Benji, are you there? Benji, were you at the the launch? Yes, sir. I was there. Uh, I mean, I'm born and raised here, so it was great to see that happen again, you know. And This was Saturday, again, right? This was the launch on Saturday? Saturday, yes, Saturday afternoon. And, um, you know, of course, I wanted to see it go up. Part of me wanted to see Pence and Trump waste their time one more time. We'd go to the last minute and get scrubbed, you know, but because I know they, they really don't have the time for this crap. They just wanted it on the glory, you know, but because, uh, you know, they're there when they need you. Um, but uh, the the way they were, it was just unbelievable the way they tried to make it about themselves somewhere at the Super Bowl, you know, but there was yeah, something didn't, that didn't feel right about it. It looked like a cheesy movie. It, it didn't, it's, it, it felt like Capricorn one. It, yeah, it felt absolutely. Fake. Were, too much scripted, too much scripted. Where were you seated? I mean, where were you? Did they charge to get in? No, actually, um, I live close enough. So I, I watch the first part on side, then I, wa I walk outside and, uh, watch it from my backyard in, you know, Sarah Palin S form, but. It's 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 close as anybody else gets. It's pretty good. You, you're near the crowds and all that kind of stuff. And but. does the ground shake? Nah, not so much. A little bit, but uh, the sonic boom and the comebacks. You know, you forget about it because you're walking down the road next day. You don't think nothing about it. Also, you know, flip shell. Yeah. But 
it's pretty cool. But it is pretty it, cool. It made me proud to be an American. It's nice to know that we can do something we did sixty years ago. Oh, absolutely. It was it was a big deal, and you could tell. You know, especially the older people in the crowd. My um, I got uncles that worked at the Cape. My grandfather poured a lot of the runways and have to repour them after every launch and stuff like that. To see Trump and you know Boris Natasha and the whole crowd there <laughs> and their uh, it was great to see them in their normal familiar pose. You know, with their backs to the people. You know, yeah. It, about the way it goes, you know. Yeah, great. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you got to share that. Was a thank. Thank you. For yeah, sharing. no problem. I appreciate it, Dave. Man, we have a lot of people here today. They're just not raising their hands. Have you had an experience with the cops that you found menacing or threatening? And do you think protesting? Do you think taking to the streets helps or makes things worse? President Obama told people it's perfectly fine to take to the streets. He said this might be our moment. Then again, when he was president, we thought Trayvon Martin's killing was our moment. Let's go to Portland and talk to Tom. Hello, Tom. Hey, David. How are you today? Good to hear your voice. Good. Uh, As a white guy, even, I had run-ins with with the police quite a bit growing up in Prince George's County, Maryland, which is, you know, eight miles from the White House, and um, my experience, it's a very ethnically mixed community. Um, I don't know the exact statistics, but it's probably about 52% black now, mm-hmm. probably about 45% African-American when I was growing up. So we always had um, African-American friends, but it was sort of an unwritten rule that the town police in my community were going to hassle any of them that stepped foot in my neighborhood. University Park, Maryland is adjacent to College Park, Maryland, and it had um, binding uh, rules in their bylaws that black people were not allowed to own property in University Park, and that was removed in about 1972. Of course, it wasn't enforceable, but the whole problem that we look at with police, I'm a big, I'm really obsessed with history. You really got to go back to the founding of the country. Policing is a family business, and traditions go for hundreds of years, and what do you mean a family? Bi- what do you mean a family business? Cops tend to have cop children and cop siblings, and it's you know the same with firemen and lots of professions. And and there's there's a sense of us and them automatically in a profession like that. And in a county like Prince George's County, that has a history of they were on the side of the Confederacy. I'm really focusing on PG County because it's right at the capital, and. John Wilkes Booth escaped into Prince George's County after shooting Lincoln. And not a whole lot of attitude has changed in parts of Prince George's County since then. Right. And all of the police in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, they don't live in the city. They live in John Wilkes Booth country. And the attitude has never changed. Right. And what's going on in Minnesota, a lot of people are going, I think a lot of people on the right don't understand. They go, hey, I admit that this one cop in Minnesota is a bad guy. Why don't we just arrest him and it's all done? Mm-hmm. But the Fraternal Order of Police in Minnesota is headed by a white nationalist. I'm a pro-union guy, but if a union elects a terrorist, they're, they're, you got to dissolve them, and you have to fire every cop in, Minis- in Minneapolis and make them reapply for their job. I, I'm sure there's good cops there. Make them all reapply and make sure absolutely none of them have any association with white nationalism or you cannot be on a police force. 
Thank you. Let's go to Patrick. Hey, Patrick, where are you uh, calling from? Hi, David. It's uh, Patrick in Calgary, Canada. Hey. Um, and we don't we don't have obviously we don't have the same sort of issues going on up here as going down going on down there with you guys. But I mean, we we are having protests uh, this week as well. In um, solidarity what, with the Americans or against the police in Calgary. So it's a, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think it's mostly in solidarity with the Americans, but I'm hoping to see it become a little more specific um, on some of the, the laws that have been passed up here recently. Over the last decade, we've seen our police forces move away from carding policies. Um, but literally within the last three or four months, some of the provincial governments have passed laws that have allowed them to sort of begin that carding process. What, what do you mean again? carding? You know, so stop, stop and up here we call it carding, but what it is is it's stopping someone and asking for them to identify themselves without any reasonable suspicion or probable cause. And so do you need it, to carry identification? I mean, legally in the in the United States, you don't have to carry any documents. You don't either here, but if a, if a policeman stops you and asks you to identify yourself, you have to provide them with your name. Well, let me ask birth. you a question. Let me ask, do you yeah. think we need the police? Now, there are people, I know this is hard. It was hard for me to get my head around this idea, but the, the more I think about it, the more I understand it, and the more I wonder, do we need the police? What is the function of the police? Is the police, are the police there to protect property? Or are they there to protect people? If you own property, why does the sheriff, why does a, a public servant who is being paid by our tax dollars, why, why does the sheriff evict you? Shouldn't that be a private guard who works for the landlords? If you need to protect your property during a protest, hire private security. The police should be there to protect the people, the, and even the people from the private security. I don't know. It just seems like we need to reevaluate why we have police and what their role is. It, it, yeah, no, no, I'm with you. And, I mean, up here we don't have any constitutional right to property. Um, and so, I mean, I think you do need the police there to, pre- to, to protect your sort of your fundamental human rights. Um, and, and the laws that have been passed to protect people. But in terms of property, yeah, I, I'm on board with you. I mean, I think when you're enforcing a civil action up here, you're not call, you're not bringing in the cops, you're bringing in a civil enforcement agency, um, which is a private company to enforce the rights that you've been given by the courts. You know, the, the sheriff in Flint, Michigan, is marching with the protesters. Flint has problems, but that is genius. I mean, for the police to show solidarity with the victims of police brutality, that's the first step. And for Mm -hmm. our government not to see that, for the police union and for the police chiefs not to recognize that they have uh, more bad apples than good ones, and for the Mm -hmm. good ones not to march with the protesters, it's Idiocy, but I expect that from American police because <laughs> the American police side with the National Rifle Association now. They, they, you know, the American police are terrified. Every time they pull over somebody, they're terrified that that person has a gun. And 
because so many police officers are racist, they assume that every African-American male they pull over is packing something, packing heat. And so we have this epidemic of African unarmed African-American males getting shot. The problem is there are too many guns in America. I don't know if we can get rid of racism, but I think we can get rid of guns. And I'm surprised that the police chiefs, especially now with what's going on in the streets, I'm surprised that the police chiefs aren't standing up against the NRA and saying, get these assault weapons off the streets. They did it when Bill Clinton was president. They stood behind Bill Clinton when he was trying to pass the assault weapons ban, and they got it passed. Why aren't the police chiefs in America standing up against the NRA and getting rid of these guns? It's the guns that make these cops so angry and nervous and terrified. And the other thing about, you know, a few bad apples. I'm so sick and tired of hearing Chris Cuomo saying, you know, they're good cops. They're good cops. There's, you know, they're good cops. Don't forget that. And I, I look at the, the cops who stood by Chauvin as he was killing this, this, this guy and they did nothing. They said nothing. And I think those are the good cops that Chris Cuomo is talking about. When they say there's some good cops out there, those are the cops who keep their mouths shut and they don't speak up and they see a crime being committed, like one of their own sitting on somebody's neck and killing them and not saying anything. And they go home and think they're, they're the good apple. No, they're just as bad, if not worse, than Chauvin. Cops see a lot of nasty stuff that goes on and they keep their mouths shut. That doesn't make you a good cop. I'm sick and tired of hearing about how they're, you know, the cops are good. The cops are good. If they're bad apples and you don't do anything about it, you're just as bad as the bad apple. You're a bad apple. All those cops who stood by and allowed that to happen, they're the bad apples. But they went home that night and they think they're the good apples. They're the good apples. Let's go to Justin. Hey, Justin, where are you? Uh, hi, can you hear me here? Yes. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, I'm calling from uh, Queensland in Australia. How are you doing? In Australia? Wow. Mm-hmm. Now, what's, you guys got rid of the assault weapons, right? Uh, yeah, we did. That was when Martin Bryant went crazy in uh, Tasmania. Now, are you and, bringing uh, them back? Is there talk of bringing back assault weapons? Uh, yeah, because basically all you need is just enough time to pass and people will forget. And, you know, a, a statistic will just be made of all the tragedy that happens. I mean, you had that guy go over to Christchurch with the uh, automatic shotguns. Now, that was brought in by, I think, with the Liberal Democrat, some guy by the name of uh, David uh, Leonhelm or something like that. And uh, he was just one of those crazy entities that came into the uh, Senate and basically pushed the line of freedom and all that kind of thing, and automatic shotguns wouldn't be used for this and that. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we've got the example of Christchurch that, uh, yeah, if you make it available, there is a crazy person around who will just go pick it up and use it. But New Zealand got rid of the the assault weapons, right? Yeah, it didn't seem to work, though. I mean, obviously, he could carry it from one place to the other without any checking or whatever it was. I'm not real sure on the details there. Uh, Look, my point is in the dealings with police, one thing I have noticed over my 49 years of being on the planet, right, Mm -hmm. and it came to me a few years ago, um, how incredibly lucky I was to be born a white male. 
because the number of times I have passed by the police. So this is going on with the this is going on with the Aboriginal people. In oh, yeah, you um, you won't see it too much, but you will see a difference in the way that they uh, deal with people because I have been, uh, say, at the bank withdrawing money and next to me has been an Aboriginal person and uh, police have been talking to them and basically they just need the slightest upset, uh, you know, the slightest agitation in who they're talking to before they break out the cuffs. And do you have an uh, epidemic we- of unarmed black men getting shot? no. No. Uh, what we do have mostly is, uh, let's see, we have a lot of drunken violence. Normally you can count on a person who is engaging in their second rum and coke to be on them on a mission of some kind. Uh, violence against police up here is normally they get jumped by a drunk, but uh, it's not a wholesale shooting. There was mostly in the 1980s and 90s a whole spate of hangings in uh, police cells and that, which right. uh, a lot of police officers managed to get away with. But that got brought to the attention because we've got the uh, Australian Broadcasting Commission, which is the uh, government-owned uh, uh, telecaster, uh, and basically you get good journalism out of them. They right. like to do investigative reporting, and we've managed to close down. Are they marching in solidarity in Australia? Not that I know of. No one sent me any. You know, I, I want to do, uh, now that we're taking calls from listeners, and thank you for this, I really appreciate it. Now that we're taking calls from listeners, I'd like to do a segment where we ju- just take calls from foreign people, foreigners as we call them, and find out who they're rooting for in America, the protesters or the police. I think if I were over, well, I won't say what I think, but let's go to Tom. We have to wrap it up. Uh, Lauren Ashcroft is coming up. She's running for Jerry Nadler's congressional seat. And we will continue this conversation. We're going to do a COVID-19 town hall later. So we will get to everybody's questions. Hey, Tom. I feel a little pressed for time right here at uh because I have a lot of questions I'd like to see us discuss, but let me uh, just make one comment actually off of something that you said. Okay, and where are you calling from, just so I know? Uh, Milwaukee. Milwaukee. And um, I'm going to just make a quick comment about something that you said, David, regarding police and guns and everything. This is going to sound very odd coming from me, but I don't think that it's as simple as guns being the problem. And I, you know what, if I could wave my magic wand, I would have no guns in the world whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the police have always had guns. But one thing that's very, very different is the way in which they have been trained over the last 15 years at least. So that uh, just as a for instance, and th- this was a subject of uh, quite a bit of talk, I would say, in the media even for a while around that time when this started, we began to have some recognition of the militarization of the police. And there started to be questions about it, and I, it's been silent since then. But the way in which they were trained or are trained uh, is, for instance, the use of virtual reality so that they go into these little chambers and they have uh, video with these um, suspects that appear in front of them, and they are trained to... Uh, try to make very, very quick decisions as to whether or not this person should be shot or not mm. and how they should handle them and whatnot. So it's, you know, very much like the same kind of training that goes on in terms of war, where you're trying to uh, dampen the natural uh, aversion that we have as human beings not to kill another person. 
So everybody, because of this kind of training, becomes suspect. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, uh, we have on top of it, we have racism uh, within our culture. Uh, so blacks, you know, uh, that only gets heightened there and with brown people and whatever. So anyway, that's my basic comment. I hope that made sense. Yeah, it does. And we're going to continue this after the COVID-19 town hall. I'm going to ask some more provocative questions. I I want to get back to Tom. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. My question, we can continue this after the COVID-19 town hall at the end of this recording session. My question is, do you think Donald Trump is rope-a-doping down in the bunker? Do you think he's talking to Steve Bannon and saying, let them all come out of the woodwork. Let's see who these radicals are. We know that the governor of Minnesota is getting intel from our military. Do you think Donald Trump is rope-a-doping and waiting uh, to uh, postpone the elections? David. Yes. Uh, I, I just saw the report that uh, actual federal troops have been brought into, into D.C., and uh, that's Professor Harvey J.K. who's going to help us talk to Miss Ashcroft in a second. So the federal troops are coming into Washington, D.C. Yeah, to- not the D.C. National Guard, which actually answers to the president anyhow, but actual Is federal that constitutional? Troops. Isn't that yeah, violating post comitatus? That's a good question. I, I hadn't thought of that. That may not be legal. I'm, I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean... So you have the mayor of Washington, D.C., who has been letting the protests go on in Lafayette Park, and Donald Trump is scared, so they say, and now he's bringing in the federal troops to do what? Got me. Okay. I'm just noting. I'm just reporting. Okay. Hang on for one second. Let me go back to Tom, and then we have to bring our next guest in. Tom? Hey, I'll try to be really quick. Okay, so what I learned from the autobiography of Ben Franklin is before he moved to Philadelphia when he was in Boston, he became very concerned about a situation. At the time, um, all men of property were expected to take their turn to stand watch all night uh, and give a cry if there's a fire or there's, you know, property crime going on. And what was happening is that any person of means was finding it so boring and horrible to stand watch all night that they would pay somebody to do it in their place. And a lot of times, the only payment that was required was a bottle of whiskey, and so you had a drunk night watchman, which was a disaster. So Franklin decided uh, to motivate the people to tax themselves to create a professional police force. So he wrote a series of editorials explaining why people of means who had property to actually protect from damage should pay more than the widow who had nothing but a, but a cottage to live in. Mm-hmm. And he convinced the people of Boston to establish property tax-based police force. And so this explains really, yes, the police are all about property. They always have been from the very, very beginning. Mm. Okay. Thank you, Tom. And uh, we're we're out of time on this segment. We're going to come back at the end of the COVID-19 town hall to just talk to the listeners and find out what they think about the current state of America. And we have a lot of foreigners who will I don't know if that's a pejorative or not, foreigners, but we have a lot of listeners overseas who can maybe help us fix this country that seems to be torn apart once again or always. Well, before we take our break, John wanted me to tell Mark Breslin 
and I will say this on the show because Mark actually listens. He says, not a question, Mark Breslin, but an answer of sorts. Mark, you were referencing a Louis Bunel movie a few weeks ago, but didn't recall the title. It was The Phantom of Liberty. When we come back, we are going to meet Lauren Ashcraft, or Croft, we'll find out. She is running against Jerry Nadler, or Jerry Nadler, who is the uh, chairman of the House Judiciary. You're waving me off, Professor Harvey J. What? <laughs> I'm running against, so Lauren Ashcraft, and I'm running against Carolyn Maloney, um, who's uh, now the House uh, head of the uh, House Oversight Committee. So right next door to Nadler's district. Okay. I, had some... I actually think you're in that district, David, aren't you? Who I don't know where I am. You know Obviously, where I, am. <laughs> I, I thought I was talking to somebody who was uh, running against Jerry Nadler. We're confusing her with Lindsay Boylan. Okay. Well, wh- when we come back, we will meet <laughs> Lauren Ashcraft, who claims... Did I, did I mispronounce your first name and last name? No. No, it's Lauren Ashcraft. Ashcraft. That's perfect. Lauren Ashcraft. Yep. Okay. And we'll find out... Who she claims she's running against <laughs> next time. Well, well, and let me just tell everybody that uh, Harvey J.K. will be I'm helping myself, and you keep muting me. I, I, we uh, we will be talking. <laughs> Harvey Professor Harvey J.K. will help me talk with Lauren Ashcraft. Then at, after that, we'll talk to the Washington Post, Selene Olin, and then down with tyrannies. Howie Klein joins us. We. Believe in democracy, not oligarchy. (laughs) Today, we say to the private health insurance companies, whether you like it or not, the United States will join every other major country on earth and guarantee health care to all people as a right. Health care is a human right, not a privilege. And together, we will pass a Medicare for all single-payer program. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Coming up, we have Howie Klein and Helene Olin and Dr. Harriet Fraud. But first, Professor Harvey J.K. is about to introduce us to Lauren Ashcroft, who's running for New York's 12th Congressional District. I, I'm embarrassed to say that I thought New York's 12th Congressional District was Jerry Nadler's, but he is a large man. He could spill over to the 12th, but apparently I was wrong 
Professor Harvey J.K., tell us about Lauren Ashcroft and why you think she should be our next congressperson from New York's 12th Congressional District. Well, I'm, I'm not going to tell the story itself, but I like her personal story, her family background, her politics, her commitments. Um, I also enjoy the fact that she's a comedian. And, and just now, as I was just going over her story, I found out she's a foodie. Uh, <laughs> now, I'm not a foodie because our food choices in Green Bay don't compare to the food choices in uh, New York City. But I like people who like food. Okay. <laughs> So I actually would like to the, sort of move into sort of finding out from Lauren herself more about her. But I, I do want to say that there are a few people around the country that I really noticed in this campaign. Who, and I like to think of them as insurgent Democrats. And given the Democrats' performance over these too many years, the centrism that prevails, the, the ignoring, ignoring of really important questions and the need for progressive answers. Uh, Lauren is one of those people I really thought I'd like to get behind, and thus I, I'm glad we're able to have her on here today. <laughs> Lauren, you. when is the primary? It is June 23rd, so it is coming right up, and we are 100% getting out the vote right now, putting up these posters all around the district. And, June, are uh, we certain that it's June 23rd? Y yes. And yeah. what is the congressional district you're running for? Yeah. So it's New York's 12th congressional district, and it's the east side of Manhattan, Roosevelt Island, uh, western Queens, so parts of Astoria, Long Island City, and north Brooklyn, so parts of um, uh, Greenpoint and Williamsburg. So it's a circle around the East River, and uh, it's it's a really incredibly diverse district, also incredibly working class, and um, we are struggling. It's over 72% renters in this district, and a lot of um, New Yorkers were excluded from any kind of assistance um, through the coronavirus pandemic, and we just don't have the ability to pay rent right now. So um, right in the epicenter of everything happening here and um, – We've lost so many lives, and also it's it's very scary to see the the police state that we live in, and we're seeing it personally, just like looking out our window and being right in the middle of of all of it. So, who is the congresswoman who represents this district right now? And is yeah, she a Democrat? So, is she a Democrat? Yes, I am primarying in the Democratic primary. Uh, her name is Carolyn Maloney. She's been in office for twenty seven years and is kept in office by corporate PAC money. And I am running a grassroots campaign against her, only powered by people, and very, very honored to have the support of Professor Harvey J.K. and uh, so many people across the United States and in the district because uh, our average donations are about $16 a piece right now. It fluctuates a little bit every single day. But we have the most small dollars in the race and backed by organizations like Brand New Congress and New York Progressive Action Network, Long Island Activists, and just um, really, really recognized on the ground for the community organizing um, that a lot of our team's background entails. So if you have some American citizens listening, we have American citizens listening to us all over the world. They are 
able to donate. If you're not an American citizen, you can't donate. If they go to laurenashcroft.com, is there a place where they can donate money? Absolutely. And every dollar actually allows us to call 20 people. Uh, we use a dialer and we have volunteers that have shifts uh, almost every single day. So we get on this dialer together as a team and it dials for us. It costs about five cents a dial. So one dollar truly makes a difference to our campaign, especially now. Okay. And every call we make could end up a vote. Well, go to laurenashcroft.com. She's been vetted by Professor Harvey J.K. That should be good enough for listeners to this show. If a candidate is vetted by Professor Harvey J.K., she should be going to Congress. So go to laurenashcroft.com and give her money. What is your problem with uh, Maloney, Congresswoman Maloney? She's a Democrat. Yeah, a lot of people are. Um, We... You know, we've had the same representative for 27 years, and through these 27 years, our district has been allowed to become the third most unequal district in the entire country. And uh, I, I see with my own eyes, you know, we're home to Billionaire Row, but also home to thousands of people sleeping on the street every single night. And I've been to people's homes, knocked on their doors, and they don't know how to pay rent. And that was before the crisis. Was Maloney for, this was a local issue, but do you think she would have supported Jeff Bezos building that Amazon monstrosity? Oh, she absolutely was on board with that. Okay, so when you debate her, she's going to say, I was in favor of Amazon coming to New York City, and you were opposed to it, and yet you claim about, you claim, and complain that there's income inequality. I was bringing jobs here. <laughs> uh, that's a great question. I'm for something like a federal jobs guarantee, which would guarantee people a livable wage and the ability to leave jobs that they morally disagree with, which a lot of us have had to do to pay our rent. And I also uh, would like to point out, you know, Congresswoman Maloney, she didn't understand why people were protesting jobs. And she went on news and had said that exact quote. And, you know, I've created a relationship. She didn't understand why people would be protesting jobs jobs that were coming to New York City through the Jeff Bezos pipeline. Yes, and I've had the privilege of speaking with Chris Smalls, who was the Amazon worker who went on strike and is fighting very hard. He got fired, right, for trying to organize? Yes. And they did intel, and the lawyers for Amazon did, did research into him and try to portray him as mentally unstable. Yeah, I mean, they'll try anything, and he's an amazingly um, brave and passionate spokesperson for people he worked with every single day. And I've had the privilege of of meeting with him twice virtually, and, you know, he's protesting because his co-workers' lives were at risk every single day, and infections were spreading around the warehouse that he was working in and earning his living at, and uh, and Amazon didn't care. We also saw uh, Jeff Bezos himself, you know, asking for donations so that his his workers could get paid leave. He's the richest person in the entire yeah, go world. Go on with that because David Pluff, who's one of the chief 
executives over at Amazon put Barack Obama in the White House, you know, one of those liberals. And he was on TV saying, hey, you know, if you're an Amazon worker and you're afraid of catching the virus, you you don't have to show up to work. We won't fire you. You won't get paid, but we won't fire you. So Jeff Bezos is asking, what, a GoFundMe campaign for his workers? Isn't is that how it works? It was it was like a donation site where workers could donate leave to each other or people like us could contribute to a fund that would pay for Amazon uh, workers benefits. Would you support is- a Justice Department that would break up Amazon? Yes, 100 percent. And I also support Amazon, Netflix, all of these huge corporations that have squeaked by without paying their fair share of taxes. They should pay their fair share. Who has done more damage to Main Street? The looters that we see on our TV right now or Jeff Bezos and the venture capitalists? Jeff Bezos. You're saying that, are you saying Jeff Bezos is, is looting the streets of, of, of America? Absolutely. You're saying that he's destroying Main Street, throwing bricks through, are you saying that metaphorically he's throwing bricks through the wall, the windows and the walls of Main Street America? Yeah, I mean, um, it's not just metaphorically, he's killing people. He's killing his workers. He is, he's not paying his fair share when he is the richest person in the world, set to become the world's first trillionaire, Mm -hmm. which I can't even wrap my head around how much money that is. Billionaire Row. Where is Billionaire Row? Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's in the Midtown East. Uh, an Upper East Side part of my district. And um, why aren't they marching down? Like, why aren't they marching on Beverly Hills and Alpine, New Jersey and, and Billionaire Row? Why don't they do that? I actually I saw that um, in Los Angeles, the very wealthy sections of the city were, uh, you know, home to the protests. So I, I don't think that I don't think that those specific places are being avoided. Um, but I think organizers definitely do look for places where large people, large uh, groups of people can gather sa- as safely as possible. Is AOC working with you? Uh, I mean, not officially. I've been privileged to meet her twice. Uh, I don't know if she actually remembers, but I would be honored to work with her if she's watching. Okay. Do you mind if I ask you how old you are? I am 31 years old. Okay. And have you ever run for elective office before? No. Okay. And being a comedian is identical to running for office? <laughs> uh, no. Uh, I, really? I, mean... I think it is. Don't you think <laughs> you, you kind of focus group audiences? And if, like, when you have a bit that works in front of an audience, you keep doing it. And I would think being a politician, you, you run some issues in front of the crowd and the things that gets most cheers. Then you go, oh, they're for a modern monetary theory. OK, <laughs> I'm going to put that into my. Can I interject? Sure, please. OK, I was just going to say that I think most politicians are like the jokes that comedians tell. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, I um, being a comedian certainly has helped to prepare me in multiple ways. There's some pretty thick skin. Um, Probably one of my most horrifying memories uh, being a comedian is performing to an audience of one 
while they read a book the entire time. So, uh, I, you know what? I'm ready to go into any room and, and tell them my thoughts. But the thing is, do you have stage um, fright when you go and speak in front of, like when you go to a nursing home and have to get votes? Do you have stage fright or is that all over from comedy? That's a great question. I actually have social anxiety. So that's why you're a comedian. Yes, yeah. Comedy's helped me to work through a lot of that. I remember the first time I ever opened mic somewhere, I was literally shaking. And now I pick up phones all day. I call hundreds of people a day, and it's fine. <laughs> so if you're listening to this, if you have anxiety yourself, just know really anything's possible. Okay, Professor Harvey JK, I have a question for Professor Harvey JK. Yeah. Now, you and I are about to go on the ice flow and be, you know, we're irrelevant. It's no longer us. Why would they not run Lauren Ashcroft for Congress? Why wouldn't the DCCC hear this? Well, I mean, in a, a rational, a rational political organization would say this is who should be representing I, I absolutely agree with you. And in fact, I happen to be in the middle of, I'll make this quick, reviewing John Nichols' new book, uh, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. And he, he actually traces the declension or the decline of the Democratic Party all the way back to 1944, which actually is also the high point of the Roosevelt administration in terms of the Economic Bill of Rights. But he points out that when the conservatives and the reactionaries that remained in the Democratic Party persuaded FDR to push Wallace out of the vice presidential uh, running mate seat in favor of Harry Truman, that everything since then has been a matter of struggling to try to recapture the Democratic Party. But over and over again, it's been in decline. And I was thinking about the fact, just quickly, I was thinking about the fact that in 2000, that the Democrats learned nothing from 2016. They didn't learn that you don't win by trying to be Republican. And that really it is the case that young people... Like, like Lauren and older folks who are running on the left, who are the insurgents of the Democratic Party, they actually represent the best tradition of the Democratic Party, which is the FDR tradition. If you look at what they're pushing for, they're looking to reclaim that tradition and turn it into a 20th century version of the Franklin Roosevelt administration. So I don't get it. It's, I really don't. Obviously, the money power has commanded the Democratic Party for too long. And what is Maloney thinking, candidate Lauren? What do you think, Maloney? Is, will she debate you? Yes, actually. Um, she is going to debate you twice. Oh wow! So, That's yes. well, good for good for her. Yeah, I I really do. I'm excited about it. Um, I have a lot of things to talk about. What, when with her. have you debated her yet? No, no. Um, we've had like a, like forums and panels, but not the actual opportunity to go after each other's platforms. Well, so, she does yeah. deserve some credit for that. Totally. When is the debate so we know when to watch it? Yep. So there are two. Um, June 8th is going to be hosted by Empire State Indivisible. Wow. And How so many people follow- are going to be on the dais? Um, uh, I, I hope a lot. We've been spreading the word. No, but how many then, candidates oh. in the debate? Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, so there are two other challengers other than myself. So it'll be four of us debating both, both times. Okay. And what are you going to, I, I don't want to, you'll show your hand, uh, I, I don't, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, what are you going to challenge her on? 
I mean, I, I get asked all the time, how dare I run against somebody with so much experience? And to me, let me talk about her experience because I have issues with it. Starting with, I used to work in the financial sector and wasn't able to leave until I uh, entered into a domestic partnership with my partner so that I could get health insurance. And so many people are stuck in this parasitic capitalist society trying to pay their rent. And I saw with my own eyes this corporate greed and how these huge corporations get prioritized over us every single day. And talk about tax incentives and corporate handouts, all of these Incentives go to these companies and they stay in the top echelon and become the CEO and senior executives bonuses and, and salary increases. Anyway, I saw that with my own eyes and I think back on, I'm a millennial and this is now the second major economic meltdown that I'm living through. Right. And I'm 31 years old and I have a huge issue with the fact that in 1993 she voted to dismantle the Glass-Steagall Act which left us wide open to the Great Recession. Yeah, uh, yes, sorry. She, her, her first year in office was 1993. Um, but she voted to dismantle the Glass-Steagall Act, which left room for the corruption, fraud, and parasitic nature of these huge banks that defrauded the American people and, and caused us to bail them out. Okay, let me ask you, because I live... I may or may not be voting. I don't want to tell you where I live, but you may or may not be uh, somebody I'm voting for. I, I've been walking around Manhattan for years going, who lives here? How is it possible that there's this much construction going on and all these high rises and it's empty? Now, they say the city never sleeps. You mm-hmm. can't. The bars are closed at like 10 o'clock in Manhattan. It's empty here. And sure enough, we're discovering that nobody really lives in Manhattan, that Wall Street figured out that, you know, we can diversify by just building and buying entire tranches of skyscrapers and leave them empty, then sell them to oligarchs overseas who don't pay any taxes. Manhattan is basically empty and they're they're just laundering money for oligarchs we know that so let me ask you when wall street threatens to move to newark i say go go empty it out (laughs) empty out get out of manhattan can you envision what new york city would look like if we told the oligarchs to get the f out of our city we would what lose our tax base what would happen if we if we really crack down on the greed down on the tip of Manhattan? Uh, so two things. You're so right. We actually have more vacant units than we do people without homes in New York City. So we we could easily provide homes to every single person who needed one tomorrow. But uh, we we have leaders that continuously choose not to. Right. And you don't have to have a Marxist revolution to change that. You can just alter the tax code Mm -hmm. to make sure that if you own a home that is not being rented and it's empty, you're going to 
it, we're going to make you know, it. It's going to be. We're going to make it prohibitive for you to have a home that's empty. Because totally. The, because by leaving it empty, that hurts the tax base. We need people living in these apartments because then they pay sales taxes, and they, if it's empty, there's no money coming in. It's just an investment for you. Yeah. And I mean, I look at people like my opponent who accept big real estate developer money. And I, it is why I'm a grassroots people powered candidate. And it's also why I'm opposing her is that's part of the problem is we have this cycle of money and power that just keeps feeding, you know, itself. And, uh, why, why haven't we changed the taxation laws around this problem? Probably because the real estate developers are paying our our politicians not to. What about and a speculation tax that they have? They have one in Great Britain, you know, like a penny on every share or at least every transaction you make to get put an end to the churning that goes on in the financial district. They just trade and sell stocks all day long. They don't create anything. They're just passing paper back and forth. Why not skim a penny? for the federal government off every financial transaction that takes place on Wall Street. How much money would we raise if we did that? They do it in Great Britain. Yeah. I'm, so at the federal level, one of the things I do love to talk about, and you already mentioned MMT, but the federal budget is just a list of our representatives' priorities. And so at the federal level, when we when we see things like Medicare for All not being included or uh, tuition-free higher education or the Green New Deal and things to make sure that the future life of this planet can survive. Um, we haven't made the cut. People mm-hmm. don't make the cut in the federal budget over and over and over. And if we spend more than we tax back at the federal level, nothing bad happens. There's not some deficit boogeyman that comes and like takes the country's Netflix away. Nothing happens. But if we don't spend the money to make sure that everyone has what they need to survive, especially during a pandemic, especially during a crisis like this, we, we will pay the price for decades and decades to come. So we continue to make irresponsible decisions at the federal level. And it's we should we should tax Wall Street. We should tax these corporations. We should tax billionaires their fair share for sure. And that will help to close the wealth gap. And we should cut military spending and we should cut these corporate handouts because it's the right thing to do. But we don't have to tax to pay for anything. We just have to realize that we haven't made the cut because we're not the priority. Do you think the Federal Reserve has too much power and that the, the trajectory of our economy should be determined by Congress and not a couple of bankers over at the Federal Reserve. It seems to me that the economy is stimulated by which direction the Federal Reserve decides to move interest rates when in the past, when, you know, Professor Harvey J.K. talks about Roosevelt and Johnson, we used to move the economy uh, through Congress, through fiscal spending. Mm. There was a time when Congress determined how much inflation we should have and how much stimulus we should have. What happened, Professor? When did we just abdicate control of our economy to basically 
one guy, the chairman of the Federal well, I'm not Reserve. I'm an economic historian, but I assume it goes back to the 1970s. Okay. Right. Well, you know, Helene Olin just Helene Olin just joined us, so she's she's in the next segment. I, I purposely, I purposely did this so that Professor Harvey J.K. could see that Helene Olin is coming up next, and maybe I'll get one last angry email from you complaining that Helene Olin isn't on the show enough. And I agree with you, but I so I pur- purposely scheduled Helene so you would see her coming up on the screen. Uh, but uh, you're, so you're not a uh, economic historian, so I'm I would not ass- an economic historian. But the financialization of American life really took off during the 1970s. So I would assume that the power of the Federal Reserve increased dramatically, and basically under Jimmy Carter, the Federal Reserve was called into into play in a way that paved the way for Ronald Reagan. Right. I don't want to keep the Washington Post, Elaine Olin, also with public seminar waiting. But before... One last question I'd like to... Since you monopolized the conversation, David, I have (laughs) one question that I really do want to ask Lauren. So let's suppose you win, which I hope happens. What's the top of your legislative agenda? Yes. So at the center of a lot of our problems is this big money in politics. So if we look at why we're still reliant on the fossil fuel industry, why we still have such a broken for-profit healthcare system, why we've allowed big pharma to cause people to die because they're just, uh, you know, charging thousands of dollars for prescription medication that people need to survive. Why haven't we had true criminal justice reform? Why have we gotten to this point when, when we protest police brutality, we see more police brutality? All of these things could have been resolved a lot sooner, but our politicians are being bought by corporate interests and lobby money. So I am for public financing of federal elections and uh, also really do support the idea of something along the lines of democracy dollars um, that people could use to donate to candidates that refuse that kind of money. And ultimately, we do need to end Citizens United and make sure that corporations don't have um, the same rights that we have, except more. They don't even have a limit about how much they're allowed to give to campaigns. They can throw unlimited amounts of money at my opponent, and they certainly do. Um, but individuals do have limits. So all of that needs to change, and we will see a lot of the urgent change that we need happen a lot faster whenever we get that influence out of it that's stopping everything. That's you, great. Yes. Yeah, uh, before you go, I don't want to keep Helene Olin waiting. We're, we're talking with Lauren Ashcraft. Go to laurenashcraft.com. Give her money. She's been vetted by mm-hmm. Professor Harvey J.K. If you're a listener to this show and you're an American citizen, go to laurenashcroft.com and give her money. She's been cleared and vetted by Professor Harvey J.K. Professor Harvey J.K., you know that I don't like color. You know, I I don't like, in a story, I don't like color. I'm not interested in people's backgrounds. I want to know what you believe in and what you're going to do. But you say, and we fought this out Friday night at the town hall, but you say that Lauren has a personal story that captured your heart. So what is it? What What is it about Lauren? that? Well, it goes back to her grandparents, okay? 
her grandfather on one side was a was a coal miner. Okay, her grandmother on the other side married her grandfather while he was serving in the air force in Japan. They came back to the United. Right? If I get where have I mixed the two together? No, it's you're they right. Came back to the states. I mean, it's just there are these. There's this family ties to what I would consider real, real working class life and an understanding of hard times that need to be addressed in solidarity. And that's that's the kind of stuff that captured my my heart. Lauren, what, what, Lauren, what is what does it pay to be a, a congressperson? I think it, I like what the salary is. Yeah. I think it's one hundred seventy five thousand dollars per year. And, and could you live on one hundred seventy five thousand dollars a year? I actually, I think the pay should be less. I've, I've never made six figures in my life. Yeah. So, so, so if, if, if that job, if you're a person who thinks that job, that salary isn't enough, then you shouldn't take the job, right? You should go look for other work. There, there's no law demanding that you have to be a congressperson. So you could live on $175,000 a year, correct? I I have lived on much less. Would you make a promise that if you were, you know, when you get elected, that when you leave, you will not have had any other income than being a congressperson? Yeah, for sure. That and you would donate think- any book money you make, any stock transactions, you would you would just save your salary. I think I'm going to be pretty busy. Um, trying to fight for the people of New York's 12 congressional districts. So, okay. no, I can't imagine um, having the time to write a book anytime soon. LaurenAshcroft.com. Go there, give her money. Thank you, Professor Harvey J.K. When we come back, Helene Olin. I want you to meet Lauren, Helene. Thank you. One, <laughs> one second. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Elaine Olin is a contributor to Post Opinions. She's a columnist for the Washington Post, author of Pound Foolish, exposing the dark side of the personal finance industry, co-author of the Index Card, why personal finance doesn't have to be complicated. And she'll tell us about her work over at Public Seminar and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. Welcome back, Helene Olin. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for doing this, as always. And uh, if anybody has any questions for Helene, please raise your hand. Let me lower everybody's hands to make sure. Yes, they're all lowered. So if you have any questions for Helene Olin, I want to talk about two pieces that you wrote over at The Washington Post. One is entitled, Trust Donald Trump to Make Henry Ford's Virulent Anti-Semitism Relevant Again. 
Yes. And we're in a pandemic. Why have we stopped talking about Medicare for all? Jesus Christ, why have we stopped talking about Medicare for all? We're in a pandemic, and I understand you have some uh, news for us. Well, I'm urging everybody to go get tested for COVID antibodies, especially if you live in a place like New York where it's been fairly rampant, because I did indeed come back positive for COVID antibodies last week. Uh, I was sick in March, so I wasn't exactly shocked, but it's still a relief to know. Uh, it would be horrible to think I'd been that sick and it wasn't COVID, frankly. So yeah, let's um, that review. Was, that was like a really depressing like thought, to be honest. So I was really psyched when it came back positive. <laughs> it's like winning the lottery. It's like, <laughs> I'm getting on the subway. <laughs> this is important. <laughs> this is important. Now I have to be careful with you because you are a legitimate journalist. You write for the Washington Post, and you are well-respected. I can't wear my tin foil hat with you. Mm-hmm. But when did you think you had COVID-19? Within a week of getting sick. I have to say the first week I was kind of in denial. I probably shouldn't have been, but was. And, and so when was that? Uh, early March. And I, by the second week in March, though, I was beginning to suspect something funky was going on. Uh, without, like, getting into the Jewish hypochondria thing, it really felt like I never felt like anything I had before. Colds have a tendency to feel a certain way. Flus feel a certain way. This didn't feel like either. Um, and I could never quite figure it out. Um, and then, of course, I started to get all the little symptoms that they talk about. But the thing is, is I was actually getting them before they were really being talked about. So I didn't think that much about them. But like at one point while I was sick, my husband asked me to smell some milk to see if it was okay. And I smelled it and couldn't smell a thing. And I thought, gee, that's kind of weird. I didn't really think about it at the time because I just, oh, maybe my nose is more stuffed than I think. Wow. And so then... I, um, you know, I had the heart palpitations, a few other little weird things like that. And I never was that sick. I mean, I had 99 degree fever for a straight week, but I wasn't that sick. I was mostly really tired. And I was very tired for several weeks. And in fact, if you go back and look, um, there's one week I only wrote once for the Washington Post. I mean, I just couldn't work. Right. And not because I was feeling that ill, because I was just that tired. So anyway, I kind of had thought, oh, I need to deal with this and I need to deal with this. But I finally went and got tested last week. And sure enough, it came back positive. So anyway, everybody go get tested. You could get you could find out that you've had this already. And of course, I'm supposed to give you all the caveats. Nobody knows how long the antibodies last. And, you know, it's not 100 percent sure that it protects me from getting it tomorrow. But the fact is, is, you know, you still feel like you won the lottery. Yeah. So we're doing a COVID-19 town hall tonight with the irritable immunologist who is on the front lines looking for a cure or treatment for COVID-19. He won't tell us his real name. And Henry Hakamaki, who is a wunder kid. He is uh, working in Germany when he's not quarantining, uh, fighting Ebola. He's a I think it's called immunobiologist, I think. But uh, we're doing a COVID-19 town hall. And no matter how many times I ask this question, it goes through one ear and out the other. The antibodies test, I can't remember. Do we know how accurate the antibodies tests are? 
No, we really don't. And there's all sorts of them floating around. So it's really hard to say. But my understanding is that the one I took is more likely to give you a false negative than a false positive. I see. So, and um, that's, um, you know, that's where it is, basically. So. All right. Before we get to Donald Trump, and I want to find out what's going on over a public seminar, you do feel better. You say you're relieved. You feel you've won the lottery because you feel you've had the worst of it. And now you're immune to COVID-19. Is that, that, that well, you got me if I'm immune or not. But right. Are you being yeah. asked? You don't have to answer this question. Are you being asked to donate? No, I weigh, under 110, I weigh under 110 pounds, though. So my understanding is, is that nobody would take blood from me anyway. Okay. If you weigh under 100, I know that with blood donations, they won't take me. And the lack of testing in this country this is conjecture. Do you think we're going to discover that we all, most of us have these antibodies? Or what do you think? No, I think in New York we're going to find out it's a large minority, is my guess. I mean, we already know it's somewhere between 20 and 25%. That was true a month ago. Okay. So the chances are the number has gone up since then. But what it is, I don't know. Okay, so let me ask um, you a difficult question, one that I wrestle with, and it's trying to understand the other side. You know, I, I I hate Donald Trump. I hate Mike Pence. I hate the Republicans. When I see them kind of suggesting that we may have to go with herd immunity and keep older people safe. Can you see how somebody like Boris Johnson or uh, Cummings, the other guy, the people who test positive for this go through it? say it's one of the worst things they've ever been through, but they still kind of believe in going for the herd immunity? Do you do you have any insight now into what? Not really. I mean, I, I guess the only insight I have comes from living in New York where people seem to be really tired of the shutdown and were frankly not obeying it very well even right. before the past week's um, protests and related issues with them. So my suspicion is is that we're not going to have a long-term shutdown from here in, not because it's the right or wrong thing to do, but because I think there's a limit to how long you're going to be able to ask people to adhere to it. It's fairly clear to me that most people are not adhering to it in any um, disciplined manner at this point. Everybody seems to have their excuse for why they don't have to do this part of it or that part of it. And I don't quite know you know, how you solve that. And I think the answer is probably you don't, Um, especially in a country like the United States, where it's become increasingly politicized, where we have people who don't even seem to believe it was even necessary at all. And, you know, so New York's doing this and Florida's doing that and Colorado's doing this. And you literally can go from town to town and have different rules of what you can do. Like in California, each county has a different rule about what you can do on the beach, which is my one of my favorite absurd examples. So, you know, I, I just think at a certain point we're going to have to be honest about that. And I think it kind of stinks because it's not like an ideal outcome in any way, shape, or form. But the chances are 
you know, that we're not going to have a vaccine anytime soon, by which I mean the next three months, next six months. And then you start asking, what do we do next? And can you really keep kids out of school for a year and a half? Um, online working, online school is not working. I know I have children, so I can see it in action. Um, and, and I'm in a fairly middle class house. So what about people who are not, you know, you know, in that, you know, ability to supervise home learning? I mean, it, or educated who yeah. speak English. I mean, I mean, it, yeah. the absurdities go on and on and on. And, I, I think we're going to kind of have to have a reckoning as a society with that. And what's frustrating is, is, of course, we can't have that conversation right now because we have Donald Trump in charge. And Donald Trump is clearly, you know, work, walking around with some combination of an autocrat and anarchic, nihilistic set. I mean, it's the most strangest combination I think any of us have ever seen, and that's a very polite way to put it. Um, Where, you know, he's clearly trying to ride this to have more control, but Donald Trump has forever reminded me of the kid in one of my son's nursery school classes who was really angry and would walk around breaking everybody else's blocks up. (laughs) You know, know, kids those age, you know, they do all these block things, and then wondered why all the other kids didn't want to play with him. Right, right. And that seems to be his approach to this disaster and so there's no real way to have a reasonable conversation about what can and can't be done and what's reasonable to expect from people and what's not reasonable for to expect from people and what the government can do to make things better especially financially and what they can't do because they won't do what they can do and that doesn't seem to be um, changing at this point with Mitch McConnell controlling the Senate. And again, this is something that really needs to be discussed. What do we do? You know, this sort of idea, and I keep using the schools as an example because I'm obviously dealing with it, but the idea that school budgets are going to get cut, yet kids can go back to school, but they're going to have less kids in a class is a basic math problem that actually does not work. Right. So I'm like trying to figure this out and I don't really have an answer for anybody listening to this, but it's stuff that needs to be talked about. I have a couple of questions I want to ask you now, state budgets. Some of these state budgets start in July, as I understand it. Right. Right. And in New York right now, we're forecasting a 20% cut in the education budget. Um, A friend of mine who lives in a wealthy Massachusetts suburb discovered that, 300 teachers and other school support uh, school support personnel received potential layoff notices in the past week because you know the law is that you have to give people notice and and states part of a mass layoff when this is an unfair question to ask but all of a sudden states have to have balanced budgets states always had to have balanced budgets always yes states can't print money and but they can they, they can do bond they can borrow, issues. They can borrow, but that is part of the balancing. Um, oh, I see. So they can issue bonds to right. pay for. Right, but it's like in New York that doesn't seem to be on the table. But yes, you can do that. And to be fair to the states, because you do ultimately have to balance the budget, there are long-term consequences to bond issues. Now, there probably wouldn't be that severe at the moment because interest rates are so low. But the fact of the matter is, is because of, say, bond issues that were done, you know, decades ago, 
Um, I believe somebody would need to double check my math on this and the numbers, but I believe, you know, it's somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of the New York subway budget actually goes to paying bond interest right now. And that's actually been part of the problem with service in New York is that they haven't been able, because the the amount goes up every year, you can't, they can't afford you know, to fix things, supposedly. Or at least that's the excuse that's been given. So let's try to have this conversation. I don't know if we can. If Barack Obama were president right now, and he screwed up, you know, they say that had we shut the country down like two weeks earlier, there'd be, I don't know the number, but there wouldn't be 110,000 dead Americans right now. Barack Obama... I have many issues with him, but he does represent good governance, which is one of the few strong points of the Democratic Party. They do govern. So what would good governance look like with Barack Obama and, yes, Joe Biden? You know, crucify me. We have, you know, you know, Ron Klain, Ron Klain was Joe Biden's, uh, I think it was his chief of staff, his vice president, then he ran the Ebola response. He was the Ebola czar, and he did a great job. So if the, you know, presidents screw up. So Obama screws up. He didn't shut the country down soon enough, which would have been an impossibility for him to do, to, to shut it down on time because of Mitch McConnell. And now we're looking at this pandemic. What would a... And, and having the antibodies, what is a reasonable discussion? What What, what is a... Con- well, first of all, Barack Obama could not have shut down the country because this is the issue. Donald Trump can't open or shut the country either. We're a, we're a federalist government. It's right. state by state. Right. So you're reliant on the leadership. And there's no question you would have had, you know, a quicker shutdown because of the leadership, because you would have had leadership supporting it most likely. Okay, right. We're talking right. about a hypothetical. Right. So most likely you would have more support for this. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we don't know. You still would have had the insane political politicalization that we have now. There's no question about that. That was something that marked Obama's entire tenure. That was, for the most part, not his fault at all. I would say about 99% not his fault. And so that probably would not have changed. But I think the other thing that would have made a difference is it would have felt more in control. And I think this is an important point to make, especially in light of the events of the past several days, that there's a feeling nobody is in charge and there's a feeling nobody is in charge for the very simple reason. Nobody is in charge that where the person nominally in charge is a person who doesn't prepare, doesn't let take briefings, or if he does take briefings, doesn't pay attention, gets up and says incendiary things on a regular basis, you know, acts on impulse, seemed to be convinced he could do positive thinking out of an epidemic, could market his way out of an epidemic, could lie his way out of an epidemic, and has shown no ability to rise to the occasion whatsoever and speak for the United States. He is throwing blame around. He is throwing fuel on a fire right now. He is... You know, he is incapable of telling people to calm down and come together as one to fight back and to take appropriate action. 
And what, you know, what we can do at that point becomes a state-by-state issue. If there's no federal guidance on mitigation and what the best thing you should do is, the idea that you're going to have this happen by state-by-state-by-state becomes somewhat ludicrous, given Mm -hmm. that it's the United States. Is he rope-a-doping? I was going to ask this of my listeners. I mean, this is conjecture, but he's down there in the bunker, and I'm thinking... We, we don't like how do we know that? Why are they telling us that? And I'm thinking, is he, you know, he and Steve Bannon, are they rope doping and trying to create, you know, take a couple of hits and then be justified for coming in strong? I mean, do you worry about that, that the, that he's got something up his sleeve? No, I don't think Trump's capable of having anything up his sleeve. I think that's the really, you know awful thing about him in a way. By the way, I should mention that noise you hear is it's 7 o'clock in Manhattan and we are thanking the healthcare workers by banging pots and pans instead of paying them a livable wage. That's how we do things. You're hearing hearing it. My neighborhood is really big on cheering for the workers. Um, It's really great because we have all the people outside the bars, not social distancing, joining in the cheering. Um, And you do get the, I I try to go out there for that. Uh, You do get the the chills from that. If there is something. So, but The um, you're right, though. Basically, it's you know, pay them better and then cheer. Um, that's the point I'm trying to make. Um, Trump has no sleeves, okay? Would he try to use this? Absolutely, I'm sure he'll come up with some plan on the fly to use this, and he might be successful or he might not. Uh, I do think the looting this weekend probably scared a lot of people, and I, you know, I can understand that. It's something of a rather disturbing thing to have seen happen. And the, no question in my mind, he'll try to go for that. Mm-hmm. Will he succeed? I don't know. We've got a long time between now and November. Lots can happen. This could get, the disease could get a lot worse. The disease could recede. Doubtful, but you never know. Um, you know, Biden could, you know, start doing appearances or people could, on the other hand, say, gee, where's Biden? Why won't he come out and talk to people in person? Mm-hmm. You don't really know what's going to happen in the next several months. And I and I'm, I tend to be somebody who likes to predict elections, but even I'm at this point throwing up my hands. The only thing I will say is that I do believe people mostly vote on economics at the end of the day. And this is not looking good for Trump at the moment. <laughs> Right. Just Unless enough people making big money in the stock market to compensate for all the people who've lost their jobs. Right. You know, you've written several books about personal finance. You know how this stuff works. So can they turn this economy back on? I mean, what it I walked around Manhattan last night <laughs> and young people, they don't have the masks on. They're gathering They're They're protesting, uh, which, um, you know. God bless them, but and they were wearing masks. So is the consensus, let's turn the economy back on and live with a certain amount of deaths? Because, as Donald Trump says, don't let the cure be worse than the disease. I mean, poverty and a, and a non-existent economy, some would say, is as bad or worse than COVID-19. I mean, at some point... 
Americans have to have a discussion of doing a cost-benefit analysis, how many lives are worth turning the economy back on. And you, as you say, we can't have that discussion in America. But it does feel in blue Manhattan, they're saying, turn it back on, right? Doesn't that seem to be... I said, I think it's going on. As you look at polls and everybody, you know, you see large majority support for saying, you know, I support the shutdowns, right? We should safety first. And then you see cell phone data tracking of people's behavior, which is a pretty good proxy for how they really are behaving. It's like, you know, when Nielsen, the, the only way I could describe it is, do you remember Nielsen when they would rank, would rank you know, do the rankings for TV shows. Mm -hmm. We'd have people do diaries and then the technology advanced so that Nielsen could actually see what people were watching versus what they were putting in their diaries. Right. PBS's ratings went like this. Right. (laughs) And people, I just pointed down. And, you know, and real junk TV went like that. Yeah, yeah. And, And I think you're seeing something of a similar effect. So to bring that conversation to the next point is... Do I think you can bring the economy back to where it was in March? Absolutely not, not at this point. On the other hand, the question becomes of what sort of bounce back can you get? Can things be better than they are now or better enough that people will think Trump has solved the problem? While on one hand, it seems almost absurd to think Trump can solve anything, including, you know, a crossword puzzle for a first grader, the... (laughs) It's certainly not outside the realm of possibility that people will come to think that. I do think the longer this continues and the longer, you know, the Republicans refuse to give, you know, real aid, I think you're going to, it's less and less likely. I mean, if the Republicans are going to stand on their deficit, screw the blue states high horse and refuse to give adequate money to the states to make up for what has already happened, you can pretty much guarantee that won't happen because you're going to have a round of massless state layoffs coming out of the state governments and the municipal governments within the next two months. So that's the argument against it. Yeah. We're talking with Helena Owen. She writes for the Washington Post and she is, I, I always get the title wrong, but she's one of the mucky mucks over at Public Seminar. And she's senior managing editor. Senior managing editor. Everybody should go to Public Seminar. It's really interesting. It's really interesting. So we had a series this past weekend you would really like, which was um, before the, this, uh, the protests happened, which we're now having a bunch of people write about, by the way, so those will come up in the next few days. We did a whole series. We had commissioned people about the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, non-endorsement of Joe Biden. And um, people for pro and con on that one. Mm-hmm. And I would urge everybody to check that out because it's really fascinating Think pieces on the thinking of both the people involved in that decision and why they made it. And, of course, some of the older DSA people who had been in the organization back in the 60s and 70s and why they felt it was wrong. Okay. And we've got it. I believe we have six pieces up about it. It's fantastic. Publicseminar.com. Org or dot com? Google um, Public Seminar. Google it. I yeah, do. before you go. I think it's dot com. Okay, before you go, I don't want to keep Howie Klein from Down with Tyranny waiting. And I would like the two of you to meet one another. You would make a, be an interesting panel discussion to have the two of you um, on the show together. You have a piece over at the Washington Post entitled, We're in a Pandemic. Why have we stopped talking about Medicare for All? You just tested for antibodies. You have antibodies. How much does it cost to test? We've been told 
that at the moment nothing because the insurance companies are supposed to pay for a lot of it. So and if you have COVID, it, well, actually, I take that back. The COVID testing, not the antibodies, um, but COVID-related testing, they're supposed to pay for. Um, the insurance companies seem to be covering a lot of this. I think in part because it's a publicity thing. You know, it's a way of dampening down some of the expectations around this. You know, which is, you know, we don't want people to run up huge bills looking to see if they had COVID or not. But I, oh, I excuse think me for one second. So they're not covering antibodies testing. And that seems to be more questionable. I think they mostly are. But, you know, they can decide I'll cover this antibody test versus that antibody test. Hmm. The, so surprise um, bills are coming your way and you have to know the difference between... Well, well, there's bigger issues with this, right? Like, here's a perfect example. They'll say, oh, well, co- you know, the, as part of the CARES Act, they have to cover COVID expenses. This is, you know, legislated. But on the other hand, what if you go to the hospital and it turns out you test negative for COVID? Do they right. have to cover that? Right. Probably not. So then it becomes a whole other issue. And that's where you start getting into dicey territory. Right, right. Well, Helene Olin is a columnist for the Washington Post. She's author of Pound Foolish, Exposing the Dark Side of the Personal Finance Industry. Buy this book. Go buy Pound Foolish, Exposing the Dark Side of the Personal Finance Industry. This is why Helene is on the show. I read that book and begged her to come on. She's also co-author of the Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to be Complicated, and uh, go to public seminar and see her work. And congratulations on your antibodies, Helene. Thank you. Can Thank you, you. Can you stay on the line for one second? I'd like sure. you to meet Howie Klein. Thank you. Let's go to Los Angeles, where Howie Klein is standing by. He is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. They raise money for progressive candidates all around America, some socialists. And he writes Down with Tyranny, which is a required reading. How are you, Howie Klein? You're in Los Angeles. I am. I live here, and I'm fine. Thank you for asking. How are you? I uh, may or may not have a child who you may or may not have met, who may or may not have been out there uh, in Santa Monica and uh, protesting, uh, and uh, had, he had some. Inter- he may or may not have had some interesting stories to tell me. Have you been out on the streets? No. How is Gil Garcetti's son doing? Well, you know, I'm getting the feeling that a lot of these uh, executives aren't really um, leaders, that they're more like middle-level managers. And I'm, I'm not real happy with, with any of them. I mean, Garcetti has done a few good things that were really good things. And uh, mostly he's been slow. Uh, and the city, because he was slow, the city is suffering uh, mildly right now uh, with, I mean, and, the, and the county and the surrounding areas. 
they closed down. They waited too long to close down and to require masks. And because of that, the numbers are too high. The, uh, the numbers in California are tremendous. I mean, the last few days, they, they had the most numbers of any state in the country. And I remember being so proud that California was, had so few people. I mean, they were, they were, it was, California was a joy, but that was really because of the Bay Area counties, the six Bay Area counties around San Francisco and San Jose. They all closed down real fast. Like before the, the governor gave them permission, they didn't care what he said. They just closed down, and their numbers are very low. Compared to Los Angeles and San Diego and Orange County, the numbers in Southern California and Riverside are, are dreadful. They're dreadful, and we're not even talking about that because of what's going on in the streets. So, oh, you're talking about the that thing, yeah, yeah. And what um, are your what are your thoughts on the distraction uh, or the distraction? Well, it is a distraction from COVID. No, I wrote a story uh, today about how. Um, when Harvey Milk, uh, after Harvey Milk got killed, the guy who assassinated him was a guy named um, Dan, Dan White. White. And the night that Dan White was found, uh, you know, basically he got a slap on the wrist. Uh, this is going to lead somewhere really bad. But anyway, uh, there was a uh, there was something that's now called the White Knight Riots. So the so people were were, de- were not demonstrating because of the mayor George Moscone, although people liked him. I liked him. Uh, everyone liked them. But they weren't demonstrating because of him. They were out demonstrating because of Harvey Milk, who's a historic figure, the first gay man elected to anything in the United States, the first openly gay man. So there were, so there were big, the demonstration started with 500 people that wanted to, you know, light a candle and march silently, but that wasn't going to go. And by the time everyone got to City Hall, there were 5,000 people mostly out for blood. And there was a huge riot. And uh, I don't want to necessarily take credit, but I'm about to. Uh, my friends and I, uh, who were from the punk rock scene rather than from the gay Castro scene, uh, turned over the first police car of the night, let it, lit it on fire, and we uh, we turned over several others before the people got the idea that that's a cool thing to do. And we, you know, helped to make sure that we, we helped to uh, um, discomfort the police greatly. Uh, several dozen of them wind up in the hospital. And, and the thing that I'm getting at is that sometimes violence works. I know, you know, nonviolence is the thing and it's cool and it's better. But I'll tell you something. The, L- the San Francisco Police Department had been harassing and brutalizing gay people for decades and it ended that night. It ended that night. So, so you have to, you don't ask, you have to take respect you don't ask for respect you have to take respect is what you're saying yeah. that's right and there there are definitely bad people out there who are looting and you know I, I when i talk to people who have no iq and who are just morons who repeat what they hear on fox or rush limbaugh we're all saying the same thing this is all about looting this is a party that kind of stuff which is a shame that you know that they're getting an opportunity to say that and they say it well you know and they say it and they say it and they say it but the fact of the matter is, is that is, is a small minority. The same kind of, you know, probably there's, and there are also good police who are marching with, with the demonstrators and that who are sympathetic to the demonstrators and know that there are bullies and pigs inside of the uh, police departments across America. And those are, you know, good policemen. And it, it's a shame that this has to happen and that there are, you know, then, you know, and people are judging by the worst policemen and then they're judging by the worst, uh, the worst of, of the demonstrators. 
the fact of the matter is, is that the worth of the policemen is a problem because they're being paid taxpayer dollars to brutalize and bully people. The worst of the demonstrators are doing a terrible thing and are doing a disservice to what I assume they believe in, uh, which, which is uh, ending racial inequality in this country. Right. But uh, looting doesn't do any good. When I said that, uh, you know, it, it was a legitimate thing and a useful thing and a, something that worked to go and attack the police and city hall in San Francisco, and that and and it had good results. I was um, I wasn't talking about anyone looting. That didn't happen. There was yeah. no there was no no one broke. A, people burned police cars. People beat the shit out of policemen, but nobody looted. Nobody broke a store window. That wasn't what this. That wasn't what it was about. It was about gaining respect and ending the systemic brutality of the uh, the San Francisco Police Department towards gay people. And it worked. And the Stonewall riots, were they violent towards the police in New York? Um, I, th I think the police were violent. And then the, the I wasn't around for that. I read about it. The, the Stonewall people, uh, you know, fought back, which shocked the police because, you know, they had never fought back before. Mm -hmm. And 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 the fighting the people who who fought back the hardest were the drag queens and the transvestites and the transsexuals. Those are the people who really gave the police a hard time, uh, and and that was the last place they were expecting. You know, you, they might expect some you know leather guy to, to fight them, but they weren't. They were hiding under the chair while the uh, a guy dressed up as a you know as a woman with a beard was, was you know bashing them. Right. So, you know, I have always said about the Westboro Baptist Church, which I don't believe is on the level. I think they're provocative. I mean, to show up at a military family's funeral with a sign that says God hates facts. It's horrible to do that to a soldier's family. However, it takes balls to do that. That You have to say that they they. They have the courage of their convictions. And when I was watching the streets last night, the looting obviously is wrong. It's not as bad as the looting that Bain Capital has done to those same That's malls. Right. But looting is bad. It's it's a bad visual. But they're stealing. And it doesn't help to achieve legitimate ends. Right. I'm going to be careful here. But um, one could say that attacking a police car, spray painting it, setting on fire, setting a police precinct on fire in response to the murder of an innocent black man uh, is one could say that it uh, is appropriate and courageous. I think around the bush. I don't know why. Because I don't well, want to advocate... I, one could say, how about it should happen? And it's a good thing that it's happening. How about that one? Well, I'm not going to no say looting. that. Attacking pol uh, police, police is, is a much better thing to do than looting. I'm not going to say that. I, 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 I've had conversations... I said it for you. Don't okay. Worry. So that when I hear that the police are outnumbered in America... When you hear ex-police officers 
saying there's a reason cops are scared right now because they're outnumbered. I think, good, the cops should be scared. That's a healthy democracy. We should outnumber the cops. However, I don't think we should outarm them. That's the problem. I think we have a problem with too many guns in this country. And it's making me nervous because we're not seeing the the MAGA crowd. We're not seeing the militia come out. Where are they? Why aren't we seeing? We have seen some of them. We have seen a little bit of that. They, you know, yes, we have. But, Too much. But do you get a sense that perhaps Trump is rope-a-doping, laying low, creating this this craving for... I mean, it's it's well, happening to. I'm sorry. I don't know. If, I wouldn't say he's creating it. I would say he is uh, fanning the flames for 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 Americans to want law and order for for yes. skulls to be cracked. Yes, yes, absolutely. He he talks about it openly. And is that what's going to happen? Where are we going with this? Uh, we'll see. We will see. There are people who are you know predicting that uh, this is going to be bad for uh, Biden. I, uh, I, I don't know. I know. And it'll be bad for Democrats. I don't know that that's the case, but we'll, uh, it shouldn't be. Well, I mean, they're thinking of 68 where Hubert Humphrey ran against Nixon, and Nixon was the law and order candidate. This isn't and, and that, that uh, coalition is not, is not dominant in this country. Yes, the Trump fans are going to, you know, be all up in arms about this. But how about suburban women? I don't think they like a riot, uh, but I, uh, they also don't like the kind of systemic injustice that is uh, causing the riot. I mean, the riot isn't just because one guy uh, got killed by one policeman. That is not what's happening. This is about uh, decades and decades of abuse. Of, of black men being targeted, of being treated inhumanely, and and this is just an explosion from that. And, and I don't know that that's that is that that is too abstract for people to understand. On the polling, do we know what Americans think of of the police in general? Do they have a fa- you know we get favorability ratings on Nancy Pelosi and Trump in Congress? Do we know what the favorability rating is for police in general? I would assume it's lower than it was, say, 20 years ago. Yeah, and it's, it, but on the other hand, it's higher than it is for lobbyists. Right, right. Well, if you have a question for Howie Klein about anything, you, you were upset before the segment started that I was not getting your CV correct. I, as I understand it, you ran Warner Records, Reprise no, Records. No, I didn't. I, I, I ran Reprise Records, which is half of Warner Brothers. So Warner Brothers was divided, Warner Music, uh, I mean Warner Brothers Records, I should say. Warner Brothers Records was divided between Reprise Records and Warner Records. Okay. And I got the Reprise half, which was the uh, more more profitable half. Okay, we have a lot of questions for you. And let's go to Mary, who is listening to us. I forgot where Mary is listening. I'm uh, I'm, uh, near downtown Aurora, Illinois. Ah, okay. Yeah, what? we had a protest here last uh, last night, and it was uh, attended by the police chief and the mayor. 
And after the formal protest was over, there were people that came in and just started back breaking windows and, you know, setting a, a police car, a car on fire and things like that's what you saw in my, what I was really upset about because I had driven by the crowds earlier that day and they were very friendly and they saw my Bernie bumper stickers, but it was uh, kind of, uh, it was later that night is when I saw that stuff on not nonsense on the TV. In fact, I saw my own house on the TV. Right. <laughs> so, right. Uh, as the uh, Fox News uh, people were directed to into my neighborhood, but I, anyway, Howie, I want to get. I want to ask you about uh, progressive leadership right now because you know I had some hope earlier last year, even with Elizabeth Warren running and uh, and and Bernie running, and I was a Bernie bro, still am. That uh, reading your articles, you had given me the impression that uh, the sides were talking to each other. They had a plan. They had, you know, that they were they they, they were united, and that all fell apart. Uh, sadly, at least from what I saw. Uh, what's going on now? How are they regrouping? What are? It seems that progressives have no plan. They they have no plan for for legislation and confronting Nancy Pelosi. They have no plan. It's like, yeah, they're they're having webinars and and Bernie's making statements, but I, I just don't see any strategic planning. Yeah. Right now. Me neither. Yeah. Great question. Thank you, Marianne. So, um, you know, so that you know, the, the, when you're talking about the presidential level. Politics, or it's not exactly the same as the House, which, you know, in terms of confronting Nancy Pelosi, as Mary asked about. So I'm not sure where to go with this, but since I know a little bit more about the House, why don't we talk about that a little bit? And she's right. There, there is a problem, uh, in as much as the Progressive Caucus in the House has really put a, um, uh, a prioritization on trying to be big rather than trying to be progressive. So there are, basically they sell member. Well, I shouldn't say they sell membership. Uh, Mark Pocan, who's one of the chairmen, sells membership. If you think it will be advantageous for you, even if you're pretty conservative, to be on the, uh, to be in the House, um, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, all you have to do is pay your dues and they'll put you in. There's, there's no, there's no, there's no one saying, well, you voted uh, like a Republican like 80% of the time. You can't be part of our caucus. No, just give us the money and you're part of our caucus. And that gives them cover in their home districts to tell, you know, if they're in a very blue district, they can then say, well, look, I'm in the progressive caucus. What could be wrong? What could be bad? Uh, so, so that is a problem. And when you and the progressive caucus, therefore, can't act. There's too many members who won't follow the lead of someone like Pramila Jayapal or even Pokan, but certainly Pramila, who is a real progressive and has, has offered a lot of excellent ideas for going forward, and she can't, she can't get the caucus to back her on it, on a lot of stuff. I mean, they back her on some stuff, but, they, but there, are, there are definitely times when they won't back her. Then you get, you know, some super progressives, like what's known as the squad, uh, AOC, uh, Ilhan, uh, Rashida, and Ayana, and they are, they're the real thing, and, and they are the next generation, and we, we're hoping that we elect some more like them. Uh, you know, we had some success already 
with um, Marie Newman, who's going to be a member of Congress. We had uh, endorsed by AOC as well as by Blue America, uh, and um, we have just a few weeks ago another very very progressive woman in Omaha, Nebraska, Kara uh, Kara Eastman, uh, one against a, uh, a, a an establishment blue dog. So, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I I have high hopes that things are going to get better. Okay, we have a lot of questions, and and we have one of your candidates coming up. So let's go to John in Los Angeles. What is your question for Howie Klein? Uh, Hi, Howie. Um, I live a couple of blocks from Melrose in the Fairfax district, so I was uh, right here in the neighborhood when all this was going down. Uh, When they do the canters. Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm a vegan. I wish you were, but so uh, Cantor's is an icon, but I don't go there. Uh, but regardless, I, re- I stopped uh, eating there when they <laughs> broke up the union. That's how old I am. Oh, I didn't even know about that. Yeah, go ahead. I did, inter- I did interview a band there once for my college newspaper that I don't think they were on any of your labels, but anyway, that was a long time ago. Um, I didn't in the kibbutz my- room. They had the kibbutz room. No, there? no, uh, I was in the main restaurant. This was back in the eighties. Okay. Um, go ahead. I'm sorry. Anyway. I didn't mind when I, you know, that cop cars, like, say, breaking their windows, smashing out their lights, flattening their tires, but setting them on fire, that's that's when you're starting to get a, a bigger issue there. But then I saw them on the bus, and I'm going, what the fuck are they doing? You know, that's – and then things escalated from there and got worse and worse. So the looters were obviously pe- people taking advantage of a great opportunity, and they're brilliant. They did a brilliant job. They're continuing to do so, but – yeah, I again, I don't have a problem with people getting pissed at the cops as long as they're not actually physically harming them and expressing their anger in that way. It's a great uh, way to have some catharsis, I would hope, if nothing else. Well, so it's okay. more than just catharsis. Thank you, you know, John. And, 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 John, there is no, uh, I don't, as far as I know, there's no one sort of dictating what people are going to do, and there's no, you know, overall uh, leadership that, that's um, deciding on strategy and tactics. So, you know, that's how this thing is going. Maybe maybe at some point in the future there will be something more like that. But, you know, I, I, I can't say it enough that this looting is detrimental to, to the aims um, which are legitimate. What do you think? Well, I, I'm going to ask you about looting later. Uh, we have Andrew Valinsky uh, in in our g- virtual green room, so I want to be able to get to him, so you can talk to him. Let, let's bring Andrew on because I have a, a hard uh, okay, a hard departure. Why don't we do this? Uh, let me unmute uh, Andrew Valinsky, who is running for governor of New Hampshire. Hello, Andrew. Thank you for joining us. Hi, David. It's nice to meet you. I want call to call me t- Andy. Okay, I'll call you Andy. And Howie Klein has endorsed you and you are and i am thrilled about that yes do you mind if we do this do you mind if we do this do you mind if we take a quick break and finish up the questions for howie klein because it's something you can address you're an attorney and a, a government official in new hampshire and we're talking about what's going on in the streets and how to deal with looters versus sure. the police and all that stuff. So it would be nice to include you in this conversation. Why don't we take a quick break? When we come back, we'll be joined officially by Andrew Valinsky, who's endorsed by Howie Klein. He's running for governor of New Hampshire. And we'll take your calls and your questions to 
talk about the current state of the streets of America. Stay with me. Andrew Valinsky is running for governor of New Hampshire. He's been endorsed and vetted by Howie Klein, which means go to ValinskyNH.com. That's V-O-L-I-N-S-K-Y-N-H for New Hampshire, ValinskyNH.com, and give him money. If you're an American citizen, welcome Andrew Valinsky. Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you, and uh, it's nice to be on with Howie and, and your other guests. Thank you. We have yes, some- nice to be on with you, Andrew. I want to say something before we get started, though. Yes, uh, Blue America did endorse Andrew, but uh, more important, so did uh, Bernie Sanders. And why is that more important? Because Bernie Sanders endorsed exactly one person running for governor. And that's not even the guy who's running for governor in his own state, who he likes a lot. I guess he will eventually. But he decided that the first person, and at this point the only person, that he wanted to endorse for governor is Andrew Walensky. So that, so that I think, is, uh, you know, more meaningful than the endorsement that he got from Blue America. Now, well, are you running in a primary? I do have a primary against kind of a centrist, typical political Senate Majority Leader. Um, our primary is September 8th, um, and I'm the one who takes positions on issues, and my opponent's the one who waffles on everything and who uh, promises all things good and doesn't have a plan to make that happen. Who is the current governor? has been in the uh, – uh, he's the Majority Leader of the State Senate, and he has a, a, you know, a, a centrist – um, a centrist, non-confrontational uh, record. He's, he he show he has already shown that he isn't any good and that he's not a leader. And uh, and Andrew is a leader, so that that's really why Blue America endorsed Andrew. Who is Thank the you. who is the current governor of? Our current governor is Chris Sununu. Hard right, climate change Character. denying, public health care, data denying. His dad was uh, John Sununu, the yeah. former chief of staff for Bush, who yes. set the interests of climate action back decades when he was in office. He was fired by George W. Bush, I think, for using a helicopter, right? Wasn't he? Fly back to New Hampshire. He's our Vicuna coat guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so and- I, I have been endorsed by Bernie, but even better. I, I don't want Bernie to hear this. Ben and Jerry. Really? And have named an ice cream after me. Wow. Yeah, it's called Valinsky's Courageous Crunch. Well, hang on, Howie. We, hang on hang on for one second, Howie. What is it named? Valinsky's Courageous Crunch. Wow. Well, I yeah, guess courageous cool. Sure. Uh, but can we get it here in California? Um, I can't get it here yet. So <laughs> now, I'm, hopeful, I'm hopeful it actually gets made. Now, when they when they name a flavor after you, yeah, if you make the purchases that go to your campaign, um, they haven't actually made the ice cream yet, so it's not been released yet. So we'll see. Okay, you have a big 
government when it comes to elected officials in New Hampshire, don't you? You have like one of the largest assemblies in the world. How many people sit in the New Hampshire assembly? So we have 400 state representatives, 24 senators. We have a unique body on which I sit, which is like a board of directors. There are five of us and then the governor. We don't have a lieutenant governor. So the board of directors is what is designed to keep the governor honest. So the governor nominates judges and department heads and agency officials, and we confirm them. Okay. Uh, maybe maybe I could bring Howie into this, and then we'll take calls from our listeners who yeah. want to talk to Howie and uh, Andrew Vilinsky, who's running for governor of New Hampshire. There has been conversation about increasing the number of representatives in the House of Representatives, that 435 isn't enough. I think it's like one congressman for every 750,000 uh, people in their district. And some are saying it, the, the ratio should be like 15,000 to one or 35,000 to one. And that's what George Washington would have envisioned. Is there talk about increasing the number of Congress people? Is that legitimate conversation? And would that be a good thing, given what you've been through in New Hampshire? Well, here's the thing about New Hampshire. Each rep represents 3,100 people. Mm -hmm. So that's a small number. You get to know your rep. Everyone campaigns for those offices door to door. Um, The problem is they get paid $100 a year. Too much. You're saying it's too much. Uh, I'm saying only people who are retired or wealthy can afford to be state office holders in New Hampshire. And so when I was putting my three kids through college, I could not hold New Hampshire public office because I had to work. And what is the what is your current public office that you hold? It's called executive counselor. It's on that board of directors. And so there are five I, members, and it's a very powerful organization, and it's unique to uh, New Hampshire. That's right. And how f- created it to keep the then governor honest. I'm sorry, I stepped on you. What did you say? King George created it in 1680. Really? Keep, keep the then governors honest. And when we became a state, the executive counselors refused to give up their powers to the Senate. So a lot of the senatorial powers that you would find in other states, confirming judges, for example, are powers that we have. So before we take calls from our listeners, what you have is a lot of legislative discussion. And that's a net positive. I would I would think New Hampshire is a very livable state, right? We are a livable state environmentally. We are uh, not a strong state as far as the social safety net is concerned. We don't, for example, have a minimum wage. So we default to this, the federal seven and a quarter. That's an abomination. We don't have, well, we have, we have expanded Medicaid under the ACA. But the state leadership tried to put a work requirement in, and we had to go to court to stop that. Um, We have a governor and Republicans who try to limit the right to vote here. 
And we right. fought hard against that. It was only last year, actually, we just passed the anniversary that New Hampshire got rid of its death penalty. Right. That's very personal to me because I've been a, a death penalty lawyer for almost 30 years um, throughout the South. I volunteered on cases in Mississippi and Georgia and argued before the U.S. Supreme Court against the death penalty. You argued so, before the Supreme Court in Claremont School District versus the governor of New Hampshire. That's the New Hampshire Supreme Court. And yeah. yes, but I've argued before the U.S. Supreme Court in Gray versus Mississippi when I was 30 and won the reversal of a death sentence there. Right. In the Claremont cases, I led the team that challenged how New Hampshire funds its schools um, because the quality and funding is so uneven throughout the state. So if you live on the lake or you have a ski hill, you do really well. But if you live in most of the rest of the state, you struggle. So Mitt Romney has a $10 million estate on the lake in New Hampshire. And if you can pay the price of admission you can have a really low tax rate um, and do really well uh, in your community. But if you're not Mitt Romney, you struggle in New Hampshire. But the and schools... There's a worse problem than that, which is that all school funding comes from those property taxes. There is no sales tax. There is no um, uh, income, tax. income tax. And really that is what this, this election is about, because there's something in New Hampshire called the pledge, where yes. both Republicans and Democrats agree that they uh, they will never change this tax structure. And Andy is the only one who is taking a stand and saying, well, we're going to look at the tax structure. And it's because of, of, you know, the towns that are poor have bad education. They don't they don't have the money for, uh, you know, for the proper teachers or equipment or anything. And towns that are rich, they, they do OK. Right. Just so it's clear to me, and then we'll take calls from our listeners. We're talking with Andrew Valinsky, and he's running for governor in New Hampshire, and he's endorsed by Howie Klein. When we talk about uh, inequality in public education and, and African-Americans, many say it's an apartheid education system we have in the United States because we have African-Americans living in communities with a low tax base so they can't afford to pay their teachers and get the 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 equipment that they need. And then you go to Greenwich, Connecticut or Westport, Connecticut, and the schools are fantastic because that's where the rich people are. So the, the public schools are better as they uh, reflect the tax base. So you're saying... Claremont School District versus Governor of New Hampshire resolved that problem, or it didn't? It did as far as a legal decision, but then 25 years' worth of political leaders have shown they don't have the political will to comply with the court's rulings. And so the situation today is as dire as it was 25 years ago. When so it's kind of like Brown v. Board of Education, that the, the Supreme Court ruled one way, and then it's up to the president to enforce it, and they're not enforcing Brown v. Board of Education. And you're saying that they're not enforcing Claremont School District versus yes. Governor of New Hampshire. Is that the, the gist of it? That's a fair statement. That is the primary reason why I'm running, is to address that, that and climate action. Right. Uh, 
Okay. And we can talk about that in a moment. But the Claremont ruling really is about the pledge, about protecting the inadequate tax system that we have. And look, I, I'll be straight up. I had Democratic insiders tell me if I took the pledge, they would back me and they would bundle campaign contributions for me. And I refuse that. I, I value principle over those dollars and wouldn't do it. Right. And I can almost look at my opponent's financial filings and point to the people who are so interested in preserving the entrenched tax system that favors them. Let's go to Great Britain to Rorikey, who cannot donate money to your campaign. Hey, Unless Rorikey. he has a cousin in the States. Oh, Okay. Then the cousin can donate money. Yes. Okay. Well, Ricky, do you have a cousin in the United States? I have a sister in Las Vegas. Is she an American citizen? Um, yeah, I don't want to say that because uh, clearly she sold out. So she is an American citizen and she's married to uh, uh, an American boy. So, uh, and they've got an American uh, son. So, yeah, I've got. Uh, well, why, doesn't, the game. Yes. why doesn't she put down $50 on red for Andrew Valinsky? Well, why don't, why don't we make that happen? I'll, uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll, send, I'll, I'll send something to compensate her, uh, perhaps. I don't know how that works. Without, What's the uh, most you can donate, Andrew? $7,000. Let it ride. What is your question, Ricky? Well, it's, it's sort of around the... Um, the current sort of uh, crisis you're having there, not with COVID, but with um, the sort of expression of oppression and the, the police state sort of stuff. How, how is it in New Hampshire? I mean, it's a smaller population base, but how is the, um, the funding of policing, the training of policemen and the, the, the whole emphasis of your police forces? Is it in New Hampshire, are you, um, are you looking for, you know, much better equity and justice. I know you don't have as many um, minorities in New Hampshire, but is there a, a different attitude that you'd foster inside your police force to, you know, as working class people in New Hampshire, I take it, who, who are oppressed as well? You know, how, how, how can you deal with that? So Great question. Yeah. Thank you, Rory. Yeah, that is a good question. Uh, New Hampshire has a very small minority population. It's about 4%. Um, but even with that, uh, we've had instances of racial profiling in the cities that we do have. We've had um, instances of driving while black arrests in some of the rural areas as recently as uh, Memorial Day weekend. Um, so we've done a number of things to improve training, um, to start getting at implicit bias training, Um there are a couple of, of thoughtful police departments that are willing to undertake that, but it's, it's not well coordinated. It's one off in one department and the neighboring department's not as good. Um, when I was legal counsel for the civil liberties union here, uh, we actually sued to expose the largest city's profiling effort. And now um, what about ICE? I do know that they have, have a pretty big presence in New Hampshire, and there are detention and, centers up in New Hampshire. Where do you stand in, on the? I'm presence. sorry, an inordinate presence. Why? So why? You know, we've got this this border with Canada, 
And so uh, it's it's almost humorous. ICE sets up checkpoints 50 miles below the Canadian border to fight off the people sneaking into New Hampshire, of which there are none right. um, coming in from Canada. But New Hampshire does have a county facility that rents out its space to ICE. And so there have been a number of protests some of which I've participated in, um, to get people released who are being held, particularly this time when COVID is so dangerous and in jail facilities. Uh, for the first six weeks of the pandemic, New Hampshire was transporting its immigration detainees to Boston for hearings. And so they'd go to Boston, be exposed, and then be brought back to the facility which was incredibly dangerous. And what jurisdiction does a governor have? Can a, can a governor say we're not going to allow any of our state's jails or county jails to rent out space to ICE? So the governor can't overrule the county jail. The governor can lead with the state facilities, with the state police, and by using the bully pulpit to encourage counties to stand down. We actually have um, a sheriff here uh, for Cheshire County who refuses to cooperate with ICE. Okay. But most of the arrest, the most of the rest of the sheriffs do. Let me and ask I, you about, before I, I, I don't want to hog right? the questions, uh, posse comitatus, the, if a governor says, I'm not calling in the National Guard, to quell protests and the president says I'm sending my military in to quell the protests if you won't what what so, does posse comitatus mean it's it's a prohibition against using the military to affect civilian arrests so um, when 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 Donald Trump announces Monday night that he's the law and order president and he's sending in the military to quell the protests in, in Lafayette Park. Is that in violation of posse comitatus? There is little danger of confusing Donald Trump with a constitutional scholar. <laughs> so the limitations of his ineptitude and lack of knowledge are yet undis- undiscerned. But does the military know? Does the head, the former head of Boeing, who's now Raytheon, know that? Uh, yeah, military- have you seen the military show up in Lafayette Park? I don't know. I'm sure I they're there. So. Uh, I don't think so. So they're not going to go in there. I, no, he's going to he's going to have a, a professional uh, executive assistant who's going to tell him. You know, uh, stuff like that. I mean, yes, the guy, the guy doesn't know. I'm sure he doesn't know, but he'll have people who will tell him. Right. Right. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Are you sure? I, you know, I've never thought a president would encourage people to drink Clorox. So I am not sure with this president, but I mean, if he gives the order for the, the, I mean, didn't Hoover clean out the, uh, the, when they marched on Washington, didn't they use? Uh, wasn't Eisenhower? And I don't, I don't know. But, huh? I, 
it was Pershing, I believe. Pershing, but Eisenhower was there. But you know, the, the, when they were marching for the GI benefits for World War One, the Hoovervilles, I believe the military cleaned it out in violation. As opposed to the National Guard. I yeah, because Eisenhower was there, and I think MacArthur was there, and Howie just said Pershing was there. I don't know the answer. Well, okay. That's not why you came on the show. We have one <laughs> final question. Yes. And it's from Josh. He needs to unmute himself. Josh? Josh Werner. Okay. Well, he's not unmuting himself, so uh, we won't take a question for him. Let me check the, uh, the Q&A before we wrap this up and I can't find the Q and a, uh, how do you like campaigning um, via zoom by the way? Andrew, Andrew, there's one, one question in the Q and a about, uh, third party insurance on firearms. Go ahead. Read the question. I, I can't. If firearms required mandatory third-party insurance, could you use the insurance industry to curb acquisition and use of firearms? You want me to answer that, or do you? Because I do know the answer, but you go ahead. <laughs> go for it, David. No, no, I'm gonna, you're, you're the guest. You go ahead. Thanks. Thanks. So I, I think it's a novel approach. Um, I, I think we need to do a lot more direct things like – gun-free school zones, like 72-hour laws, like red flag laws. Those are all very reasonable approaches. I live in a state where hunting happens, and I know parts of our state where people don't eat meat if they don't get a deer. And so I'm not opposed to hunting, but some of the well, we have it at the state capitol. We had the Boogaloo Brothers is what they're called. Nazi, and, right? And they walk around with assault rifles. I was there three weeks ago and saw it. Uh, despicable. The only people at the protest wearing masks were the cowards carrying the guns. Right, right. Medicare for all, I would assume, is something that, as a governor, you would urge? I, I would Love to see it happen. It's more a federal issue than a state yeah. issue. I was on the federally qualified health center board for Manchester for a half a dozen years. I, I know the importance of primary care. I know the importance of getting everyone preventative care. I'd love to see it happen. One we of the have- one of the lies, Howie, that they spread about Vermont is that they tried Medicare for all in Vermont and it didn't work. Why is that a lie? Well, I'm, I'm in New Hampshire. Right. I, but- I, I know they tried it in the neighboring state, and Phil Scott, the Republican governor, was so involved in making it as complicated as possible that people threw up their hands and stopped the experiment. Did they even participate in the experiment? I thought Medicare for All in Vermont stopped in the, in, before it was even started. Yes, you're, you're absolutely correct. But, you know, Vermont is a state of 620,000 people. That, that's really small to do a Medicare for all experiment. 
if you add in New Hampshire, we have 1.3 million. If you add in Maine, that's another 1.3 million. So could you think about doing it across northern New England with approaching 3 million, 3.5 million people? You could. But to think about doing it only in Little Vermont, uh, it, that's a reach. Right. And we're seeing state cooperation to fight COVID-19 because of the vacuum left by Donald Trump. How is the state dealing with COVID-19? Do you have enough ventilators? Do you have enough beds? People? Yeah, we're, we're too little and a little late. Um, there's a cooperation effort among the Northeastern and New England states to open up. Uh, New Hampshire refuses to participate in that. Where the when would you state. open? When would you open up New Hampshire? When I, when You're the governor. When do you reopen? Well, you, you follow the federal guidelines for when to reopen. You you follow federal guidelines, but more importantly, we're still experiencing increases in positive COVID um, testing. So now is not the time. Our governor, um, I challenged our governor to issue a mask up order. He told me the public health data doesn't support it. That That's like being a climate change denier, which he is, by the way. Um, we need to mask up. We need to have social distancing. With those efforts, hard, enforced, people complying, you will open sooner than what's happening now, which is kind of haphazard. Um, some places enforce it and apply it to their employees. Others don't. It, it's um, so it's as, as you become governor. Yeah. And the, the brutal reality seems to be, and we're doing a COVID-19 town hall tonight. The brutal reality seems to be that, as I understand it, only a child would think that there's going to be a vaccine within the next year, that the idea that there's going to be a vaccine in September is a childish notion. The most we can hope for within the next year is the medical community learning how to treat COVID-19. That's the most we can hope for. Would you agree with that? Yes. So no. we're, we're not looking at a, at a vaccine, at least for another year. We're looking for a way to to treat this kind of like the way we've dealt with AIDS. No vaccine, but it's no longer a death sentence. So at what point do we turn this economy on? You know, there is, I'm sorry, I hate Trump. I hate Mike Pence. They give mixed signals, though, when they go out in public with the masks. And there is a, there is an argument that can be made, that is legitimate. When you take away the red, the red cloak, the red state cloak of herd immunity, and there is a legitimate argument that at some point you have to reopen the economy because people are dying from hunger. You know, uh, do you want me to respond? Yes. So if you're asking me whether I'd rather have 80,000 people die instead of 100,000 people, I'm going to protect my neighbors, and we need to be more protective. We don't have good contact tracing now. We're just beginning to get that going in our state. We don't have widespread testing 
Our governor relied on low positive numbers that were an artifact of poor testing, not a limited spread. We now, in the summer season, have people coming to our state from New York and Boston and places where the infection rate is very high, and we're acting as if nothing's wrong. We should not be opening up amusements, indoor dining, recreation that brings people close together without a masking order. I don't care if you can buy new sneakers at the local mall. You have to wear a mask. Okay, I think we all agree on the mask, although not we we all don't agree on the mask. But what I'm Those saying, of us who are comfortable with protecting our neighbors do agree. Okay, I I understand that. Turning on the economy, though, uh, at some point as governor, you would have to make that decision. Yeah. And it would be data driven based on limiting the COVID positive tests with free testing freely available. And and is New Hampshire equipped to go it alone without any help from the federal government? Of course not. No state is. So then you can't. As long as Trump is president, you can't turn the economy back on. I, I, I think that's a non sequitur. We need federal help because our business taxes and property taxes, those revenues will fall off by 30% in this COVID crisis. Right, but you're not going to get that help. Trump has pretty much said you're on your own. So you're not going to get that help from from Washington. So we have $1.25 billion in CARES Act aid. Some of that will help on those shortfalls. So given, so this is a tough question and we're not having this conversation. So you're running for governor. Yeah. And we have a president. The reality is you have a president who believes in states rights, who has said you're on your own, New York and Connecticut and New Jersey are joining together to purchase PPEs and ventilators and all that kind of stuff. You're the governor of New Hampshire come November. And if he's still president, when do you open up the economy? Because you're not going to get help from this president. I open the economy when the public health data supports opening, not when the president artificially decides we should open. And so what is that, 14 days of declining? Yeah, 14-day average is certainly a common indicator. Uh, declination in the death rate is another indicator. There are a couple of indicators that make sense and certain models that make sense to follow. But doing it because the president tells me to is not how I would conduct myself as governor. Okay. Andrew, and, and New Hampshire has an increasing rate, uh, so it's not, it's, not a safe, it's, not a safe, it's not safe to open yet there. Well, it, it, you're, you're right, Howie. Um, and we have games. So New Hampshire gets a lot of 6% of its state revenues from liquor sales through state liquor stores. There was a positive COVID-19 result of a liquor retail clerk, and the liquor commission didn't tell anyone for a week. 
makes it a little hard to do contact tracing of the people who frequented that store and interacted with this clerk if you keep it hidden for a week. That's the kind of thing that needs to stop. Andrew Valinsky is running for governor of New Hampshire. He's been endorsed by Howie Klein, which means you should go to ValinskyNH.com. And if you're an American citizen, give him money. That's V-O-L-I-N-S-K-Y-N-H.com. Thank you. I'd love you to come back. It would be my pleasure. This was great fun, and thank you for having me. And uh, nice to sort of see you, Howie. (laughs) Stay on the line. Thank you very much. Okay. Time to talk about the intersection between economics and psychology. Dr. Harriet Fraud is a feminist activist, psychotherapist, and hypnotherapist. She's the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. She is also set to be a founding member of the feminist movement. She was there at the beginning, back in 1968, with the start of the women's liberation movement. Welcome back, Dr. Fraud. Glad to be here. Well, we're all glad you're here, and I see some hands raised, and I will not be a pig with you, but I have a couple of questions. Let's start with 1968. You were there at the birth of the women's liberation movement, 1968 versus 2020. Is this really 1968? People say it is. It isn't, because first of all, in the Black Lives Matter protests, There are many, many white people in solidarity with the class dimension that's going on here. And in 1968, we were very naive. We thought as feminists that if we stood up as women, the bottom of the heap, everyone would come up with us. And we had the idea that we wanted an egalitarian society, and that would be happening, that we would create equality for all. We were so naive, we didn't look twice when Gloria Steinem offered us Ms. Magazine with all those glossy pages. We didn't think, whoa, where does the money come from? Mm -hmm. As it turned out, she was a CIA agent who quite successfully perverted our movement to being one that excised class in favor of gender and of equality for women within a world of greater and greater inequality for the mass of people. Right. And so that was a big mistake, not being aware of class. And what it allowed, it allowed our movement to then be usurped into a group of very useful organizations, depending on funding, rape crisis centers, battered women's shelters, legal groups, and so on. Abortion rights. Like Emily's List is only interested in a candidate who's strong on abortion rights, but doesn't care, say, about class struggle. That's right, which means that the mass of women will not be able to get an abortion because they can't afford it. Because abortion rights for all are one thing, and abortion rights for people who can afford abortions are quite another. And, of course, people who can't afford an abortion could never afford to give their child a decent upbringing. Right. right. We're talking about gender equality 
within a system of vast class inequality for the mass of people. And that's what we have now. We have greater gender equity. In 1968, we got 59 cents on the male dollar. And now we get 82 cents. Unless, of course, we're working part-time, we get about 49 cents. Or unless we are mothers, in that case, we get 44 cents on the male dollar. I don't know if you've been watching the protests, the riots, the looting. Yes. I started watching it this weekend, and one of the things that struck me was the number of white women in the front of the line. That's right. What were your thoughts about that? Well, my thoughts are we're in the same boat. Our movement, the feminist movement, which was the women's liberation movement, emerged from the movements for civil rights, for African-Americans, and for ending the war in Vietnam. And those of us who were very active in those movements realized, well, wait a minute, we don't have rights either. And we were very much related to those other struggles because we all wanted rights for everyone within an egalitarian society and didn't have them. And so women understand what it's like to be a second-class citizen. After all, you look at housework, which is unpaid, without which nothing would go on. The hospitals wouldn't work without the janitors and the orderlies and the nurses' aides and so on. And at home, things devolve unless you have order, some cleanliness, and emotional care. Right. And that's the job of women. And women's work in the household has been menial. And that's why people get crappy wages for menial labor, even though it's utterly important. Those people who clean up, those people who make order, those people who cook and serve at the cafeteria right. or as waitresses, these are salary debased because they're traditional women's work. So we as women seeing people who are oppressed on the basis of a biological condition, skin color, over which they have no control. Whoa, can we identify? Let's talk about toxic male energy, the idea of policing America and getting tough with the protesters. First, psychologically speaking, how wise is it for the police not to be given a curfew? Shouldn't the police have a curfew along with the protesters? Wouldn't, yeah. it, wouldn't that be safer? They, they should. And the police... I'm sorry, are, I stepped on you. You said what? The police are in a difficult position. They're trying to hold together a society that's falling apart. And they're trying to protect property rights over the rights of people for free expression. And they're being put in danger by the people who are underpaying them and putting in, them in danger. And they have a job of holding together at the bottom line a society that they can't hold together because it's falling apart. It's an impossible job that devolves on them. And they can't do it. And they're upset and angry. But now, they're being paid well. I mean, the police chiefs of these big cities get $300,000 a year. The police in Minneapolis get $78,000 a year. Sure, the police chief gets paid very well, and he's not likely to die on the beat either right. or get beaten up. He's so what would it look like? 
What would it look like if here in New York City, de Blasio, whose daughter was arrested in the protest. Right, but he's waffling all over the place. What would it look like if he declared a curfew and said, uh, we're only going to go after the looters. You want to march. We're going to keep an eye on you. You're free to march. We understand you're angry. We're going to keep an eye on you. And what would it look like? I think it would look very different. Also, the people who are looting and smashing into stores and lighting fires, some of them are radicals. Some of them are extremists. Some of them are right-wingers who want to foment trouble. Mm -hmm. Some of them are cops who want an excuse to discredit the whole movement. Agent provocateurs. Exactly. And they actually caught one cop who was very well-equipped smashing into places because they want to give the demonstrators the brand of criminals. Now, of course, I mean, I personally think, okay, you take an apple. That's not the same as standing on somebody's neck until they die. Right. Take an apple computer. But so I don't, you know, my outrage is that this has been going on for a long time. And it went on when Obama was president. We had a brown president. We had a brown district attorney. We had brown all over the place. But we had the same capitalist idea. Mm-hmm. That you protect the top at the bit on and stand on their necks economically while pushing other people to work harder. And we are the only country in the Western world or the advanced industrial world that doesn't give paid vacations or maternity leave. Whoa, paid maternity leave. I mean, you, the American people have been terribly deprived on the basis of exceptionalism. And now they're realizing, whoa, we are being super exploited. I want to point out, too, that it isn't a question of having people starve or go to work. Germany has 200,000 people unemployed. The United States has 40 million. How come? Why do we have 30% of the world's um, COVID cases when we're only 4.5% of the population? Mm-hmm. Well, in Germany, people are paid 80% of their salary, and no business is given any support at all unless they have workers on their board of directors as well as people from the neighborhood to comment on the ecology and the ecological impacts of this corporation. And they're not allowed to lay off anybody. They get any aid. They can't lay off anybody. Very different. LIU got aid, and then it fired their entire buildings and ground staff. What is LIU? Long Island University in Brooklyn. Right. Okay. So, you know, and people aren't starving there because the government backs businesses to give people 80% of their salaries so that their economy can keep going. Right. Right. Our strat, our, it's not ours, Trump's strategy is starve them so they're so desperate you can give them less 
because there'll always be people there to replace them, and they daren't stand up for themselves, even though now they are. And who cares? It's called capital stock by Trump's economic advisor. Human beings are capital stock. So if a million of them die, so what? There's 40 million unemployed. Who Just hire others. Yeah. I, we're, we have a lot of people with raised hands who want to talk to Dr. Harriet Fraud, and she has changed a lot of my listeners' lives. I get so many emails thanking me for you. We've learned about the intersection of psychology and the economic system we're forced to uh, live in. And if you're new to this show and new to Dr. Harriet Fraud, I cannot tell you how important this stuff is. It's not your parents necessarily. It's not your body chemistry. It's not all in your head. It's no. not all in your head, which is the name of uh, one of your podcasts. It could be the economic system you're forced to endure. Last question, then we'll open it up to the listeners. What is the role of the police? Is it to protect property or people? It's to protect the people who own the property and their property. Look, mm-hmm. it's a capitalist system. It's not that they're inherently evil, although they're allowed to stomp on people's faces because they're the bottom line. The wealthy don't want to get their hands dirty. They don't want to be the ones to have to stand on someone's neck, and they don't mind if their servants do it for them. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they're not going to victimize each other, except sometimes by mistake if somebody gets confused. When I go to a demonstration, I always get dressed up to be completely bourgeois. So when the energy changes and the and I know the cops are going to come in swinging, I'm off looking like I'm shopping. <laughs> Because I know I will be spared. Right, right. And what we've seen in South America, Latin America, as the economy crumbles, as the communities become gated, fewer and fewer high-paying jobs, the police don't side with the masses. The police remain well-paid, and so they are terrified of losing their job as a police officer, and they will always side with the the, the oligarchs. That's right, until they don't. I mean, one of the the reasons that the Bolsheviks won the revolution is they called out the police who sided with the Bolsheviks. Then the party was over. But in Latin America, which I see as the precursor for where this country is heading or has already arrived, you will find the police to bend to the will of the oligarchs because the alternative is no longer being a police officer. It's t- to be a criminal. That's right. And um, sometimes you can be both, as we've seen with our police. Um, yeah. But their job is to protect property, not to protect people's rebellion against the property. Right. They keep a hold of a status quo that's falling apart. They have an unmanageable job, and they get violent and they shouldn't. You know, the, the rules should be enforced. There should be checks and balances in the police. Great. There aren't. All right. I'm hogging your time. Let's go to Priscilla. I believe in Ohio. Am I correct, Priscilla? <laughs> I believe in Ohio. What? what? Aren't, Priscilla, aren't you in Ohio? <laughs> no, 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 no. Kalamazoo, Michigan. Okay. Good for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Hi, Dr. Fraud. Um, I'm a huge fan. I've recently uh, watched your three-part series explaining the difference between capitalism, communism, and all that, and I just find it interesting. Like, they never taught us that in school, and uh, it got me thinking, how free are we in this capitalist system? Uh, Just today, I had a job interview working at a supermarket. They're going to give me $9.75 an hour, max 20 hours a week. And I have bills. I pay rent. I cannot work for that. Luckily, I do have unemployment. So I had the option to decline that job and look for another one. How free are we in a system that tells us you either work or starve? And often you work and starve because we don't give you pay you enough money. Why 20 I'll hours a week, Dr. Fry? What is great question, Priscilla. Why 20 hours a week? Any benefits. I'm sorry, say that again. I stepped on you. Then they don't have to give you any benefits. They right. want to keep you down so they don't have to give you benefits. Right. And, so, yeah. You know, look, we are in un, a practically unmitigated capitalism. I often cite Germany or France because those are also diverse countries that are very successful. Germany is the most successful economy in Europe. Germany pays between 70 and 80% of every worker's salary so they won't be laid off. As long, you know, if, if the boss was going to lay some people off, they can't if they want to get any stimulus money. No layoffs. That's why they have 200,000 unemployed. We have... 40 million, big difference. If you take people off of jobs or pay them nothing, if you have so allow, which they allow so many unemployed, you make people desperate. Then your economy doesn't work because people can't buy anything. And the employers have no reason to treat you right if you don't have massive unions. I often cite that the German metal workers union of about 300,000 people. This year, got full salary for 22 hours a week so they could have work-life balance. Why? Because they're a political union. They're organized by the Communist Party and the Socialist Party, and the threat is, give it to us. Or we're going to take it. Or we'll take it. That's what what FDR threatened to his 1% buddies. But the Americans until recently, with the George Floyd protests, have not been organized. And when they are in the street, they're not organized under the banner of the Socialist Party, the Communist Party, the this, the that. They're just out there angry. There isn't a unified force. I want to ask Priscilla a question, and then maybe Dr. Fry could explain why this is so. Priscilla, in the job that you were offered, they offered you 20 hours a week? Yes. And did they specify, were they able to say, these are the hours, these are the days, and it won't be fungible? Uh, They said they will start me out at 20 hours a week, and then there will be a 90-day probationary period. I'm saying, did did they tell you that... Your job would start at 9 a.m. and end at noon every day. Were they able to give you a specific schedule? Uh, no, I didn't go that far. I heard 9.75 an hour, and I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't see sitting this 
interview or this orientation through because I was hired right. on the okay. spot. Thank you. <laughs> Hang on. Dr. Fraud, can you talk to us about that, how they offer you 20 hours a week, but they don't give you the specifics about when you're well, going to Well, it's more convenient for them. The idea is everything is for their convenience. And they know that thanks to Trump and our national policies and our local policies, we are, we are. I'm sorry. Oh, are we losing you? Hang on, Dr. Fraud, you're, you're freezing on us. And this time it's not my fault, I promise you. Are you there, Dr. Fraud? This is not my fault, I swear to you. Let me do this. Let me take some people down. Why don't we take a quick break, and when we continue, we will uh, unfreeze Dr. Fraud. Stay with me for one quick second. We're back, and I think Dr. Fraud is back. You you froze. Yeah, they can make whatever conditions they want as long as people are unemployed in such numbers. Right. And they have computer software now that can look at how the store is doing and at the last minute decide how much, how many workers they need. And so. So if you're on a 20, if you have a 20 hour work week, you don't know which 20, which, which 20. And what does that do? So obviously it makes it impossible for you to fill that vacuum with 20 other hours somewhere else. But what does that do to you psychologically? Well, that you are at someone else's beck and call. You have no control over your life. Right. It means your schedule, your life, your plans. Don't exist. You're waiting to hear. You're waiting to hear what your schedule is. So you don't know if. I'm sorry. You are a wage slave waiting to hear what master commands. Right. And that's demoralizing on every level. It's terrible financially. It's terrible personally. And by not giving people the benefits that every other Western industrialized nation has done, they make sure people are starving and desperate. And how you much know, of this is incompetence? How much of it is laziness? And how much of it is calculating? When when Walmart calculating. I'm sorry. Calculating. I'm, you're breaking up. I'm sorry. Calculating. It's calculating. It is calculating. It's a capitalist strategy. If all you want is to see people as as economic advisor Hassert, Trump's advisor says capital stock. Digits to manipulate for more profit, starve them. Then they work for less. Scare them. Whatever you want. Scare them, starve them. You're not only scare them, starve them. Kill them. Pack them in and let them get COVID. They'll always be more because you have 40 million unemployed. Right. That's the ultimate capitalist logic. Get the most, give the least. That's good business. And it's unethical. Capitalism is theft. 
you're not successful if you pay somebody exactly what they earn for you, then there's no point. And when so when Elizabeth Warren says she's a capitalist to the bone, but we need guardrails. Yes. What she's saying is we are an unfettered capitalism. We need regulations. However, when we make regulations, as we did with the New Deal, and we leave those people with the money who have the money, they'll figure out a way. They'll use all the best intellects they can buy to figure out a way to get around them. Right. They passed Glass-Steagall Act to regulate the banks. No, they canceled the Glass-Steagall Act. Right. You get the best, the best democracy money can buy, which is not a democracy. Right. Henry. Hello, David. Do you mind if I ask two quick questions? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So No, I don't mind. Absolutely. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Um, the first question um, is just because it's something that you brought up after Priscilla asked her question, which is why uh, employers want to keep people unemployed uh, systemically. And I'd uh, like Dr. Fraud to talk about the, the concept of the reserve army of labor and why it's beneficial for the capitalists to keep a relatively large unemployed population. So that's the first part. And the second thing that I wanted to know, and this is what I came in wanting to know, is because of these protests, we're all trying to think of what some of the underlying conditions were that, that led to this. Because obviously the George Floyd murder was the spark point, but it wasn't the underlying systems. And of course, there's a lot of things that played together. But one thing that I think that nobody's talked about that you've talked about in the past, Dr. Fraud, is the nuclear family. And I was wondering if you could talk about the origins of the nuclear family and whether or not you think that the fact that we're so acculturated to having the nuclear family and not communal raising of children, if that makes it so that we have more class divisions, more racial divisions, and if, if, if we had more communal raising of people societally, if that would have perhaps prevented some of the systemic issues that we see that have led to the spark point that we have had? Well, it contributes, certainly, because what has happened is you have outrageous racism in which black people can be killed with small provocation, and you have police that can beat people with impunity, white and black, and you have an out-of-control society here so that people explode, you know? Langston Hughes has a terrific poem, What Happens to a Dream Deferred? And here, think of the American dream. Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Does it fester like a sore and then run? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? I think this is the explosion of the deferred dream of an America of opportunity. And we are the most family-bound of the advanced countries. We have, we do not have universal daycare, which parents need. Parents, too, are trapped. It's one of the reasons that one in ten admits to beating their child with objects in the United States. Because they're around all the time. We don't get parental leave. We don't get 
paid vac- family vacations. We don't get maternity leave. We don't get paternity leave. We don't get the things that give parents and then therefore children a break. But the whole idea of the nuclear family needs to be interrogated. It was beautifully studied in a book by, um, well, it's called Policing the Family. And it's by Jacques, what is it? I'll remember it. It's a French guy. And he writes truly turgid prose, French intellectual, hard to get through, really worth it prose. And what he does is he traces the smoking gun of the nuclear family in France from when it originated. After the French Revolution, everything was chaos. And during the French Revolution, there was a strong demand to have state support for children. After the revolution, people were poor, they were disorganized, the feudal family had been busted up, and people left the feudal farms and were in cities. They were penniless. Women were having children and had no way to support them. And so the remnants of the French ruling class, the remnants of the aristocracy who hadn't been killed, and the church aristocracy, the remnants that hadn't been killed, and the new capitalists that were coming up got together to try to figure out what to do. And they came up with the idea of a feudal family, where the man has the burden of supporting his family, but he is the feudal lord of his family. The woman gets support in childbirth, so she isn't pregnant and bereft, and the children are chattel. And don't forget, it wasn't until the 1960s in the United States that you couldn't kill your kid and get away with it. Really? Yes. The battered child rulings came. The battered child syndrome article was written in 1962. By 1967, there was a rule that if, that you could be interrogated. You were not, a, if you brought your child mostly dead to the emergency room and said they fell down the stairs, that was actually looked into. Hmm. So they looked into child murder. Wow. Wow. They still have some work to do on that, but whatever. At any rate, children were chattel. And it wasn't until, I guess it was the late, the early 1930s, that you couldn't put your child to work. The child labor was completely banned. Because your kids were chattel. You could rent them out. And that was the basis of the nuclear family. The history in England is slightly different, but the basics are the same that the man has the pressure to support a family so he will comply with the rules of the employer. The woman has protection in childbirth, and they both have a slave when the kid gets capable enough to be a slave and useful to work for them. I see. Well, we have uh, limited time with... Jacques Deleuze, that's the name of the guy, Jacques Deleuze, who wrote Policing the Family. Wow, 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 wow. Let us take one final question from Natalia, and hopefully we'll be able to get Dr. Harriet Fraud to come back. Uh, it's amazing. Just I will. Thank you. Hi. I don't know if you can hear me. I can hear I, you. I, oh, oh, my gosh. I love your show, and I love you, Dr. Harriet. You're great. 
Um, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the impact of being fired because um, I was fired um, last March and it took me six months. I, my unemployment had just run out when I was able to get another job, which was in the travel industry. And then this whole thing happened and I got canned again <laughs> in, in March. Um, but being fired from my previous job, it was very much that kind of like you're part of a team and where you're so valuable, but then the moment you advocate for yourself, speak up for yourself at will employment kicks in literally, you know, you're told by a company that it's, it's not, it takes too much energy to resolve this conflict. So we're going to let you go. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little about a bit about how that affects and I'm about to be 40 and my wages have gone down every job I've had since my mid 20s my wages have become less and less. Um so I was just wondering if you talk a little bit about the impact of that on society knowing how being so dispensable. Great. Yeah. Thank you. You are part of the capital stock that Trump's economic advisor referred to. You're not a person Although being fired and then trying to get jobs, people are saying, I don't want you. I don't want you. I don't want you. What does that do to your sense of self to be unwanted? And you're part of a team, but who owns the team, right? It's, that's an ideological thing to try to get you to work harder for the boss who's getting the team isn't deciding who should be paid what. That would be a co-op team. You don't have that. So it's demoralizing because you're being told by the society you're not wanted, you're worthless, you know? That's, what are you worth? That's an expression, how much money do you have? Can I push back? We have to wrap this up. Can I say something about ageism? Because I I work in show business where ageism is rampant, and I I completely understand ageism. And I see right through it. Mm. The reason there's ageism is you're older, so you know more. So you're a threat to the mid-level management. You'll be a challenge. You Mm -hmm. might end up being one of the alpha dogs. I don't need somebody who knows something I don't know working underneath me. Uh, And you see through the system. You, you know when it's BS. A, so the ageism is we're looking for younger workers because they, I hate to say this, they're, they'll, they, they, they say, I'm here to learn. It's a learning process. I'm just grateful to learn. And then when they learn the truth that they're chattel, they age out. Once you make that realization, you go, they go, he knows too much. She knows too much about, see, they're on to us. Yeah. Yeah, well, look, ageism is just, it's just another part of the discrimination and separation of people. And in this time of the demonstrations in which Black Lives Matter is prominent, righteously so, all lives matter. And we need each other. You who have been fired and have been told that you're worthless, that you're not important, that you're not worth paying in a society that values money over everything, 
What you need is to connect with other people who know your value because this system doesn't, and it humiliates people. It humiliates people. Yes, it humiliates people. And you can't let yourself walk away with the shame. You have to protest. Yes. And that's partly what's exploded with this Floyd thing. We will not sit down and, and be killed. We won't be extinguished psychologically or physically. When you go to work in corporate America, the first thing they take away from you is your dignity. They take your dignity. And once they have your dignity, you'll do anything. That's right. To be discussed further. Dr. Harriet Fraud is a feminist activist, psychotherapist, and hypnotherapist. She's the host of Capitalism Hits Home. And it's not just in your head. Yeah, she- I'm a co-host with Max Golding. It's not just in your head. Me and another therapist, a young therapist called Max Golding. Besides being a founding member of the feminist movement, she has taught my listeners how to see that it may not just be your parents or your biochemistry. It might actually be the economic system you're forced to exist under. It is always uh, just incredible. Can you stand on the line for one quick second? Thank you. Let's change subjects. We've been talking about COVID-19 and the riding on the streets. Let's do something a little more uplifting and tackle the issue of nursing homes. Joining, <laughs> joining us is Ann Newman. She is the author of The Good Death, published by Beacon. She's contributing nonfiction editor for Guernica, And her latest piece in The Guardian, it's a three-part series, it's on nursing homes. Her latest piece is Transfer Trauma, America's Seniors Suffer as Care System Pushes Them Between Sites. Thank you, Anne. Are you in Brooklyn? I am. I'm in Brooklyn. Thank you for joining us. Nursing Homes in America. Were nursing homes at one time for-profit uh, not not for profit. They seem to be for profit. We're hearing these stories of nursing homes in New Jersey with the bodies piling up uh, because of COVID nineteen, and they all seem to be for profit nursing homes. When did nursing homes become for profit, and are there any non profit nursing homes left? There are some nonprofit nursing homes left, um, but a lot of them are moving increasingly are, are for profit. And part of this came about with the Older Americans Act when um, uh, uh, Congress decided that they were going to fund nursing homes. Up until that point, they were run by the county or um, the local church or kind of the poor houses uh, for old people. That's where we sent them all. Um, and with the Older Americans Act and this establishment of a pay structure, um, and that's the, the Medicare and Medicaid as we know them, um, and some other bells and whistles that were put into place for elder Americans. So um, these are good uh, intentions gone bad or taken advantage of. You're talking about the 60s, the Johnson era, where yep. they're tackling the plight of nursing homes, and yeah. they decide to the federal government should chip in and... 
make yeah, them well, better. It's, a, it, it's just a, it's a structure that anyone's going to take advantage of, right? We see it with the stock market. We see it with corporations. We see anytime there, there is a profit motive. And I don't care when I say profit. I don't care if we're talking about nonprofits or for profits. Um, the incentive is still the same, right? They just have a different tax man. Um, they, they write different things off. Yeah. Um, but we still have this problem. Um, uh, um, Dr. Fraud had said that, that we have an ethical issue with employers, um, and that's true within this industry as well. Um, and um, the, the objective then is to make as much profit as possible. So you've got people who specialize in how to um, make the most out of the, the numbers of people coming into the facility or, or leaving. And so we all know that Medicare pays more than Medicaid. And what we found um, when this story was brought to me by my editor, Summer Sewell at uh, The Guardian, I was like, eh, well, I'm kind of a specialist in hospice and end of life care. Um, and this was really prescient on her part. This was like back in, in uh, November. And I kind of sat on it for a while. And then we revisited it in January. And we had no idea that every other story in the newspaper um, at some point in the near future was going to be about nursing homes and mm-hmm. um, this mass die off of elders for no reason. Right. Um, for no reason, because for, that's for not, no reason. Yeah. And it's we should mention their, that you've done this in court in cooperation with the uh, economic hardship reporting project. They are yeah. they are the best, the best. They are the best. Um, they're a journalist's best friend. It's yeah. a terrible, tough world out there. Yeah. Um, but so so here we are with a system um, where um, profit in, in any of uh, these facilities has been conflated with ethics. So, so the ethics now, um, the basis of operation is driven by profit. And so there are specialists within the industry who will look at how many beds you need to have for Medicare and Medicaid and what are the strategies that you can use in your structure. Let's say you've got long-term care on the second floor and, um, and rehab on another floor. And those are just terms that mean amount of pay from either the state or the federal government. Because, um, as we know, uh, funds come from both of those, um, both of those levels. And, but and, they're insisting it's the free market. They're insisting that this is private enterprise that can do it better than the government can. Right. And I mean, we just, SpaceX, right? We just saw yeah. <laughs> our entire space program has been privatized. There's, there's nothing that we haven't privatized at this point or, you know, gone to this crazy shimmera hybrid of uh, private public um, but what we're finding now is that larger chains are looking at the operation of nursing facilities. And so private equity um, uh, um, organizations, corporations will come in and say they'll, they'll buy a number of homes up and maybe they'll sell the property and then just handle the operations. Um, But there are all of these crazy hybrid structures that are being used to maximize the profit on a very slim profit entity to start with. It's, it's really complicated and it's complicated for a reason, because if you can unravel it, you'll find out who the villains are. Let's go back uh, before we get to the crisis. So a nursing home, if I want to go into a nursing home, what are the, odds here in the United States that that nursing home is for profit? 
I would say um, getting slimmer all the time. You want a percentage, and I probably can't do that for you. Um, but I can tell you right now, just finding out information about facilities is going to be pretty hard for you. Um, because Is there are, a federal governing body that's, that rules over these nursing homes, or is it state by state, kind of like Medicaid working the federal government to get funding? Yeah, it's a bit of both. I mean, there are different rules regarding ownership. There are rules regarding um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid services. Um, so regulations come from various entities. Um, and then there's, you know, you can have all sorts of regulations, but who's policing them? Who's studying that information? Um, this whole series that we're doing with the Guardian and EHRP um, Economic Hardship Reporting Project, um, we decided to base in Philadelphia because they have one of the largest elder low-income populations um, in the country. And what we wanted to see was how this kind of structure was affecting um, individuals who are already receiving um, all sorts of discrimination um, based on class or race or um, age. And um, we were happy to be in Philadelphia because um, just last year, uh, Senators Casey, uh, who's a Democrat, and Toomey, who's a Republican, um, not, I'm not a fan of either one, but they got together and did something good, which was release a whole bunch of information on nursing facilities uh, that CMS probably at the hands of um, the industry, and Casey admitted that to me in an interview on the phone, um, uh, that CMS had been sitting on for years, um, despite lots of requests for it. And what that is is kind of the long list of troubled facilities. Right. So Pennsylvania was a great state to look at. What does it cost to go to a nursing home? Oh, it could be anywhere from 300 to 500 a day, but it depends on what you need. It depends on where you are, um, uh, uh, and it depends on what kind of coverage you've got, if you've got private insurance or if um, you are indeed down to Medicare and Medicaid. All right, help me understand this. So once you turn 65, you're on Medicare. You're, you're done with private insurance. Is that correct? Um, you're probably going to get into the weeds a little too much for me. Um, All right, so let's say 67. Because it's complex. Okay. Right. Well, okay, so there's like you you have a, a med, you have private insurance to cover the the difference, but for the most part, nursing homes are paid for if you're over 65. I always think of nursing homes for people over the age of you know in their 70s, right? Well, not necessarily. I mean, there's some people who go in earlier, but also not all. We, we are using this term nursing home um, very liberally. Um, assisted facilities, assisted living facilities have a completely different um, regulation structure and requirements. Um, and These are so, people who might be autistic or disabled or. Um, and that's a that's a yes. Um, nursing homes can include um, in um, uh, um say, um, memory centers and, and dementia care or um, uh, uh, adults with disability. So um, there might be a, a nursing home. You see the building and one floor could be people over the age of 70. Another floor could be people with disabilities. It could be the whole. They're range. usually not mixed up like that. For the most part, we're seeing elders who are um, no longer to live on their own no longer able to live on their own. They can't um, complete their um, daily living activities or activities, ADLs, activities right. of daily living. Um, and so they need assistance. And if they don't have private funds, they need 
to find a facility that will help them out. They can't hire someone to come into their home to age in and, place. So I'm trying, I'm yeah. trying to pigeonhole this. I know it's, it's very yeah. complicated. Yeah. And I'm not trying to divide it into this manichaean good versus evil and all that kind of stuff. But when we think of nursing homes, let's just for the, for the sake of conversation, we're talking about people who are on Medicare. Is that a, the majority of them would be on Medicare. The majority of them would be in the neighborhood of 70, 71. Right. And, and let's say for normal people, if you're not, you will be very soon because these facilities are incredibly expensive. And the objective for every family at the moment, um, sadly, um, is to spend down your private assets or if you had the forethought, um, you know, give them away to your family um, so that you do qualify for state coverage, state and federal coverage, Medicare and Medicaid. Well, um, doesn't Medicare cover nursing homes? It does, yes, but for a short period of time. And once Medicare runs out, then you have Medicaid. And that is um, the dangerous period of time in any resident's life, okay, as an individual on told one, me. Hang on yeah. for once. I, I'm sorry. To, this is, it's complicated. It's, it's very complicated, complicated. And it's yeah. one of those things we don't think about. And, yeah. you know, you wrote a book called The Good Death. So you're writing about stuff that we choose not to think about. And because we don't think about it, the vulture capitalists are able to go in and take advantage of us. So let's say you're 75 years old, you're, you're healthy, and then suddenly you're not, and you need to go into a nursing home, and you've put aside some money for your, your wife. Mm-hmm. Okay, but she can't take care of me anymore, so I'm going into a nursing home, honey. And uh, hopefully I won't meet anybody. Anyway, uh, I'm just trying. Okay, so I go to the nursing home and I have this money set aside for my wife. What happens to that money? I'm in a nursing home now. Does Medicare take care of me? Um, I think there are rules governing spousal assets. I'm not sure how they work, though, um, and I think you'd have to look at it. I'm not sure if it varies by state. What we're looking at here are individuals with, and I want to get into the care, because okay. the money's really complex. You need a lawyer, right. um, and if you don't have a lawyer, you need to spend a lot of time with um, the individuals that I spend a lot of time with. Right. What is the um, care but, like in these nursing homes? Uh, well, um it depends on which one you're in. You can find good people and bad people. But um, what we're finding are um, a number of systemic problems, systemic problems that um, are uh, um, showing themselves in this pay structure that are um, uh, damaging the quality of life for individuals. The one that we tackled in this first segment is transfer trauma, and that happens to deal with that moment in time when patients are, they've run out of their Medicare, um, they need long-term care, they're no longer looking at some rehab services, and um, what they're finding is that facilities are bouncing them around, facilities that would prefer the higher scale of Medicare, and so they'll um, send you out to the hospital. That's called hospital dumping if they want to clear up a bed for a higher-paying patient. Um, And there are a number of reasons that can be used, and um, those reasons can be skewed to serve the purposes of a particular um, desire for for the facility. Wow. We have Professor Harvey J.K. here, so I don't want to keep him waiting. And I'd love it if you could come back and we could really 
go into go into this because it's uh it's the conversation that nobody wants to have and right. and if you don't have that conversation you're screwed yeah. so your article appears in the guardian that is a british mm-hmm. newspaper do we see this in england um well, online is everywhere, right? Um, no, 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 not, not the Guardian. I'm talking about the, <laughs> this, the, problem? this problem. Yeah, not so much, though. I mean, in the United States, we have a particular love of for-profit, um, and we don't have the same protections, particularly in areas of healthcare. Right. So do you, do you have for-profit nursing homes in Great Britain? Do, do you? Yeah. I, I think for-profit nursing homes exist everywhere. I mean, there are people with a lot of money that don't want to be in with the hoi polloi. Right. Yeah. And, and, but, but we don't see the, the abuse that we do here in America. Well, sadly, we don't see it here either. Um, it yes. probably, it, it, it occurs here. Um, but we um, see but it, we, we're seeing it because of the economic hardship reporting project. Um, we're seeing it because of the COVID crisis, right? Um, what the COVID crisis did was take all of these weaknesses within the existing um, industry, all of these systemic problems, and amplify them and actually use them to cause the mass deaths that we've seen. Ann Newman is author of The Good Death. She's a contributing nonfiction editor for Guernica, and her she's doing a series of articles right now for The Guardian that talk about the state of nursing homes in America, and it's made possible in part by the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. Your Twitter handle is Other Spoon. Why? Can I talk about it when we come back? (laughs) Look, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, hi. I'm very happy to hear your explanation for Other Spoon. And anything else you want to say, like you can take my segment. No, 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 no. No, no, keep keep going. Do you you know Professor Harvey J.K.? I do do now. Hi, Harvey. How are you? You should should know Professor Harvey J.K. And you'll come back. Thank you so much. Uh, People can follow you on Twitter at Other Spoon. And if they want to contact you, if they have tips, how would they do that? Uh, Other Spoon is great. My DMs are open. Or you can email me at lannnewman at gmail.com. Fantastic. Stand along for Are we one. giving tips now, did you say? Send me send me tips. You've got stories? Send them <laughs> no, to I me. Thought, sorry. That was... Oh, you thought... No. No. That's... Collection jar? No. No. <laughs> Professor Harvey used to be a moil, so that's what he thought. Stay on the line for one second. <laughs> We don't get a chance to talk. We're, We're going to talk. talk. We're going to talk with Professor Harvey J.K. Uh, I want to vent with you. Vent. Let's vent. Are you angry with me? No, let's just vent in general. I mean, I the stuff yeah. that's just coming over, right. like nursing homes and, you know, it it almost seems Harvey J. Professor Harvey J.K. is back. He is the author of so many great books. Where do we even begin? Thomas Paine. We're going to, we're not going to talk about Thomas. Not tonight. Not tonight. I can talk about anything you want tonight. Okay. I will tell you. Okay. If just for everyone's information, 
My most recent books are Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again. Yes. And very, very recently, FDR and Democracy. And I think both are utterly, entirely, completely, profoundly relevant to what we're going through right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me lower everybody's hands because we we do. But but what's interesting, we have 70 participants with five people left after and retreated. I think we have about 70. Well, I'm not. There were 75 before. This says 70 now. Well, because I have people. Anyway, so uh, Professor Harvey J.K. is here. And if you want to talk to Professor Harvey J.K., raise your hand and and we will talk to him. I have a lot. I'm happy to hear people tonight because. I, I mean, I'm I'm just I don't I'm just astounded by what I don't even know where to begin. Um, you've been busy, so you probably don't know what Trump has been doing these last few hours. What? Well, you know that he has brought federal troops into the district. Yeah. To operate in the district. Uh, right now, I believe they're standing by around the White House or something like that. But this is the other thing. Even as he goes on TV to talk about how he believes in peaceful protest, um, basically the D.C. police were responding. I think it was the D.C. police were responding to peaceful protesters with tear gas and rubber bullets. And then and then. Trump himself decides it's imperative for a good photo op. So you've heard nothing of this, right? I'm busy reporting the news. Right, exactly. I don't have time to so he know what's led going an on. Entourage, an entourage of his cabinet and others, including Ivanka and his press secretary, out of the White House, across the street to the Episcopal Church that's right across the street. It's not St. John's or something like that. And he took, a, he took the opportunity to have a photo. He took the opportunity to do a photo thing. So he held up a Bible as if he knew it was, I mean, I took take for granted he knew it was a Bible, but um, to do a photo op in front of the church, just literally a photo op, and then goes back over to the White House. Now, the interesting thing about this as well is that on CNN, they brought on the bishop, the Episcopal Bishop of the Washington Diocese, or Archdiocese, whatever they call it, and um, she basically said she was shocked to see that he some that he felt it in in his powers to go use the church for the photo op with ever, without ever having checked with them. Okay, I mean it was it, what we've seen the last few hours. And oh, by the way, then you wouldn't have heard also about his 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 words to state governors that if uh, that if they didn't use the national guard effectively to to maintain law and order, he would send in federal troops. Which, by the way, is constitutionally questionable but we're talking about a guy who talk is talking very much not like a wannabe dictator but someone who believes he is the dictator now we were on with andrew Valinsky's running for governor of new hampshire and we talked uh-huh. about posse comitatus earlier and he oh, yeah. insists that there's no way that the president of the united states can use federal troops to arrest american citizens yeah, there is something called the Insurrection Act. I don't know enough about it to say if if your if your former guest was right or wrong. But on CNN or wherever it was that I passed by, they spoke as if this was an option, though it would mean going against the wishes, likely, of the state governors of those states that he would probably target for his ambitions. 
Right, and they would be blue states, no doubt. Yeah. So and, it's like Michigan, uh, Minnesota, you know. Well, those are swing states. Yeah, but there are Democratic governors. Democratic governors. And how do you think the voters would react in November? Well, well, it's interesting. Some of the people they spoke to, including some National Guard-type folks, were really horrified by his behavior and his words. So, you know, I've learned not to believe that anything he does will necessarily alienate any of the 30% of people who are determined to vote for him. But I would imagine anyone who was independent of either party would have to, unless, unless literally they are, you know, just so afraid of the possibility of peaceful protesters marching on upper middle class suburbs. Right. I can't imagine that. Anyone well, let me ask you about Wisconsin. And by the way, the Q&A doesn't work tonight, so I cannot read your Q&As. It, it seems to be frozen. Oh, yeah. So, uh, I, and so there, if there are any questions uh, in the Q&A, I apologize, but it's frozen. Yeah, if they want to, if they want to, I don't know, there's a chat, but that may not work. Yeah, and so you live in Wisconsin, swing state. You have a Democratic oh. governor right now. Democratic governor, a legislature utterly controlled by the Republicans, and a state Supreme Court, which nine times out of ten will express its conservative domination. So talk to me about November. Let's say, hypothetically speaking, things got out of hand in Milwaukee. How is it in Milwaukee right now? Well, there have been protests. Okay, let's say you needed to send in... But here's the thing. Hypothetically speaking, you need to send in the National Guard. The National Guard apparently is in Milwaukee. Okay, but hypothetically speaking, what would happen if Trump sent in federal troops to Wisconsin? How would the voters react to that in November? Uh, You know, the first thing to know is that Wisconsin voted for Trump in 2016. But this is a state that historically, in recent history, has voted blue in presidential elections. It was a a sign of the outrage at the political establishments. Having said that, I think it's one thing to to want to punch the political establishments in the nose. It's another thing to want to see federal troops ordered into your biggest city. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, I would also add that Milwaukee is it's a it's a city with a very very large black population, significant Latino population. It's historically a blue collar city. Um, talking the city, not the county that surrounds it. And it's not unlikely that there would be people out in the countryside, say in northwestern Wisconsin or even western Wisconsin, who might well see Milwaukee as a, an, as a city that, though part of Wisconsin, is not in their world. So I can't predict how that would impact them. But I could tell you that Wisconsin is no longer no longer the all-white state beyond Milwaukee that it, that was. Do you remember... I mean, Kennedy sent to, he sent the, who did he send in to integrate the schools with, uh, or threaten to send? Well, that was Eisenhower who sent in federal troops, or maybe he federalized the National Guard. I think he sent in, actually sent in federal troops to make sure that the integration of the Little Rock schools 
occurred. So this is so, but to send in for the Pentagon to be more, not the National Guard. Uh, well, has that ever you, happened before? You can nationalize the guard. In other words, they're under the command of the of the governor, but you can nationalize the guard and but go I, against I, the governor if you're the president. Yeah, but I th- you're thinking, I believe, when. Was it guards? Was National Guard used, or federal troops used to integrate the University of Alabama? Yeah, when Wallace was standing, but he he stood down. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Let's go to Lane. He's been waiting. Hey, Lane, you're in you're in CM. You're in CM, correct? Yes, we do. You're in England. In England, yes. Just a second. Shut up, dog. I'm okay. I'm quiet. I'm quiet. <laughs> <laughs> out of my mouth. There's a hedgehog outside, and he's barking at a hedgehog. Okay. Anyway, um, given that we on the left have been the most vocal about um, the need for a proper lockdown and that during COVID, and given that predominantly these protesters are we on the left, how concerned should we be that the the right will use any spike that we've been predicting in COVID um, we'll use that as a weapon to beat the left as it were because that's my concern about this whole protest I'm 100% behind it but not not in the era of COVID basically I think it's a a massive mistake Uh, Thank you Lane What do you think? Professor. Well, he led me to recall a picture I saw today, which is different. It, two things. First, there were, you know, sort of, what do they call them? The guy, the, you know, the open carry, the ardent open carriers who turned out in some city to protect the downtown. Did you happen to see that earlier today? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What city was that? I'm forgetting already. Do you know? No. Okay. That's one thought that occurred to me. The other thought that occurred to me, of course, is when when such similar characters turned out in the Michigan state state of Michigan cap in Michigan's capital and here in Wisconsin to try to impress upon state legislators, the imperative of opening early. Okay. And you haven't se- we haven't seen anything like that on, on the part of these protesters. Um, you know, the, the protesters are peaceful. But whenever you get thousands and thousands of people turning out in protest to protest, to basically call for law and order, call for law and order for everyone equally, it's not surprising that there are folks who will try to take advantage of an opportunity, the anonymity of the crowd, you might say. So, for example, sounds funny at first to say it, but it turns out that Bloomingdale's was ransacked overnight. Okay. By venture capitalists? Exactly. You, you got the idea. The point, you know, and we can come back to that. But the thing is that, people, what was it, you know, since the mass transit had shut down, apparently these people were organized to the effect of they were going to join these crowds. And then when the crowds had moved into an, another uh, territory of the city, another part of the city, they went in, did the ransacking, and, and had cars waiting for them outside. Hmm. Okay. Which I, were either Uber or friends. I don't know what right. the deal so it is organized by... Yeah, but the thing is that... By, by I mean, the people who own Bloomingdale's. Could well be. 
I mean, I look at I look at these I look at the stores that are being looted, and I think of our economy, and I think those stores a are probably not going to reopen, and b they're going to get looted with or without those guys throwing rocks and taking everything. That's how venture capital works. Yeah, no, I'm not going to argue with you about that. But my point is this, and this is what in in tune with Lane's Lane's question. The fact is that for the vast majority of Americans who are not involved, A, in protesting, but are probably sympathetic to the ambitions of the protesters to establish equality in law and order, as opposed to police killing African Americans, what happens is they see the image of looters, okay, and and it's that kind of activity that licenses the right to want to clamp down on right. peaceful protest, one, and to encourage the likes of Donald Trump and his ilk to say we're going to send in federal troops. I'm talking about the capacity of looters who take advantage of the situation to yeah. empower the worst elements of the governing class. I said this to a friend last night, and he got really upset because he's not a Bernie supporter. If okay. Bernie were the nominee, which is would have been conceivable had Obama kept his mouth Absolutely. shut. Absolutely, yes, right. Okay, Bernie's the nominee, and this is happening. The Democratic establishment and CNN would be saying, oh, this is Bernie has unleashed an anger. And it is his responsibility now to tamp it down. Wouldn't they be blaming the rioting on Bernie? Uh, no. I mean, they might try, but I could tell you something else. And that is, I ask myself, where is the Democratic leadership? And I'm sure they've issued nice statements. Go on Twitter. Everybody who ever wanted to be president has issued a nice statement. But Bernie would have been in a position of leadership where he, you know, he would be holding town halls. He would have the meet, he would be making sure but, that his that he spoke his. No, you don't agree. I'm telling you, I know that it would be a different story if Bernie Sanders had secured the it would, had become the presumptive nominee. Oh, do you think that there'd be rioting if Bernie secured the nomination? Well, wait a minute. Let's say there'd be protests. Would, would there, there be, be looting rioting? right now if Bernie had the nomination? Would there be protests? Yeah, sure there would. Absolutely. Okay, and you don't think. The neoliberal class that controls the media, that controls Washington, D.C., would promulgate a narrative that Bernie's candidacy has unleashed this latent anger. Yeah, I, I, I'm not arguing with you about their, what they might try to do. And it would backfire. In other words, this that Trump and the Hillary Clinton... Oh, yeah, and it would backfire. What? Happily to hear that. As long as you say, and it would backfire. No, no, no. What I'm saying it was that what I'm saying, no, what I'm saying is that Trump and Hillary yeah. and the Clintons yeah. and Obama would we'll find a way together? to, yes, to blame this on Bernie. Yeah, that, that's, that's a step too far. That's a step too far. You would not get Obama and Hillary lined up with Trump. However much they might be willing to to, to spout such stuff. Oh, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't say it publicly, but they'd say things like, you see what happens? You you nominate Bernie 
And this is what happens. They, they get the, the, the worst element tastes blood. That's what they'd be saying right now. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's hard to say otherwise, given what we saw them do. Okay. But I imagine a vaster force. If Bernie were the candidate, a vaster force. Right now, if there are thousands of people turned out in the streets, and, if, and I think there would be that many more people if Bernie was the candidate. And more, I, you I, think I, more people would be taken to the streets? Yeah, absolutely. Right now, in, in light of Trump's behavior, absolutely. Okay, so that makes my case, that more people would be taken to the streets. Yeah, and, I didn't say you were wrong. Well, and, and there'd be more looting. And then, and then there'd be the agent provocateurs who would... You know what you're saying is what you're saying is damned if we do and damned if we damned don't. if we do and damned. Yeah, that's if we the don't. cynical David Feldman we have to be wary of. Right, right. Uh, tell me about I, I've been mispronouncing his name. Shad Butar. Shad is coming on Thursday. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you're going to be with us, right? Am I going to get to ask questions? Yes. You just asked one. You see, you just asked me. Are you going to get to ask questions? That was a great question. Can I just tell you? Can I just tell yeah. you that? Look, everyone knows you and I are buddies. As that goes without saying. Okay? Yeah. But I actually spent some time working up some questions because we had talked about how these interviews would work. And I sat here and I realized how you really got into it. I was really, I was, I was pleased how you got into it. Well, so what? Good. We'll have her back, and you ask the questions. No, I, I, that's okay too. I'm not averse to to, to doing okay. that. But I was glad. No, no, I'm, you've got to understand. I was really pleased, and I thought your questions were good, and I think she really enjoyed it. I could see from the look on her face she really enjoyed it. I ask tough questions. You well, could, I mean, keep in mind she's a young young politician up against tremendous odds, tremendous odds, and at the same time she has you know a personal story which is interesting, and she's also organized. Comedy, comedy, comedic activities to make you know the life of a comic a little safer, um, and to raise money for them. I, I, she's she's got a she's she probably enjoyed the opportunity to be with David Feldman. Yeah, and the great thing is we've had two comedians who are running for Congress on in the past week. Chris Armitage is running in Washington, and he's endorsed uh -huh. by Howie Klein, and he was great and funny. And, okay. and even younger than uh, Miss uh, Ashcraft. Ashcraft, yeah. Yeah, Lauren Ashcraft. And you, and you pronounced it right, Ashcraft. I didn't call her Ashcroft. And one time, I, I, I don't know if Michael will see this 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 segment, my, our friend Michael Brooks, but when he had <laughs> he had her on, he was calling her Ashcroft. Ah, yeah. yeah, but he's done a lot. He's done a lot with her to, and to help her campaign. Yeah, so I, I'm going to go to the debates or watch them at least. Professor Harvey J.K. is the Ben and Joyce Rosenberg Professor of Democracy Studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. His latest book is FDR on Democracy, the Greatest Speeches and Writings of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. If you want to read the greatest speeches and writings of Professor Harvey J.K., Go by Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again. We didn't get to Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. We will, hopefully, next week. Alex overbooked the show, as usual. Who's and Alex? Alex, I'm, 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 Alex books the show. And the fight for the four freedoms, what made FDR and the greatest generation truly great. When we come back, he took on the Gambino family 
but can he take on David Feldman? Bert Ross <laughs> joins us. <laughs> You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. An American hero joins us, Burt Ross. He was the mayor of Fort Lee, and he brought down the mob. And he is my hero. When I was growing up, my father ordered me to have two heroes, Ralph Nader and Burt Ross. And Burt joins us, I believe, from Malibu. Hello, Burt. Hello, David. How is my? I have questions to ask, David. Okay. I'm a boomer, not a zoomer. But are are people watching this? Well, we have a virtual studio audience of about seventy people right now, and they come and go throughout the day. We started recording at four o'clock on Monday afternoon. It's now nine forty. And we're we're still going. And I have to say, I'm doing remarkably well. I'm actually saving time and money by recording this live to tape. So I don't have to but edit it. Question. Yeah. Can these Zoomers talk to you? They they talk to me. They they raise Can their. They ask me questions. They could ask, ah yes they could. That's why I want them to meet you. They could ask you questions. Now you're talking. This might be the first time that I've enjoyed being on your show. <laughs> Wait, you haven't met my listeners yet. They're worse than I am. Uh, in, impossible. <laughs> cannot be. I, and if any of these listeners know how to reach David's mother, <laughs> I need I need to talk to David Feldman's mother. You're going to tell Absolutely. on me. You're going to tell on me. My- I I am willing to give out to your to your Zoomers my email address. If you can find out Mrs. Feldman's contact information, send it to Burt Ross Realty. One word: b u r t r o s s r e a l p y at gmail dot com. Right. Let, let to speak. All right. So so let us introduce you to some listeners because we have new listeners all the time Bert Ross was the mayor of Fort Lee, New Jersey when I was a kid and he was a kid and Fort Lee is right over the George Washington Bridge which we'll talk about in a second because I believe that case has gone into the dust heap of history that's a whole other story the mafia came to Bert's office and said here's $500,000 Now you're going to let us build a mall. And Bert said, I'll be right back. He called the FBI. He got wired up and went in and met with the mob. He was wearing a wire. He took the half a million dollars and gave it all over, gave it all, gave all the money over to the FBI. And then the mafia tried to kill him. He went into hiding, but several high level gangsters went to prison because of Burt Ross's bravery. Back then, half a million dollars. This was what year? 71, 72, 76? 
I think it was actually 74. 74. What would that half a million be worth today? I don't know. They didn't give me any of the money back, but they did give me a receipt, and I gave them the money. <laughs> did you have to declare I, it on your taxes? I, I, I don't think I had it long enough. They actually they didn't give me the whole half a million. They gave me a $100,000 good faith deposit, which, by the way, I thought was good faith. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I drove about, I guess, three, four miles to FBI headquarters in in those days, it was in the Hackensack. And uh, they had, on Memorial Day on Monday, they had a dozen FBI agents with plastic gloves, and they counted them. And one of them bet me a dollar that uh, it would be short. And I bet them that it would be exactly correct. It was all in the tens and twenties. Mm-hmm. And it was exactly $100,000. And I walked out of FBI headquarters with a $1 bill, and a receipt for $100,000. Wow. Pretty efficient, yeah. Now, I then met Burt Ross. He doesn't remember this, but I... In co- I do. Don't, don't say that. When did we meet? I, I, we met at a uh, reunion at Dwight Morrow oh. that uh, my wife, who was an alumnus, Joan, an alumna, and you performed, there were a bunch of uh, performers, you were terrific. Thank you. You were absolutely All right, I'll give you my mother's terrible. number. But that's not when we met. You don't remember. I, I, in college, I was a police reporter at the Hudson Dispatch. Uh-huh. And I was ordered, commanded to do a story about gas prices. And I was ordered to call Burt Ross, who at the time was head of New Jersey's Department of Energy. The only thing I liked about that job was being called czar. You were the energy czar of New Jersey. Yeah, was not it to say energy. I, I preferred the title czar. You were the you were the czar of New Jersey. Yes. Yes. And I interviewed you for the Hudson Dispatch, and you were not nice to me, even though even though you were my hero. You were not nice to me. Did you know that? Well, no, this is the first I've heard that I was not nice to you. You said right. you better you better get this right. I swear to you, Bert. You said you better get this right. I don't want to read this paper and come down there and yell at you in front of your editor. This is what you said to me. You get this right. You quote me properly. You were not suffering fools gladly. You were tough as the energies are. Doesn't I have to tell you it doesn't sound like me. It was you. Well, uh, you're a tough guy. I, I yes, but I would not to to a young reporter. It doesn't sound like anything I would say. Well, you were the yeah, energy czar. You may have done something to have offended me. I said, I, 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 I think I told you you were my hero, and you were taken aback by that. And I treated you that way. And then. The, the, could I talk to the Zoomers for a minute? No, I just want to do it. Hang on. What, what is pulling? Hang on for one second. Hang on. Hang on. What is in New Jersey? I have coined the phrase pulling a Burt Ross. And, and you know, and it hasn't caught on. But everybody in New Jersey <laughs> should call it pulling a Burt Ross. Tell tell the people of we have a lot of listeners in New Jersey. What what is your Great contribution to New Jersey's culture. 
What did you give the people of New Jersey, Bert Ross? Ah, right turn on red light. Right turn on red light. Until Bert Ross was the energy czar, this is true, until Bert was the energy czar of New Jersey, when you came to a red light, you, you couldn't make a right turn. And do you know that I purposely, when I run errands to visit my mother, I make sure that I can make at least five right turns on a red light just so I can think of you? That's how I map I, my my errands. That's great. I love that. It's um, actually it was so strange because I remember when I had just gotten the appointment that I was in a some limo with the governor, Governor Byrne, Brendan Byrne. Brendan Byrne. And I I told him about this idea of because New Jersey was not the first state. There were several states, including I had learned it from Florida. I visited my folks down there. Uh, and there you could make a right turn on red light. And Florida, you can make and a I left did. turn on red light. In Florida, if you're old <laughs> enough, why not? <laughs> you can go the through a red light. Me, the governor said to me, the attorney general is not in favor of it. And I felt like saying, who cares? You're the governor. And so I went to the attorney general, uh, Bill Hyland. Uh, these are all people who are long gone. And... Um, Bill Hyland said, no, I have four. So I went back to the governor and finally convinced him. I said, Governor, this is one in a million where you have nobody opposed to it. The environmentalists are for it. Everybody who's running late is for it. it it's a gift. No, but the and petroleum industry would be against it. Who? The petroleum industry would be against it. No, no, no. They, they were, everybody was thrilled. I, I'm not sure we had any opposition whatsoever. Um, and they think of legislation and how rare it is to come up with something that everybody likes. You did it. Well, no, I, look, this was far from an original idea. I, by the way, have not had an original idea in 77 years. I have no problem <laughs> stealing all over the place. Why not? It's a, you're a comedian. You are too. Some uh, routines, a joke here or there. You're a comedian. You're a humor columnist David, now. You're not. You're not answering the question. What? Haven't you stolen somebody's material once Never. in a while? Never. 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 I've borrowed it. No. Never. 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 <laughs> never. 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 No. I would never. I, you know what? I'll, I'll, you want me to fess up? There's one, Larry Brown, who I started with. There's one joke that I use when I'm on the road that is his, but I'm not even sure it's his. If I'm playing a crappy town, like where do you live, Malibu? Yes. Uh, Larry used to open with Malibu on a Saturday night. Wow, my career's on fire. And I like to open with that. And that's Larry's, and but it's kind of, so that's the closest I've come to pinching somebody else's joke. No, I don't take people's that's, jokes. That's yeah. So, David, let me ask you a question. You spoke at a gra college graduation in California. What was the name of that school? Pitzer College. What? Pitzer College. Spell it. P-I, it's a great, it's a one of the top schools in California, Pitzer, P-I-T-Z-E-R. Not 
to be confused with the higher people, which is Pritzker, and governor of Illinois. Yes. Can you, can you tell the Zoomers who are watching and listening, they have the advantage of seeing you, whereas I can only hear you. Right. Can you tell them your opening your introductory remarks? I don't remember them. I don't remember. They can, but they can Google it to see David Feldman's commencement address at Pitzer College. I you gave really it. Don't I don't remember any of it. Were you, I don't. Were you? No. Okay. Well, it was ten you, years you ago. It's on YouTube. Okay, I, I I watched it. I thought it was great. It was enough anyway, hero worship. Thank let's, you. Let's move it on. Now you're a humor columnist for. Is it the Malibu Times? Yes, it's the Malibu Times and. Anybody who wants to go to the Malibu Times website and you go under the category of opinion and you do some clicking and there is blog and you'll see hundreds of my blogs. When you moved to when you moved to to Malibu, I believe it was about 10 years ago, right? Well, eight eight and a half. Eight and a half. Close enough. Yeah. And you told me you wanted to write a humor column. I said. And, I, and you did. And I thought you were, you know, I said, what do you want to be a humor columnist for? Why would you want to do that? Um, the devil made me do it. I just, I just see everything. I think you do, do also. I think people who are in, in, in the humor business of one form or another, we have almost like these shaded glasses. Please. And everything we see kind of goes through a humor filter. But why do you why do you want to get into comedy? You're a lawyer? Well, I never practiced law. I was a member of the bar for I don't know, almost fifty years, but I I just love humor. It keeps me alive. Without humor I, I would just shrivel up. I and it doesn't have to be my humor. I love other people's humor. But why aren't you out there slaying dragons? I mean you took on the mob. Uh well, first of all, I'm very, very in love with my wife, Joan, and she has made it clear that uh, that would not be well received, that, that I've done enough slaying of the dragon. She's a very private person, and she, um, I'm tempted, but um, it's actually the reason I've, I've been asked by some people to run in Malibu, and it's, it's a bad idea because it would only be for the humor of being like the youngest mayor on the East Coast and then the oldest mayor on the West Coast. That's not a good reason. You were the youngest when you were mayor of Fort Lee, New Jersey. I was the youngest mayor in the country at 28. You were the youngest mayor in the country. Of a, of a, of a town of, you know, what we were 35,000. There may have been a town in the Midwest with, you know, a couple hundred people. Wasn't Kucinich, wasn't Dennis Kucinich the youngest mayor around that time in Cleveland? Uh, I have no idea how old he was. I don't. I don't remember his name when I was uh, when I was mayor. We can look it up. But were I you single or married when you were the mayor of Fort Lee? I was single, um, uh, but for not not for very long. And and the women loved you, my sister. When I say Bert Ross is going to be on my show, her heart skips a beat. The women in Anglewood loved you. Well, I married a woman from England. They loved you. Who, who went to your school. Yeah. They, the women were in... You are a sex symbol. Did you know uh, 
Was Richard Lewis at Dwight Morrow when you were there? Richard Lewis, he's older than I am, but he went to Dwight Morrow. Yeah. His father catered my mitzvah. Really? And I saw Richard Lewis. Richard Lewis, I went to a Knicks game. And Richard Lewis was busy signing autographs. And I sneaked behind him. And I said, your dad catered my mitzvah. And he turned around. He said, you did anything quickly signed a couple of them. And I thought, you know, his father was a wonderful guy, very hyper like Richard, but much thinner, smoked cigarettes constantly, died, I'm not sure he made it to his 60s. He had hmm. a heart attack, which I don't think was much older than 14 when his dad died. Hmm. You could not be Jewish in Teaneck, New Jersey, where I grew up, and not have your bar catered by Ambassador Cater, Bill Miller. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Bill Lewis. And he was just a wonderful guy. Uh, very creative, and uh, it's such a loss because imagine when you become a great success and your father never saw you uh, reach that. Uh, you know, it's got to be a very heartbreaking thing. Wait, wait a second, you grew up in Teaneck? Yes. Wait, wait, I thought your father invented like a. Well, he didn't invent it. He, my father. Uh, may rest in peace, founded a company called Evans Rule Company, which back in the 1950s and 60s was the largest manufacturer of tape measures in the world. The tape and, measure business? Yes, and in those days, by far, the biggest seller of hardware was Sears Roebuck. And he, every tape measure and folding wooden rule and chalk line that was sold by Sears was under the, that was sold under the Craftsman name, which was their name, the Sears name. Uh, was manufactured by uh, my dad's company. Your dad manufactured tape measures. Yep. For Sears. Well, he, he, a lot more than Sears. That was just his biggest customer. And where were yeah, they manufactured? Where were they manufactured? Well, he in those days it was manufactured uh, in um, Newark. No, actually, it was in uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey, and then in. Um, Puerto Rico. There was a, a, a program called Operation Bootstraps in the 1950s, and they gave some tax breaks, and so they had a plant in Highlands, uh, which is on the, I think, the west coast of Puerto Rico. And they also had an assembly plant uh, in uh, Montreal, Montreal. All right, so hang on for one second. Was your father alive when the mafia offered you half a million dollars? Absolutely. Almost killed him. <laughs> yes, he was. They, <laughs> Did he say, "Can't you have to give the FBI all of it?" What would, what would he have told you to do? Did you did you call him for advice? Well, what actually happened was that uh, you know the mob tries everything. They try threats. They try uh, money. And they mentioned to me at one point um, that um, they had two two women in the oranges and. For your listeners, the Oranges are a group of, of towns in New Jersey. There's West Orange, uh, East Orange, and Orange. I don't know what happened to North Orange, but the, whatever. And uh, these two women in the Oranges could make my hair stand on end. And this was all being taped. I was being worried by the FBI. They told you these two it. women could make your hair stand on end? Yes, it's an image, by the way, that I will take to the grave. But much as I love my wife, uh, I've never had my hair stand on, and that's something that's just unimaginable. Right. So when my father heard the tape, 
at trial. He came to me and he said, don't you ever do that again. You tell them your father would be interested. <laughs> Thank you. So wait a second. Actually, well, yeah. so, so hang on. So so you, you, you turned down the half a million dollars, which would have been worth today 20, 40? Had you bought Apple? No, no, no. <laughs> if you had bought Apple. Uh, there was no Apple. Was yeah, no but money. I mean, you would have, you kept the money. And then, you know. It was, it, it was, a, it was a, a significant. Back then, that was a lot of money. It's, excuse me. David. It still is. A half a million dollars. A half a million dollars is a lot of money today. I, I know that. I, know. I don't know. You're, I don't know who, who's zooming in. I don't know if there's 70 people. Can you see if any of the 70 are still there? They're, they're listening. They're hanging on your every word. And they're wondering, had you okay. taken that half a million dollars and then retired quietly? Mm. I, I, I Quietly and Burt Ross don't go together. <laughs> okay. So you had to go into hiding. Uh, now, I remember that you were on the cover. That's right. You got many. The, the Gambino family wanted to kill you, and you went into hiding for how long? Three and a half months. Three and a half months. Well, see, the, the problem was that the trial was originally going to be in September, and one of the defendants, one of the people who had been indicted, based on my uh, on my testimony, that based on the recordings, <clears throat> he turned state's evidence. When that happened, the trial was postponed another six months until I decided I had to come back and be near. And so I had a lot of protection. And, uh, by the way, your your audience can get a book. I'm not trying to sell it. I'm holding it. It's called The Bribe by Philip Ross, your brother, not Philip Roth, another Correct. Jersey. This is what Richard Reeves, he just passed away. This is what Richard Reeves says about The Bribe. The Bribe is one of the most revealing books ever written about American politics because, at its worst, politics is about money. That's why one mayor can be offered a $500,000 bribe. This time, the mayor... Bert Ross turned it down, which makes the bribe one hell of a story. And Bert Ross is some kind of crazy Jewish Serpico. You read very well, David. You're a crazy Jew. Actually, if, if that's the hard copy, you can get the hard copy or the, or the paperback on Amazon. Uh, and that, and for people who are interested in the story, um, that, it's an amazing story, and this and now his brother wrote the book, but Bert signed it for me to my friend David. Keep making people laugh. It's a wonderful gift you have, Bert. Thank you. That's very sweet. But where do you get off with stolen valor? Where do you get off? With, autographing with a book your brother wrote. How dare you? Who was your brother? Give me back. Give me back. To, uh, my brother is is unbelievable. My brother is going to be eighty one. The end of this month, he's almost four years older than I. And by the way, has always been that, which I find fascinating. He's always been four years older than you. Yeah, I don't get it. But in any case. He, about almost a year ago, he loses his wife. 
Now, that's a terrible word. It's, it's, Barbara did not go into the woods and disappear. She died. When we say she, he lost her. So she was a wonderful person, and I was very concerned about my brother. He's, he's up in the Adirondack Mountains alone uh, in, a, in, a, on a, in a house overlooking a little pond. And so every day I would call him. And New Year's Day, I called him, like I did every day, and I said, Phil, how, how late did you stay up last night? And he said, um, uh, one in the morning. I said, well, what were you doing at one in the morning? He said, uh, I was Skyping with a friend. And I said, you were Skyping with a friend. At this point, he must have thought I was hard of hearing. Everything he said, I repeated. Mm-hmm. He was, what He said, I reconnected my high school prom date. And of course, I said, you reconnected with the high school prom date. The long and short of it is that they're living together. He reconnected with his high school prom date. And you, I mean, I've never heard of anything like that. That's sweet. Yes, it's poignant. It's, it's like a Valentine story. I have to switch subjects and ask you a question. Well, I, I want to. Uh, your brother's a journalist. He was a journalist. He uh, he wrote, uh, I think, three cover stories for New York Magazine. Uh, Did he write the cover story, story about you for New York Magazine? You were on the cover of New York it Magazine. Excerpt, it was an excerpt. It was an excerpt uh, from the book. You were on the cover of New York Magazine wearing yes. a bulletproof vest, and my father held it up and said, "This is your hero, Bert Ross." I'm sorry I didn't have a chance to meet your dad, and I look forward to meeting your mother. You're going to tell on me. You're going to tell. You should also mention that that Bert took on Bernie Madoff. I took on Bernie Madoff. I think he took me (laughs) for a small ride. um, I testified at at, uh, his sentencing, and um, I think I spoke rather powerfully. I remember watching Uh, you on the news. And I... And... And... I'm I'm violating a trust, but I know you want to read something before we go. Jared Kushner, I'm I'm going to just say this. This is how I understand history. That because of Burt Ross, Jared Kushner's father had to cough up $2 million to Harvard. Because Burt Ross did the interview, the college interview for Harvard, for Jared Kushner. His father had to donate about two and a half million dollars to get Jared in. Is that a fair statement? I, I, first of all, the two and a half million dollars and Charles Kushner had nothing to do with my interviewing him. So those are t- totally disconnected. Did you or did you not? Did you not do the alumni interviews for Harvard? I did. I, did interview Jared Kushner for Harvard as well as many other yes. right and and, and, it is, and and is it or is it not your responsibility after said interview to make a recommendation to Harvard as to whether or not Jared Kushner is Harvard material answer answer me a little more complicated than that but if it would make you happy I would say yes to that so you cost the Kushner family two and a half million dollars because of your recommendation or lack thereof. 
the Kushner family. Oh, you're saying that because I didn't recommend them. I, and that's a, first of all, you don't know what I said, nor am I telling anybody because it's confidential. Um, I've always said simply that he didn't get into Harvard because of me. Um, but, but his father's gift didn't hurt. But, this is a terrific lead-on. Lead on. Before you what get to that, is it fair? You are my hero. It's not the letter. You're. Hang on for one second. You're my hero, okay? You took on the mob. Mm-hmm. You could have written a recommendation to Harvard for Jared Kushner that would have gotten them in, right? But apparently after that work. interview... No, it doesn't, time out, time out. It doesn't work that way. You can... You can write a strong interview for somebody and they don't necessarily take that person if you wrote a negative interview i think it might hurt the person's getting in but again that would not necessarily uh be decisive it's just one of many elements why don't you just take the praise and say because of you the Kushner family is two and a half million dollars lighter today. Because that doesn't make sense. Charles Kushner would have given Harvard two and a half million dollars, regardless of whether Burt Ross or anybody else interviewed his son. The two aren't related, but it, it leads it leads to something that's important. Have you you get Netflix? Do I have what? Do you get Netflix? I have Netflix, yes. Have you seen Filthy Rich about Epstein? Not yet. It is imperative. I understand your political views, and I have to tell you at times, like watching that, where I come very close to your political views. This is an example of how... People with big money can buy everything. And this reflects upon Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, and Alan Dershowitz. And it is... And Harvard. Extraordinary. And Harvard. Because they took his money. You know... When you take somebody's money, you don't necessarily know who they are. Okay. But he had an... Well, we have to wrap it up. Let's continue this, because uh, we have the irritable immunologist and Henry Hakamaki, whose name I'm always mispronouncing, but we're doing our COVID-19... No, I don't get a single question from... You can't even prove to me. The Zoomers that can ask a question of me. Well, you'll come back next week. Oh, my God. This is a shanda. I, I need to talk to your mother. You're going to tell well, me. I love you, Bert Ross. How do people how do people read you over at the Malibu Times? They they go to the Malibu Times. They go to uh, opinion under opinion is blogs, and they'll see in order chronological order the most recent first uh, all my all my columns. And you're staying out of tr- you're not looting, right? You're staying out of trouble. I it, I. I think it was yesterday. I get notified, and Malibu doesn't get around that you get a text, a phone call, and an email that there's a curfew. They gave us an hour and a half notice. This is at 4.30. Curfew starts at 6 p.m. last night. 
And my response was, I've been in a curfew since March 15th. Why are they announcing the curfew? I haven't, I'm a prisoner. I'm in solitary confinement. And they're telling me that there's news in the curfew. I don't I love you. I love you, Bert. I love you so much. Thank you. We'll be back with our, thank you. We'll be back. Stay in line for one second. We'll be back with our COVID-19. Oh, we hung up. We'll be back with our COVID-19 town hall. Time for some fun. It's our COVID nineteen town hall. Let's lighten let's lighten things up. The irritable immunologist is here. Hello, irritable. We're all gonna die. <laughs> what did you say? I said we're all gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> and here to make sense of it all is Henry Hakamaki. He's not wrong. About the pronunciation or that we're all going to die? That we're all going to die. You're terrible on the pronunciation still, David. Okay, so we're all going to die because of that's the human condition, or we're all going to die because Donald Trump is president? David, I feel at this point we're all dead already. Seriously? On the inside, we're all dead. Oh, come on now, please. We need wow. some. Wow. Wow. The show been going on that long? An hour 14 now? Then... <laughs> it's still going from last Friday. <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> and Henry, you've been awake the whole time. Oh, man. Well, this is, this is where we are. We're going to talk about COVID. I don't know if you people remember COVID 19. It used to be very Ooh. big. Once. Doesn't sound familiar. Yeah. Well, total confirmed cases. Around the world, 6,194,000. Total deaths, 372,501. In America, total confirmed cases, 1,790,000. I'm sorry, 1,790,000. Total deaths, 105,000. So, yeah. Irritable. This is this is yeah. what I think. Okay? Oh, well this is going to be a bunch of BS. <laughs> <laughs> I'm walking around New York City wearing really? my mask. Are you out now? You're leaving your in your your palatial penthouse? Yeah, I've left the palatial penthouse and uh I'm walking around and it feels good to be outside be in the sun and I'm looking at you know blue state new yorkers who have seen covid-19 have experienced it we were told that they were going to have to set up military tents in central park to accommodate everybody i mean we live it was pretty scary and uh now people are out and it's summer spring and People are not, some people are not wearing masks here in Blue State, Manhattan. What does that tell you? They haven't heard the news. Uh, 
they've, they've just been trapped inside reading comic books and finally came out and were like, well, why is everybody wearing a mask? I, I think that's what that does. Okay. But we want to be out. I'm being serious. Uh, we've been cooped up. We want to be outside. And for sure. And so what do you what do you think is going to happen? No, it's it's hard to imagine there won't be uh, a bit of a spike coming up within the next couple of weeks or a month uh, as a consequence of, of people mixing more freely in the general population. That'd be able uh, to get away from, I believe. Yeah. And go ahead, Henry. Well, I would just add that, um, in my opinion, the spike is going to be more from but so we're going to have a spike from people not taking the same precautions that they did before and going over to friends' houses, et cetera, et cetera. But to me, we're really going to see a spike when businesses start to reopen. People are working together in confined spaces and people are shopping in confined spaces. Uh, as we discussed last week, being outside, your chances of being infected by somebody else outside are relatively low unless you're really, really close to them. But once the powers of capital decide to reopen the economy, that would be when I would really expect things to take take off. And I think that with people becoming accustomed to life in the era of COVID, that they're just going to accept the economy reopening and, and go back to shopping as if, uh, as if there was nothing really wrong going on. Well, yeah, it's un- it's unfortunate there hasn't been sort of a push to try to get businesses, particularly restaurants, but even things like hair salons, to do as much as they can outside, you know, right out on a veranda or patio or some sort of street seating. Uh, because exactly as Henry was just saying, when you're in a confined space with limited airflow, you're sort of concentrating virus and there's a, a much greater opportunity to become infected as if you were outside and people are eating on patio from with tables that are spaced well apart, be substantially lower risk than those same people, even at that same distance inside. So it is surprising there hasn't been more on the state and the big city levels to try to induce government have governors and mayors try to induce businesses that want to reopen to do as much as they can outdoors. Okay. I, I may or may not have a child who may or may not have been marching in uh, Santa Monica over the weekend in, in Los Angeles. And uh, what if he wore a mask? What are we going to see? Are we going to see hot spots from the, the, the protests? I mean, it's certainly possible. Anytime you have people packed in close together, the virus appears to transmit very, very readily. So if there's a large number of people and a substantial number of potential positives in that same group, if the people who are positive are wearing a mask, that's going to cut everybody dramatically. And if the people who are not infected have masks as well, that's going to cut their risk even further. But yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised to see some infections pop up in association with with people act a, a bit too close together in um, protesting. Henry, I agree entirely. I, I think that 
inevitably we're going to see an increase just because of the amount of people that are mixing around with each other in public during the protests. But I don't think that it's going to be quite the spike that we would expect seeing this many people together on a more day-to-day basis uh, as if, and I don't mean to say that the protests aren't going on day-to-day, but a more usual lifestyle day-to-day type contact because we are seeing a lot. I don't want to say most, but a, a lot of the protesters are wearing masks. So as irritable says, anybody that's infected in that crowd is going to have their transmissibility cut very, very significantly. And they're outside, which again is going to cut the transmissibility. And yeah, I, I, I think that it's inevitable that we're going to see some cases pop up due to the protest, but I don't think that it would be as much as if all of these people were in a shopping mall together. I'm sure, or in a sports stadium that's enclosed, like in, in hockey games, enclosed basketball games, even big stadiums that have roofs in them and don't have real high uh, filtration rate through the, mm-hmm. the, the air isn't turning quickly in the stadiums. Those would be places that would be really concerning. And what about supermarkets? I mean, you know, th- those are cold. Supermarkets tend to be cold. That's good for the virus, right? In terms of its persistence, yeah, that, that's certainly not going to hurt it. Yeah, I mean, anywhere people are traveling through at a high rate, we can we can only hope that the the grocery retailers will take some pretty aggressive precautions, particularly their employees. I mean, people just going to shop or have a fairly limited window of exposure unless they're like David Feldman and insist on caressing every single cantaloupe there <laughs> really lovingly <laughs> with a little bit of drool. I mean, it's, it's a little disturbing. But but other than that, the people who are going to be at the this are going to be the clerks are going to be the, the so-called essential workers, uh, which is a, a term I certainly agree with for, for people like that. And if the employer is not giving them hazard pay or, or not taking really substantial mechanisms, definitely putting like guards between them and the, the people who are coming up uh, to check out and so forth, the employer is really being removed. So, I, yeah, I, I think the concern is probably most for the people who work there rather than the people who shop there. Hmm. Okay. Well, I want to open up the floor to our listeners who have lots of questions, but we're also going to learn some cell biology because we have two brilliant scientists with us. Tell me what the ACE2 receptor is, and then tell me what happens when the coronavirus enters our cells, how it makes us sick. Irritable, please. Sure. So we've, we've talked about ACE2 a bit before. Um, it's the angiotensin converting enzyme 2, uh, which is, uh, it's a protein that sticks through the cell all the way from the inside to the outside. It's a transmembrane protein. And on the outside, which is where the virus lands, it actually has an enzymatic activity. So the ACE2 protein is, is actually quite important in converting, oh, Oh, uh, well, let, let's say chemicals in, in the bloodstream to prevent really aberrant things going on with blood pressure. Let's, let's simplify it like that. Uh, but it's, it's a, a critical member of the renin angiotensin, if you want to throw other in there as well, um, system, the RAS system. And that's where the virus lands. And, uh, as about, I believe last time with, uh, your, your middle finger playing the role of the, uh, flipped up receptor binding to, um, the 
the spike protein, and in particular, the very sensitive tip, David Feldman's middle finger, which we were calling the receptor binding domain, that has to interact with the H2 uh, receptor on the surface of susceptible cells uh, quite directly in order for the virus to attach. There's actually another bit involved there as well uh, that we can, I guess we could talk about very briefly. There's something called uh, priming. So that spike protein that's sticking out on the surface of the V2 viral particle, let's say, that, that makes that corona from which the coronaviruses get their name, sort of having like a halo if, if you look at it under a suitable electron micro, microscope. Um, there's also something called priming of that spike protein, and it turns out this is pretty critical in order to allow the virus to really enter the cell and infect it properly the way it really wants to do. And sort of one of those key things that primes the spike protein that sort of, let's say, sniffs it a little bit. Um, let, let's say it's, uh, oh, you know, it's it's uh, spike protein. There's a lot of dog going around its business. But David Feldman cells will not let anything that has not had a little bit on the tip snipped off enter into David Feldman's cells. You're, you're talking about David Feldman cells are. You're talking about circumcision. Um, well, you, you could think of it like that. You, you could think of these uh, proteases on the cell surface as being like a little circumcision for the spike So protein. this is where the anti-Semitism um, comes from, that a lot of people are blaming COVID-19 on Jews? And, and so you're saying that there's some really? legitimate... Wow, that's, yes, exactly, yes. This is, <laughs> this is all entirely the fault. No, no, that's... that's that's just an analogy. So uh, in order to prime the spike protein, in order to make it function properly, let's say, uh, it's very, very helpful, in fact, borderline necessary for the cell that the virus is in to have not just ACE2, but also have um, cell surface proteases, uh, the most notable one we call TMPRSS2. Uh, you, you don't have to remember that, but that that's a serine protease that's, that's little snip, let's say, in the spike protein that will make the infection go well for the virus to dramatically oversimplify everything. Okay. Um, you want to you elaborate or uh, compress that? Yeah, I mean, just to, to kind of condense that into a very short statement, the spike protein comes in on the virus naturally, but the, the spike protein is not ready. It's not in a state that's really ready to invade the cell through the ACE2 receptor. The ACE2 receptor is where it comes into our cells. But what happens is a part of your cells, the cells that are exhibiting ACE2, also have a bit that clips part of the uh, spike protein, which allows the spike protein to invade the ACE2 receptor and get into your cells. So really, it's it's the virus is sort of hijacking yourself for its own needs. That's the long story short of what priming is. So an unprimed spike protein would be before it has that bit clip by your cell, and it wouldn't be good for getting into the ACE2 receptor. After the spike protein is primed, it's ready to come into the ACE2 receptor and into your cell. Okay. A cell has a semi-permeable membrane? Yep. And so... 
it knows to keep out a virus. You need these receptors to bring the virus in, right? Yeah, you can think of it like that. Essentially, the cell membrane is going to exclude anything of really substantial size virus from getting in just by default, by diffusion. There's there's things that can sort of move freely in and out of the cell, but those are fairly limited and usually quite small in size. But it is, so the receptors are there like antennae looking for things that the cell might need that the the membrane won't allow in. You could think of it that way. In, in some cases, there's specific types of channels of various types that cells have embedded in their membranes, and some of those are always open and in sort of constitutive exchange of things, and some of them open under only certain circumstances, and some of them only in certain cells and other cells. So, yeah, you, you can think of it sort of like that. Okay, and the human body has different types of cells. We have brain cells and kidney cells, right, and bone marrow cells that are all a little different. So does the COVID-19 see certain cells and know not to go for it? Is it? Sort of, yeah. A cell that has the ACE2 receptor on its surface and doesn't express, oh, some of those cells proteases will be very, very difficult for the virus to get into. There's some possibility that others it might be able to get into that don't express ACE2, but overwhelmingly, yeah, any cell that isn't doesn't have a ACE2 on the cells on its surface will be more or less invisible to the so, virus. So Henry, so when the coronavirus comes in contact with the human body, it's looking for cells that have the ACE2 receptor. Yeah, exactly. And not all of our cells have the ACE2 receptor. Now, several of them do, but not all of them do. So the cell that has the highest amount of ACE2 receptors are what we call type 2 alveolar cells. Those are in your lung. But there's other, and that's why it's primarily a respiratory virus. I see, right. There's mostly ACE2, but there are other cells that have ACE2. So the heart cells have ACE2. Um, and that's why in severe cases, we will see cardiovascular problems. Kidney cells have ACE2. GI tract cells have ACE2. There, there's uh, other cells that have ACE2, but not to the level that we have in our lung cells, which is why, well, the virus, first of all, comes into our lungs. And then that's also the cells that it most wants to invade because it has the highest amount of ACE2 there. Okay. So, uh, Henry, Henry, thank you. So irritable Helene Olin is on the show today, and she says that she tested positive for the antibodies and said mm. that she had the heart palpitations. Now, the heart palpitations Oof. that mimic a heart attack, is that because the ACE2 receptors are on a heart cell? Potentially, in have more to do with dysregulation of other things in the process of the infection. I, I think it would be to say without some really direct, uh, oh, an echocardiograph uh, data there. I would suspect it would not be due to a direct infection of the, the myocardium, of, of the cell of the heart that are uh, infectable by this virus. I would suspect that was would more likely be a consequence 
some of the oh, chemical messengers that are getting dysregulated, both in terms of the immune system and of blood pressure regulation. Okay, Henry? And in addition to that, um, so he's he's absolutely right about that, and I agree with him, but I also would just add in that uh, since we didn't really touch on the pathophysiology, uh, which is to say what the virus does once it's in your cells after it's already gotten in, um, once the virus has gotten into your cell, really the main way that there is injury happening to you is through your own body's response to it, which is similar to a lot of viruses, really, most of them. Um, but what happens is the virus gets in, and then there's me- there's uh, chemical signals that tell certain cells to react. And one of the cells that reacts the most in this situation are neutrophils. And neutrophils cause a lot of cell damage and because when they release their contents, which is what they do to um, try to take care of a viral infection. Those contents that they release don't just take care of the viral infection, but they also do damage to our own cells that are around it. And also, uh, cells like neutrophils, for example, inc- they put out other chemicals that really increase the inflammatory response of your body. Now, the inflammatory response is something that's good for preventing the infection from progressing, but it also does a lot of damage to your system. And I think that in, in addition to different dysregulations that we see um, due to COVID infections, that the infl- inflammatory process of um, Helene's own cells could also be responsible for some of the cardiac problems that she was experiencing due to her infection. She also Irritable, said- would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that seems like a, a real potential, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. We are talking with the irritable immunologist. I should ask you what charity people should be giving to irritable since you are doing this anonymously. And so there should, you should, we should figure out some charity that people could give to because of what you've. You mean other than feldmanuniversity.edu where, yeah. where I am the honorary dean of chancelling? <laughs> Um, or, or, or Let me write that down. Hang on, the dean. I like that. You're now the dean of chancelling. That's that's great. But think of a, a a cause that you would encourage our listeners to donate to, uh, so to make this genuinely worth your time. Before we talk to the listeners, because I know they have raised hands and they have questions. What happens once the virus gets into the cell? What does it want to do once it's in there? And what does what do it do? So you know, just like uh, an interior decorator, the, the once it's inside the doors of David Feldman's apartment, so to speak, yes. wants to completely overhaul the interior. Okay. It doesn't like the way things are set up. It's no good. It's no damn good at all. <laughs> uh, in large part, in this case, because the uh, all of the cells in your body and the immune system cells in particular have sort of an additional level of this, have little molecular sensors inside of them that allow them to detect if something is emitted. Um, much like that lady in the produce section who's always posted there to see if you're drooling on the cantaloupes mm-hmm. that you're fondling. There are receptors inside of cells in your body, particularly the ones being targeted here. Um, 
things like toll-like receptors, TLR7 and 9, as well as TLR3 and something called RIG1. All of these receptors looking for specific types of, oh, in this case, RNA, uh, double-stranded RNA, which should essentially never exist in, inside of your cells, is detected by TLR3 and RIG1, if I recall correctly. And TLR7 and 9 are also detecting viral RNA. And in order to evade all of these mechanisms that you're have to detect invaders, to detect whether there's a, you know, someone's hired an interior decorator while they were asleep to, and buy a new couch. Uh, in order to evade that, the virus is really overhauling the entire superstructure of the inside of your cell and setting up a little pillow fort for itself. So much like uh, you for the last couple of months, hiding under a pillow fort while wrapped in toilet paper, um, <laughs> the virus is setting up sort of a application zone that allows it to remodel the internal membrane system of your cells to help hide itself while it's reproducing and will generate these RNAs with double strand during its reproduction cycle that the cell might be able to detect. So it's able to sort of hide out in this pillow flow generated and it's also converted the internal internal workings of your cell as much as it can to be a factory to produce more virus that the when the virus is ready will be exocytosed out of this and will go on to spread to other cells in the body and while it's doing this it has this is a big RNA virus this is a 30 kilobase rna virus it has error correction built into it because it's an rna virus and anything that's big RNA needs error correction so this has a xon and endo n function um but also has a ton of other proteins. So there's about four proteins in the actual virus itself. It's spreading around air or, or in the Motel 6 pool where, where David Feldman was most recently relieving himself. Um, but I didn't know about the surveillance way. camera. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I may have told on. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah, well, you're welcome. You hadn't offered me the honorary dean of chancelling. Yes, yes, yes. So I... So, so it's, um, yeah, so it's, uh, tell me yourselves a factory to produce more virus. And, and functionally, it's doing a really good job of that and it has a ton of proteins inside of it that enable it to heavily modulate the activity of your cells. It has things that specifically inhibit proteins in your cells that are there to respond to viral action. So there's, let's, let's just, call it a very general category because it's actually sort of a complex. There's a number of things called interferons that cells produce when they detect a virus is infected or they detect a nearby cell is sending out SOS signals and they say, Hey, there's a virus I can do nearby has a virus. I better turn on the interferon response. And what this does is clamps down on the amount of protein that's being used in the cell and basically makes it into a really bad place to produce virus. But this particular coronavirus and several others have a protein that directly interferes with that response. So literally the coronavirus is interfering with interferon in order to more thoroughly hijack the internal mechanisms of your cell as well as sort of the more global response uh, to reproduction. Henry? Henry, did you get muted there, Henry? Yeah, sorry, I I was taking a drink, so I muted myself and forgot to unmute myself. Uh, 
I, I think that Irritable, Irritable did a, a good job there of explaining. Um, but just to summarize what the SARS-2 coronavirus wants to do once it's in our cells is just basically turn our cells into a virus-making factory. It hijacks our cells to do the dirty work for it because it, it can't make it, it can't make more viruses on its own. And it produces a lot of uh, things that make it so that the cell produces the virus and it prevents certain things that your cells do to prevent viruses from being made. So it, by preventing that, it allows the cell to make more viruses. Just to take a step back, though, um, because I think that, so this is more of a basic immunology point, but I think that just a brief explanation here might clear up some things for people. When uh, Irritable was talking about different receptors that your cells use for detecting pathogens, I'm just going to make them a lot more broad. Instead of talking about the specific receptors, I'm going to categorize them into a couple of different groups. So there's uh, receptors that detect what we call damage-associated molecular patterns. So if you have a cell that is damaged, that cell will have certain markers on it, and then other cells will pick up on these damage-associated molecular patterns. We call them DAMPs. And it'll say, there's something wrong with the cell. It's damaged somehow. For some reason, we're going to take care of it. And by take care of it, I mean kill it and dispose of it. There's pathogen-associated molecular patterns. We call them PAMPs. Uh, these would be things like single-stranded DNA. We don't have single-stranded DNA in our body. So if immune cells see single-stranded DNA, they know it's probably from a pathogen. It's probably from a virus or something like that. So when the immune cells see something like this, and it's not just single-stranded DNA, that's just an example, but they'll see something that's not from your body typically. And when they see that, they know that there's a pathogen there, and then these cells will go in and they'll try to kill it, whether it's by eating it, like macrophages do, or by releasing toxic compounds like neutrophils do. They'll take care of it. And then there's a there's other types of receptors. So those are innate receptors. If you remember back when we talked about not uh, the innate immune system, it's nonspecific. So these patterns are broadly shared across a bunch of different uh, a bunch of different pathogens. So the pathogen associated molecular patterns are things that are seen broadly. They're not specific for a individual virus, like single stranded DNA is something that you'll see in a lot of pathogens. But regardless of what pathogen specifically is making it, your body knows it's a pathogen. Right. So that's the name. Right. On the other hand, there's uh, we call them antigens that are picked up specifically by, let's say, the T-cell receptor. This is the adaptive immune system. The T-cell receptor, every T-cell has a different T-cell receptor that will only recognize one specific antigen from one specific pathogen. Now, this is somewhat of a simplification, but for our purposes, it's fine. So each T cell will only recognize one antigen from one specific pathogen. So when a different cell, let's say a macrophage or a dendritic cell, one of the innate immune cells, eats up a pathogen because it saw a pathogen-associated molecular pattern, then it'll take a piece of that pathogen and stick it out on its surface and it'll go around and find different T cells and it'll try to match. It's like a, a key and lock. 
the the antigen that the we call them antigen presenting cells, macrophages, dendritic cells, the antigen that they're presenting will get tested against all of the different T cell receptor locks. And when it finds one that fits, that T cell knows, ah, this specific pathogen, SARS-2 coronavirus, is in our system. And then that specific T cell will go uh, undergo what we call clonal expansion, since it's like the only T cell in your body, individual T cell, that'll recognize that. It'll make a bunch of clones, basically. It'll divide and divide and divide. And then you have a bunch of T cells that'll recognize it, and then they can undergo the response of trying to take out that specific pathogen. Fantastic. So hopefully that clears up what's yeah. up. Let's go to Nick, who is in Los Angeles. Hello, Nick. Hi, David. Hi, Henry. Hi, Irritable. Thank you for you that doing, email, David? by the way. That was very nice of you. Thank you. Oh, oh, my pleasure. Um, I appreciate it. I've got a question on to try to, I guess, follow up with that in terms of people who don't get any symptoms at all. Because it sounds like if, if your innate immune system were to prevent it from the coronavirus from doing any more damage, would it be because it didn't get through like the mucous membranes? And if it was like, uh, the, uh, like the macrophages or the neutrophils that you would have more of an immune response or would the just innate immunity wouldn't really be that effective. And then secondly, would it be because mainly the, the coronavirus cells could not penetrate the, um, cells with like the ACE2 uh, receptors or the other receptors that they have. I mean, obviously, I'm not expecting like a direct answer, but what are some likely scenarios? And if, and I guess I got one more follow up if that's okay. Yeah. And if you did have a, if you did get symptoms at that point, would antigens be present as to be able to make that copy? Great. Thank you, Nick. Sure. So I guess in reverse order, certainly if you have symptoms from a coronavirus infection, then there's only enough coronavirus in your system to possess, oh, those, those antigenic determinants, those little bits of surfaces that are either on or in the virus. So yes. Um, that uh, prior to that, uh, asymptomatic people who are able to clear it, that's probably, yeah, that's probably cleared by the innate immune system. Uh, typically when you're talking about an asymptomatic person, they've, they have an infection. The virus has definitely entered cells and has reproduced inside of cells, probably in the areas up in the nose, most likely in the first place uh, of people. And so, so they have been infected. The infection is either kept at such a low level, uh, either because the initial number of viruses that were introduced were too small to start a really rip-roaring infection, or the person is really young and in excellent health. Uh, yeah, the, the innate immune system is almost certainly going to be responsible for taking care of a viral infection that remains asymptomatic. That's not an absolute. It's certainly possible to develop a, an adaptive response showing severe symptoms, but someone with no symptoms at all who is spreading the virus, yeah, I would suggest most likely they're having it resolved by an appropriate innate immune response. 
that may be a real key in terms of uh, respiratory tract infections by viruses to keep them under control with the innate immune response until the appropriate adaptive immune response can happen. Henry? Yeah, I, I would agree entirely, and I, I that was very clear, irritable. Um, I would just say that uh, if the innate immune system very vigorously uh, so the reason that we see symptoms is because of the effects of our immune system working against the virus to try to clear it, okay? Mm-hmm. So if we're not seeing any symptoms, that would mean that we didn't have a huge over-response of our immune system, but we also cleared it early enough that there wasn't a ton of viral replication where we would require subsequent levels of the immune response to kick in. Now, if I may ask irritable something, irritable. Um, there was a recent paper that came out. You sent it to me. Um, it showed that there was a, a high level of cross-reactivity in T-cells when they studied uh, the general population. There's a, a lot of cross-reactivity of T-cells against the SARS-2 coronavirus. So would you be able to briefly explain what cross-reactivity is? What does it mean that we're seeing a lot of this T-cell cross-reactivity and could this, the cross-reactivity of T-cells against SARS-2 coronavirus, could that potentially impact the severity of COVID disease in patients? And I'm going to ask you to, yeah. give, I'm going to, ask you to give a short answer because I have one. We're going to go to one more uh, person in the audience with a question, and then we have to wrap it up because I want you guys to come back. Go ahead. Uh, okay, yeah, this will be a tough one to do quick, but I'll see what I can do. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a full, uh, there's now two sort of confirmational papers. The the one I sent uh, David and Henry from the La Jolla Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease down here in SoCal, and there's another one that was up in preprint earlier from Charité Burren, who are super hot shots in virology as well. And what they found was that in individuals in the pop possibly 20% of people that they they looked at who had never been exposed to SARS-CoV-2, the causative virus of COVID-19, had T-cells that could still react to bits of SARS-CoV-2. And the reason for that is almost certainly because those T-cells were generated as a adaptive response to some of those common cold coronaviruses that almost everyone who been infected with repeatedly over their lifetime. And so it's certainly possible that the individuals who have these, oh, we call them cross-reactive. So it, it means there's oh bits on coronavirus, let's say, that all remain the same. Not the tippy tip of the spike, which determines the cell tropism, which receptors it, it con but other parts, let's say the back end of the spike or other things like that, or bits inside of the virus itself or some of those 20-plus proteins that are only or mostly inside of cells and not in the virus themselves. Uh, so there's probably bits that overlap. In fact, there's absolutely bits that overlap between coronaviruses. And so it is possible that people already have a certain fraction of the population already have some amount of T cells that will respond to a SARS-CoV-2 infection as if they've seen it before, even though they, because they've seen and remembered a virus that's sufficiently closely related that there's enough 
overlap there that they can cross react. Let's say it, let's put it that way. And this may inform why some individuals are able to clear SARS-CoV-2 so quickly, but we're really unclear. It may be that individuals who have some of these cross-reacting T cells have a worse time with this infection, although that may be less likely. Okay. Yeah. So just to, just to clear that up real quick. Um, so these people that we saw the cross-reactive T cells in, we know that they didn't have COVID. They don't have the antibodies against COVID. And if you were going to see T cells that were reactive against SARS-2 coronavirus, we would also see antibodies because that would mean that the infection was sufficient that the adaptive immune system had kicked in because T cells are part of the adaptive immune system and antibodies are produced by plasma cells, which is a subset of B cells that's also part of the adaptive immune system. So no antibodies. They haven't been infected with that virus before, at least not enough to kick in their adaptive immune system. But these people, and like Irritable said, up to 20% of people have these T cells that recognize uh, SARS-2. Not because they've actually seen SARS-2, the virus, before, but they saw something that was similar. And so they do still work against Well, in theory, they could work against it. We don't have any experimental data on that. But they recognize it in any case. The T cells recognize SARS-2 coronavirus, even though they'd never had that specific virus before. Okay. Last question for... And, and, and just a... Just to, re- just to really clear up a little bit there. So in one of the cases in these, they had blood samples that had been banked back before the outbreak started. Mm-hmm. So they, they definitely didn't anybody, but they also made a specific point of taking a s- samples from people that they had in freezers or fridges that had been drawn long before there was an outbreak of this virus. So they wanted to be doubly sh- there, there's a rationale behind that. It turns out that with coronaviruses and certain other respiratory viruses, sometimes the memory response can outlive the antibody response. But, uh, yeah, other than that, go ahead, David. Okay, we have one last question from Ninja. Go ahead. Where are you, Ninja, tonight? Um, I'm, I'm behind Henry this time. Oh, okay. <laughs> Whoa. Hey, um, well, you're you were sitting there saying how some of the people who had uh, like overcome COVID, it might have been due to the immune system. Um, I think that like 100 percent of the cases would be due to the immune system. But it's all about the immune system being in balance, because whenever this whenever this disease or whenever this uh, virus enters the cells, it's causing that that natural immune response, like the macrophages to produce, um, you know, more of those uh, inflammatory molecules, like more of the, the cytokine storm. Um, it's encouraging more neutrophils to uh, create more of that reactive oxygen species. Um, so that's like ramping up the immune system. But the goal of everything in our body is about uh, balance. So, I, I would think that the people who survived, they had a healthy immune system. Their, their immune system was able to downregulate some of that, that cytokine storm and deal with some of this, um, you know, free radical damage. So, I mean, my whole my, so my point being, though, so is, we weren't we weren't suggesting that it could be cleared without an immune response. Let's just put it that way. Nobody was suggesting. Okay, that. Well, that's we what it kind of sounded like between, at first. Like maybe they just didn't get enough of it. So it just immune right, response and the adaptive immune response. 
Right. Okay. Well, and then the, the point, the main point being that I think a lot of pharmaceuticals are targeting these mechanisms to either, either turn them off, like turn off that ACER2 or, you know, completely shut off that, uh, you know, certain, certain pathways and things where it's, again, it's all about balance. So there's certain substances that do downregulate these inflammatory molecules that, that do have more of that modulating effect rather than pharmaceuticals. So I know that that's kind of like y'all's industry, but it seems like there's more hope in, in these mechanisms that are balancing. But I know that there's a lot more profit on the pharmaceutical side. So it just seems like a lot of our research, a lot of our hope is put into that. And it's not put into where I see like the real hope is, which is an actual strong immune system, like a balanced immune system. Great. So, thank you. That's it. Thank you, Invisible. I have an idea, Invisible, during the break. I'll tell you. Go ahead. Sure. So I, I'm in a nonprofit research institution for the for the first place. Um, the second place, a lot of the pharmaceuticals that are being considered are pre-existing pharmaceuticals that are specifically designed to tame an aberrant immune response. And so a lot of the problems that we're seeing, particularly in elderly patients, but others as well, is with an immune response that's inappropriate and possibly even hyperactive, you could put it that way. Uh, and so when there are very large volumes of specific immunological signaling compounds being secreted, uh, there is a, a great danger of, uh, call, the caller was talking about balance, and that's sort of a, a thing you think about in immunology. Certainly the issue is there is an inherent irrespective of organism, any organism that has an immune system, as that organism ages, immune system becomes dysregulated. There's simply no getting around it. And there is no available magic pill, no substance that one can take to rebalance the immune response associated with cellular senescence and, and overall physiological senescence. And in fact, the, the entire concept from Franceschi in the early 2000s, who, who coined it, is called inflam aging, is what he called it. So I-N-F-L-A-M dash aging. So there is a strong propensity as one ages in order to maintain a kind of a balance, what's called homeostasis in biology. Um, more, more of these pro-inflammatory cytokines, uh, we can break that down a little bit greater depth at some of time becomes secreted in order to have a more standard response because the rest of the organism is all altering with time. And so I've actually done a fair bit of work, probably more than most people in the field with S and animals uh, as a model for modeling the aging immune system in humans. And it turns out it's not just really expensive and a big pain to do that, but and there are higher levels of these inflammatory mediators, let's call them, at steady state in an animal. When that animal is challenged with a virus or a bacteria or even a sterile injury like a heart attack, um, there's a lot less room for error in the response there. And there is, again, there is no specific 
magic pill. You're talking about systems of systems of systems of systems that are all interacting with one another, a lot of them involving chemical messengers and a lot of them intracellular proteins. And there isn't any one thing. It, it sounds great. Like, hey, can't we just make everybody's immune system work perfectly? The answer is no. No, we can't that we can't do that and on the basal state when people are 20 year old adults with phenomenal immune response we can't do that when they're 60 certainly so a lot of what's being done is repurposing pre-existing medications rather than developing some new magic pill that'll make huge sums of money although i'd imagine gilead stock is reflecting where they think they're going to sell um and so yeah um il6 and il in particular among the cytokines, appear to be a major issue with the really severe COVID-19 infections. And so IL-8 is probably the most profound neutrophil chemo-attractant that there is. And this is probably not a real good sign, because if you keep recruiting neutrophils, like we talked about last week, onto a site of infection, the more they come in, the more dangerous things become because they're going to be spitting basically bleach all over the, they're going to be ejecting their, oh, vomiting up their DNA and associated with an enzyme actually called elastase, neutrophil elastase, and that just rips up tissue in situ. And so the aberrant immune responses that we're seeing are overwhelmingly skewed toward elderly people who you would already expect functional immunological response. And to my knowledge, no one anywhere taking anything has been able to turn back the clock on an 80-year-old immune system to make them respond really, really well like they would if they were 20. Okay. Henry, uh, we're going to – we you get the last word, Henry, tonight. We have to wrap it up, though. So thank yep, you. No problem, Henry, David. What's, what's, so I was just going to say that uh, on in general – Invisible has uh, the right idea when he says you want things in balance. Of course, the, there's balance in all facets of life that we want, and the immune system is no different. But to just focus on trying to promote balance is kind of a futile task in terms of trying to prevent infections or to prevent severity of infection once you get it, because different diseases have different effects on the immune system. And there's some things that having a balanced immune system aren't going to protect against. So um, there's something that is called um, functional exhaustion. And it's basically exactly what it sounds like. The cells are working and working and working and they're working real hard and they're doing their function very, very well. But at a certain point, they just can't work anymore. And so what happens is even though these cells aren't dead, they can't have their effect. They don't put out the chemicals that they were putting out before. They, they, they aren't doing what they need to do even though they're alive. And having a balanced immune system doesn't protect against this because some diseases just cause exhaustion in certain cell types. And COVID is one of them, the SARS-2 coronavirus. They found um, at least early results that NK cells and CD8 uh, T cells are yep. becoming functionally exhausted in people. That's just something that you can't prevent with having a balanced immune system. Okay, let's wrap it up. I am so grateful to the irritable immunologist and Henry Hakamaki. I'm going to learn your pronunciation 
uh, the conclusion is that we're all going to die. I think this is just... Uh, <laughs> We're all going to die. Uh, well, we can ask Zachary Carter the next time he's on, because as John Maynard Keynes said, in the long run, we're all dead. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Irritable. Thank you, Henry. We have to come up with a uh, a charity that you want to promote so people can give to it. But thank you for taking time to do this. It, it, it's a real public service, and I thank you for that. Thank you, Irritable. Not like the public service that you usually do down at the... Uh, anyway. <laughs> Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. That's our show. I'm going to open up the lines or the floor to our virtual studio audience. If they have something they want to say, we'll wrap it up. I'll give my listeners the last word before we go. I want to thank comedian Aaron Berg. His latest special is 25 Sets. Mark Breslin, founder and president of Yuck Yucks. Jackie, the joke man, Martling. Congressional candidate, comedian Lauren Ashcroft, and of course, Professor Harvey J.K. for introducing us to her. Washington Post, Elaine Oland. Down with Tyrannies, Howie Klein, Andrew Velinsky. Make sure you check him out and donate to Andrew Velinsky. He's running for governor of New Hampshire. And of course, give money to Lauren Ashcroft. Dr. Harriet Fraud, Ann Newman, is going to be back next week to talk about her latest series in The Guardian about nursing homes. We didn't have that much time with her. And Professor Harvey J.K. will be back Thursday. And Bert Ross, Irritable, and Henry, that is our show. Let's open up the floor. We have a couple of people who want to speak. And let's go to Josh. Hello, Josh. Hey, David. Hey, Josh, where are you? Uh, I'm in Brookings, Oregon. Okay. What's out of your mind, sir? Well, you had, you actually called on me earlier, I think, and I uh, I didn't know how to unmute myself. Ah, okay. You probably don't remember what we were talking about, so sort of irrelevant. But okay, did you did you want to say something? <laughs> um, no, no, man, I just love you. Oh, thank you, thank you so okay. much. I love you too. Thank you very much. And. Let's go. Invisible, you wanted to say something, and then we'll wrap it up with Henry. Invisible? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I had an idea. You're, you're a cartoonist, right? Yes, sir. You, should, you know, not that you should take any suggestions of mine, but you should do a cartoon strip of Irritable and Henry as superheroes fighting, you know, disease. Well, we're going to have to get more on board with some of this naturalistic style of uh, treatment. Now, to be <laughs> fair, you're invisible. To be fair, I'm all for uh, promoting our 
health through natural means. I, I mean, right. I, I, I mean, I'm not it, saying it, it that. Like, it did seem like the story got turned that I was saying that we needed to promote that balance. So we're trying to make these cells live like indefinitely. And I mean, obviously that's not the case, but um, it is all about balance. Like the, the immune system is all inflammatory molecules. It is all the balance of these inflammatory molecules. It is, it is. You shake your head, but at the core of it, it absolutely is. So, but on, on, on a different note, um, I just, I did want to throw, throw that in there though. Um, on a different note, I do, I, I do want, um, to, for us, say maybe we can do this in Friday meetings and stuff like that, but to start discussing like, a blueprint that we can put into place like city by city, like what we need to do to actually take control of our police departments. Like whether it be like you first go to the college, you, you know, you get these certain professors on board, make sure you get clergy on board, mm-hmm. um, like have, you know, uh, just a format in place so we can all city by city, like start taking back like our police force, because this is, it's going to get turned, turned against us like a lot more than it is right now. You know, and if, if we have a chance, I think right now to, to get a hold of it, but, um, I think this is I, where Henry would agree with you, right? Yeah, what are you just trying to get? <laughs> yeah. Henry, what, what do you think? And then we'll wrap it up. Thank you. Do, do you want to restate that position very quickly for me? Well, I'm just, I'm just, and I, I'm not asking you to like come up with a blueprint right now. I'm just thinking that I think that we need to start brainstorming on like a simple format that we can in, enact like city by city, you know, um, and just basically to reform the, the police departments. And maybe we can get more, um, like police reformers and stuff on the show, like getting some more ideas. But I think that yeah. this is a, a major thing that we need to, to address because we do have a, a fascist, um, tendency, especially with the, the, just that corporate rule, like corporatism is all about fascism. I mean, right. it's their natural way that they're going to go. So, and I think again, Henry, like, would, I think Henry would agree with you that the protests are going to stir up our fascist impulses, right? I agree with you entirely, David. And, and as I and said, I think Ninja was saying that too. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. And, yes. and as I said, I, I'm fully on board with people protesting. What they're protesting is a just thing to protest. I'm just worried that we're not going to see the effect that we want to see. And do I think that we still should be protesting? Yes. I I just think that we're going to see state repression and state violence at a level that we haven't seen in the past. And I I do agree with Invisible's point that we should bring in uh, people that have studied police reform. And one that I have at the top of my mind, is Alex Vital or Vitali, not sure of the pronunciation of the last name, but he wrote a book a couple of years ago called The End of Policing. Um, that's somebody that you could potentially look at bringing okay. on. I think that he'd be a good guest. And before we go, Henry... Or you, she. I don't know if Alex is male or female, to be honest with you. Okay. I think he's a, a man, though. Okay. And before we go, you have some Ebola news. Yeah. So I, I just saw... and. I was out of the house pretty much all day in the woods, so I haven't been uh, reading through the, the news as much as I should have been. But I, I just saw confirmation earlier today, I believe, of a new Ebola outbreak in northwestern Democratic Republic of the Congo. So the, mm-hmm. the last outbreak, which just um, got cleared up, was in the northeastern part of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. There's a, a region called um, North Kivu in the northeastern part. But from what I saw, um, this was in the northwestern part, though I haven't 
I haven't seen much more on it since then. I, I literally saw it right before um, our segment started, so I haven't been able to read up on it yet. But next time, if you want to ask about that, David, I'll have all the information for you. Okay, thank you. And you are an expert on Ebola. That's how you spend most of your time combating That's yeah, I mean, I'm I'm an expert in training still, but uh, for the purposes of this show, I'm an expert. Yes. We've been broadcasting live to tape here in Manhattan with a virtual studio audience, and they attended via Zoom or by phone, and I want to thank them all for, for showing up. It was uh, just, it's just great having, there, having them there. If you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience, please. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the, uh, it's not the office hours button anymore, it's the attend a live taping menu. Sign up, you'll get a link. If you have Zoom, just click on the link, you're in, no passwords. The invitation will also provide a few dial-in numbers so you can attend via phone. And we'll be back Friday, and then Friday night we'll do our office hours Go to davidfeldmanshow.com, and please come to Office Hours Friday night at 9 p.m. It's a great way for me to meet the listeners and encourage you to speak up during the show. My One of my goals is to be able to maybe add a third episode where we just talk to the listeners. I appreciate your input. It, I'm learning a lot. Thank you. I'll see you on Friday. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump.